Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Politico reported yesterday that six women of color working for Senator Elizabeth Warren's Nevada campaign quit after complaining of a toxic work environment in which people of color were marginalized and tokenized. Politico reports that when the women of color complained to the Warren campaign, they were met with, quote, an earnest shake of the head and progressive buzzwords, but not much else. Morgan Lewis, a field organizer who joined the Warren campaign in May and quit in December, told Politico, quote, During the time I was employed with Nevada for Warren, there was definitely something wrong with the culture. I filed a complaint with Human Resources, but the follow-up I received left me feeling as though I needed to make myself smaller or change who I was to fit into the office culture. Another Warren Field organizer, a woman of color who quit, told Politico, quote, I felt like a problem, like I was there to literally bring color into the space, but not the knowledge and voice that comes with it. The Nevada caucuses are February 22nd. Last week, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's head of talent and several cybersecurity aides quit amid complaints among staffers that the campaign lacked diversity. According to a report in last week's New York Times, people of color working for the Buttigieg campaign have complained of being disrespected and were offended when Buttigieg decided to co-host a fundraiser with Chicago attorney Steve Patton, who tried to block the release of an infamous video of Chicago police killing a black teenager. After a dismal showing in Iowa, Andrew Yang fired dozens of staffers, including his national political and policy directors, his deputy national political director, as well as several other key senior level officers. Some Yang staffers report nobody told them they had been fired and had only learned of the dismissal when they were locked out of their email and Slack accounts. Three weeks ago, Yang campaign staffers agreed to unionize. More on that later. Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign in May of 2019 became the first campaign in American history to approve a union contract with campaign staffers. In June of 2019, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced that she endorsed her staffer's decision to unionize. On January 16th of this year, Pete Buttigieg's campaign announced that it had recognized its staffer's decision to unionize. Field organizers for Joe Biden joined the Teamsters late last year in December, and Amy Klobuchar's workers have also recently unionized. For more on this, let's go to Portland, Maine, where Meg Riley is standing by. She is president of the Campaign Workers Guild. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You set up the Campaign Workers Guild what year? 
in 2017. We started organizing late 2016 and, and then went for it in 2017. And the Campaign Workers Guild takes staff who work for candidates and they create uh, an opportunity for collective bargaining. Is that the idea behind the Campaign Workers Guild? Yeah, sure. And not just candidates, but also, um, you know, like uh, referendum campaigns, um, state parties that unionize, some firms, some nonprofits. So it's a little bit broader than just electoral candidates. But yes, anyone in sort of the campaign worker realm is our general our general turf. One would think that the Democratic Party, which is in the pocket of the AFL-CIO of all unions, I mean, if you're a union person, you vote for the Democratic Party, wouldn't all the candidates, all the campaigns in the Democratic Party be union? Well, you know, first of all, it has to come from the workers, so it can't be top down. So even if you did have a candidate who is unabashedly pro-union, that doesn't necessarily mean that their workers will, will decide to unionize. It is a worker decision from the bottom up. So not necessarily. Um, the culture isn't always there, and a lot of campaign workers um you know, that's not kind of in their line of sight for what they are thinking about doing until someone speaks to them about it. So, so when you're working for, say, the North Carolina Democratic Party or Julian Julian Castro, you're almost a seasonal worker, aren't you? We wouldn't quite say seasonal, but it certainly is short, short term. And with that has traditionally come a lot of sort of cultural issues and then a lot of issues with benefits, of course. So when anyone is a short-term worker who has a clear end date in mind, you know, at the at the long end of it, but of course they can drop out at any time, then yeah, you often have candidates who say, you know, no point in doing health insurance or no, no vacation days. Why would we give you vacation? This is only a three-month gig. And then culturally as well, there's a little bit of a this is only going to last a few months, so why bother trying to make it better? You know, it, I think it's a, a pretty complex problem to have. It is a very complex problem. Before 2016, do we know of any campaigns that were unionized? No, and we did look into that a lot when we started, and so I can't, I can never give a definitive answer. I don't want to dismiss any that were, but we didn't find any that had unionized. There were a couple canvassing groups that had unionized. Um, I think in the Pacific Northwest, I believe, which is great, um, mm-hmm. but explicitly candidates, I don't think so. And you are not the official union for campaign workers. There are several guilds and unions out there for campaign workers. Well, we are the only campaign workers union, actually. We're the only one. So some other unions have taken on units of um, like a candidate here or there, but they're not explicitly a campaign workers union. So I think that probably depends on who you ask. It's never that black and white in labor, as you know. Right. Steel workers represent non-steel workers now and vice versa. So it's it's never that, that simple. Yeah. Uh, we should go slowly on this because fewer than 10% of Americans belong to a private sector union. It's no longer part of our lexicon. So a lot of these terms... You might take for granted, but somebody like me Mm -hmm. may not. So if you're an electrician, you can belong to maybe the AFL-CIO or, depending on where you live and where the contract is, you may belong to an electrician's union. It it depends where you're located and what the job is, right? 
Yeah, I would say so. Different shops often have different unions. You know, um, the AFL-CIO doesn't represent workers, so they can get people in touch with who represent them. But likely, you know, you're an electrician. Probably there's an IBEW local near you who would represent you. For the most part, that's pretty clear, yes. You know, Campaign Workers Guild, when when we formed, no one had unionized campaign workers, and a lot of unions had said it, you know, not necessarily officially, but had said sort of that's not really realistic. That's not going to that's not going to happen. And so when we formed, it was because there was sort of a, a need there that wasn't being filled. So some unions have stepped in and are representing campaign workers. You know, I think that's fantastic. The more representation we can get workers, the better. So before the staffers started to unionize, there were two reasons you would go work on a campaign. One is you believed in the candidate. And this is a revolution, and he or she is going to change the world, and I'm going to donate my time instead of money to this candidate. That's one reason you would go work basically for free. The other is the promise that your candidate will win, and there's patronage. You then are first in line for the jobs that come with the victory. Is that a fair assessment of how it was before the campaign workers guild probably i would add that there is a third group they are rare but mighty of just the people who love campaign work and they love the chaos of having a ton of short-term gigs in a row and moving across the country constantly so there were some people who just and ours who just love the work and want to do it you and know? believe in it believe in democracy yeah. and the passion mm-hmm. and, and not and they're good at it yeah right. and that's that's their career How do you decide who is worth paying and who is not worth paying before unions? In other words, say in 2009, when you went to work for an Obama campaign, some people were paid, some were not. Who decides who's worthy of a paycheck? I mean, before unions, that would be solely decided by management. I think usually it's a decision of we can afford you know, 30 staff in this city. So those 30 staff will recruit volunteers to do the rest. I think the lines do get pretty blurred. That's a common thing we hear. There are volunteers who essentially volunteer 40 hours a week. That's that's not terribly uncommon. It's, like N-double, it's the NCAA. It really is, because there's a <laughs> lot of money, multi, multi-billion dollar industry we're talking about. And there's a permanent consultant class that takes a piece of the ad buys Uh, People don't want to change the system. The consultants want to keep it just the way it is because there's a lot of money in campaigns. And yet the players, the people on the ground knocking on the doors, just like the NCAA, they get nothing. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty typical. And I think. You know, unionizing, there are various levels of, of welcome arms that we're greeted with when campaign workers unionize and, you know, we submit that demand to management. Sometimes management well, has been I, I don't mean to pretty be, willing, but. Let, let's talk about before unions. Just talk about how campaign staffers are manipulated and controlled. Before we get to the unions, what is the, sure. what, what, what would a liberal Democrat before the Campaign Workers Guild was founded. What would the Clintons, the Obamas, the Rahm Emanuels, we don't need to name names, but what are you told when you're working for free? What do they, what do they, how do they sell you 
on not getting paid? See, I don't even think it's, I don't even think the conversation is there about money from the start. I think it's very clear you're a volunteer, you know, and I think those lines are very clear. We, so I don't even think that that's even something that people even consider, right? Like you go to volunteer for a campaign, people who are volunteering 30 hours, maybe 10 years ago. I don't think there's a question of whether or not I should be paid or I should be staff. I think that's the way that things often are in campaigns. I mean, they run so much on volunteer time, even the campaigns who have millions right now, who have a ton of staff. That's just the way it kind of is. And so I, I don't know that 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 really has changed much. I think they're always going to be very heavily volunteer run. And it's a rude question to ask the candidate. Why am I? not? Yeah, getting... nobody wants to answer that. Right. Because we're kind of it's a control within our culture that you don't ask the people who have money about what they're paying you. It's a rude question. They seem to have money for television ads. They seem to have money for swag. They seem to have money for expensive parties and alcohol, and they can charter planes, but they just can't seem to find the money for the the the, the rank and file, the people who are putting the putting their really putting their lives on the line, giving everything up, blind devotion to the candidate. Right. Certainly when you look at the number of hours that campaign workers, you know, worked back when you're talking about, but also still work for the most part, I think people would be much better served by maybe cutting back on some ad buys and getting some more staff so people can have a day off a week. You know, I, I think it's a pretty, there is always a little bit of a tension, but not a little bit, quite a bit between, you know, the ad buys and the consulting and the, the, the actual labor, mm-hmm. you know, costs of a campaign. Is it conceivable that there would be a candidate who would be out on the stump pro-union and pro-health care, and yet his staff doesn't get health benefits and doesn't belong to a union? Is that conceivable? It's conceivable. Again, I will emphasize that a candidate does not necessarily have control over whether his workers decide to unionize. So I would reframe that a little bit to say, are there candidates who don't give their employees health insurance and have union busted when their workers tried to unionize? Yes, there definitely. Are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you're the president of the Campaign Workers Guild, and I know that you're reaching out to a lot of candidates would you be willing to give us the name of a union-busting candidate? I would not, unfortunately. Because you're negotiating with them. Uh, either negotiating or, you know, I'm the president of the Campaign Workers Guild as a whole, but because the workers decide, you know, what happens with their union and with their unit, then if they want to take handle things a different way, then that's up to them, you know, so I don't, I don't speak on behalf of the workers without being authorized to do so. I see. I see. So if you're working on staff somewhere and you need guidance, you would call the Campaign Workers Guild and you would help them organize. Correct. And that happens all the time. Okay. All right. So I'm not going to name names, but there was a let's just call him an ex-vice president. We'll just say that. Okay. Is that fair? I don't know. You're you're, you're stepping onto to iffy territory, but I'll, Richard, I'll let you speak. Could be Richard Nixon. Could be Walter Mondale. Okay, could be anybody. And his campaign said, "We don't need to 
offer a union or agree to a union with our staffers because we like to think that we pay them sufficiently and treat them so well they don't need union protections. What do you say when when somebody says that? So we do hear that sometimes. It's it's one way that bosses definitely union bust, maybe with a lowercase b, right? So mm-hmm. just sort of the taking the good guy stance, taking the the I'm, I would totally be down if you reached out, but you don't have to reach out, right? You know, and and sort of building that I'm I'm the the cool parent mentality, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's one way of doing it, and a lot of candidates do take that route. I will say it's more rare to be very overtly, you know, anti-union. A lot of them will say, "My staff are fine. I pay them a lot. You know, they all get they all get health insurance." As if getting health insurance is this big thing we should be thanking candidates for, right? That should right. be a bare minimum. But right. a lot of them do take that tack. So, if you're working, let's say, for the Democratic Party, and you're a, a volunteer. And you're, a, a, or you know, in your twenties, and you're, you're bright-eyed and optimistic. You're not getting paid. You uh, have no health care benefits. So who's supporting you? I would suspect it's your parents. I would suspect that uh, a disproportionate number of campaign workers in their twenties are living off their parents. Yes and no. So yes, in that the work is extremely inaccessible is how I would answer that. It absolutely privileges people who have some type of person they can lean on, whether that's like a friend's couch they can crash on in between gigs or yes, they're on their parents' health insurance plan if their parents are lucky enough to have health insurance too. You know, so, so yes, it absolutely privileges people who who might not have all of those resources. At the same time, that is shifting. You know, I think the campaign, uh, like, universe is more diverse in that way. And we certainly don't want it to be the case that you have to have access to all these resources in order to scrape by on a campaign. Generally speaking, what does that do to a campaign when the volunteers or a preponderance of the volunteers are being bankrolled by their wealthier parents what is how does that shape the world view of the campaign doesn't that That's put good- the campaign out of touch with the the 99 percent the people who are truly suffering if the volunteers really haven't experienced what most of us are experiencing i mean most of us can't quit our job and go knock on doors for a candidate and wait for a check from mommy and daddy. I mean, personally, I find it reprehensible that I I really do. I think it's disgusting Mm -hmm. that the Democratic Party is populated by young kids who are being bankrolled by their parents. That should be the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, right? Yeah, I mean, there are people who do have that level of access. I think what's more likely is you just have really broke campaign workers who are barely scraping by themselves. So I think I would be wrong if I were to totally agree with that, because more likely we just have campaign workers who are absolutely broke, who just do not have health insurance. Right. Or like are like just don't have a place to stay in between gigs and have to sort of couch surf with their friends. I think that is more common, just having kind of like 
campaign workers in poverty than it is having campaign workers who are essentially coming from generational wealth. And it, and it is, and it exist, is conceivable. But, it is conceivable that a campaign worker is is getting nothing, right? I mean, at that case, they'd be a volunteer, right? Because wage and hour laws still apply. So I think from your perspective and maybe a layperson's perspective, someone who's doing 40 hours of door knocking a week for a candidate, you know, whether or not they're paid is is kind of irrelevant because they're a worker regardless. For us, what I'm saying is that campaigns are, are very lucky in that they get to essentially have, yeah, 40-hour-a-week volunteers who they don't have to pay, but they do have to pay the 40-hour-a-week staffers. So it's a little bit of a distinction without a difference. But if someone is a campaign worker and is an actual employee on the campaign, they are earning, you know, at least minimum wage, usually a bit more. Okay, so I'm a... a a comedy writer and I'm not, you know, on staff on a specific show. It's I'm involved mm-hmm. with specific, you know, guerrilla type operations. You might call mm-hmm. them or campaigns. And when you're not an, on staff and there's a, a bureaucracy, you don't know of such a thing as a 40 hour work week. There's no such thing as a 40 hour work week. You you're, you're working 24 hours a day. They don't, they don't, there's no system in place to protect you from exploitation. For either the volunteers or the campaign workers. I mean, either way, I agree. Yes, there's no, there's no actual system here to outside of unions or a labor contracts to really put any limitation on what's going on. The best you can do is maybe ask someone on the campaign if they can either hire you and start paying you or if you can get some limit on your hours. But outside of that and outside of organizing, yeah, there's there's nothing there to 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 catch people. Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic Party, if you're if you're campaigning as a Democrat and calling yourself a Democrat, shouldn't there be guidelines top down from the Democratic Party on how campaign staffers and volunteers are treated? When you're working or volunteering for the Democratic Party, if you want to call yourself a Democrat and you're running for that nomination, shouldn't you have to rise to a certain level, some standards of of treatment for your staffers and workers? Are there any dictates coming from the DNC? I don't know if there are any coming. I think it would be fantastic if there were some standardization. You know, there is absolutely none of that. Um, but currently there isn't any. So yeah, I mean, people can, can preach one thing right on the pulpit and then practice something entirely different. That's true of all candidates. And we do see it, you know, with all candidates. And why is it, why isn't this a bigger story, especially, well, I guess it's not a bigger story because there's no hypocrisy on Bernie Sanders part. He was the first one to recognize the 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 workers right uh he was the first presidential campaign um yeah the first campaign that unionized on the presidential level so the media then doesn't have a dog in that fight because there's no hypocrisy there but this would be a if bernie's staff had not been unionized and getting paid a livable wage then there we would see on CNN and MSNBC, stories about how Bernie says one thing but does another. Unfortunately for the mainstream media, he practices what he preaches. So this is I not mean, the story that they want to report on. But 
I, I do know that certain Democratic candidates running for office took their sweet time letting their staffers unionize. Well, again, I would challenge a little bit the language on that because we we actually wouldn't want a candidate to push unionization on their employees, right? Because then that could be an employer union, like a boss union. That's not a good thing. So there are probably some campaigns where workers took six months to decide what union they wanted to go with, right? So it isn't always as simple as saying uh, a boss is like whoever is unionized first or last might not be as relevant as it would appear to a layperson because maybe the workers were kind of in a debate about it or maybe they just didn't have enough staff to feel like they were comfortable making that decision yet. They wanted to have more staff hired on. You know, there's so many factors that go into play. So I, I, I'm more concerned with the material conditions of a campaign than I am a little bit with the timing of it. You know, um, I think every presidential candidate has, has recognized their union. So I think that that's, that's kind of the first step. And then I would be more concerned with, you know, what are the workers being paid? What are their hours? Are they getting health insurance? How dangerous is it to first? be a campaign staffer, campaign worker, campaign volunteer? We hear all the time of volunteers and staffers being killed in car accidents, mm-hmm. using their own cars, not being reimbursed. Mm-hmm. How dangerous? How much of a sacrifice do these candidates ask of their volunteers and their staffers? I would say quite a bit. And that is something that is still not being addressed very much. I mean, it's still very typical to say, okay, you know, the primary in the state is over. You need to be across the country in 48 hours here. You know, here's a rental car. Hopefully it's a rental car, but often it'll be their own car, you know, get there. And so the campaign workers are supposed to just, you know, stock up on Red Bull and drive across the country. That is very, very typical. Um, You know, hopefully a lot of them put them on flights, but either way, you know, and, and, you know, snowy New Hampshire right now, we both know that everyone is out knocking on doors and driving in terrible conditions. That is and very Iowa. much the norm. And Iowa. And Iowa, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely it. There's also just the long-term, I think, health impacts of working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, the lack of sleep, the absolutely terrible diet, the amounts of stress that that puts on people, you know, no time to go to the doctor, no, much less no time for therapy if folks are attending fit therapy. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it, like much less a sick day, right? It's mm-hmm. just a culture of work, 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 um, you know, because anything you could possibly do to harm the candidate, you shouldn't do, right? If you take a sick day, that might be the reason your candidate loses. That's not actually really grounded in reality, but that's the culture that is keeping people in these unfortunate conditions. Yeah, and it's so much like Hollywood because you're essentially signing on to fly-by-night operations. You don't know how long these campaigns are going to last. You Mm -hmm. you know, the the candidate can drop out any minute, and it's kind of like working on a television show. And so the the candidates, the campaigns are like subcontractors. The same way a television producer who has a show that's on ABC that is owned by Disney, you're not working for Disney if you're working on a television show that's on ABC that is owned by Disney. You're not working for ABC. You're not working for Disney. You're working for a subcontractor who's a producer who may or may not have an agreement with the union that you want to belong to. Mm -hmm. And you can't 
If something happens to you on the job, you don't sue ABC, you don't sue Disney, you have to sue your producer, who's a fly-by-night. He, he may be, he may disappear, and he may have five different companies himself. So, you know, one of those companies will go bankrupt, and good luck going after his, his personal fortune. Seems like that's how the Democratic Party has uh, hidden their wealth from the campaign staffers. I mean, I think, not to like both sides it, but I think any political party, of which there are really essentially two right now, they do have an interesting operation, you know, either way, whether it's the Republicans or Democrats, when it comes time to, you know, have an up and down the ballot measure campaign in fall, they have coordinated campaigns where essentially campaign staffers from one campaign are are essentially loaned out to other campaigns, right? But they're paid by the original one, but they're doing the work of the second and, and it all gets very muddled and, and that happens, you know, every other year. And so that's exactly that where, you know, who actually is your boss? You might have your actual supervisor who day to day tells you what to do, but they're not technically your boss. Your boss is someone on another campaign. So it does get really messy and it does really lead to a, a culture of sort of just, just suck it up until it's over with because it's too messy and too bureaucratic and too chaotic to deal with. We've been talking with Megan Riley. She's the president of the Campaign Workers Guild was formed in 2017 so staffers across the country could bargain for higher compensation, better health insurance, and stronger policies regarding sexual harassment. Why did you decide to become president of the Campaign Workers Guild? Is there a personal story? The, the personal story is mostly that I care about the the you know, opportunity for campaign workers to have better working conditions. I, I believe in the material impact that, that makes. So for me, I worked on campaigns, um, back in 2016. And now this is really wanna, where I want to turn my energy. I think long term, you know, we can make a big difference. I think even in the past two or three years, we've already seen a really big difference. A few years ago, I don't think we would have seen the coverage we have seen on the working conditions of candidates, not just on the presidential trail, but there's been a lot of really interesting local stories and local, local, you know, exposés about what campaign workers are making or what a union contract covers or what kind of bad actions their candidate is taking as a, as an anti-union boss. And so, I'm really interested in, and the rest of the leadership of the CWG is really interested in that long-term vision and how to change this culture over time. Yeah, one of the great things about our caucuses and our primary system is on a granular level, you can get insight into how the candidate will run the Oval Office. You get to see Mm -hmm. his strategies and his tactics and how he views a ground game, whether or not he's able to delegate responsibility, whether or not he leads from behind, what kind of leader he's going to be. That's why Iowa is so important. It tells you how the candidate governs. The way he runs that campaign is a leading indicator of what kind of president he or she will be. So the fact that some of these candidates treat their workers properly and some don't, that is germane to the conversation. And it's not being covered this go round because Bernie, because Bernie is good to his workers. That's why. What 
campaigns have signed on to the Campaign Workers Guild? What campaigns are associated with the Campaign Workers Guild? So for presidential campaigns, we wrapped Julian Castro workers. Uh, he obviously has withdrawn from the race. We currently represent the Andrew Yang workers as well. And, and are you allowed to tell me what that contract includes? Like, what are your demands? What have you, what has he agreed to? Uh, I can't speak on that for Yang yet, but when it comes out, I'd be happy to talk about it more. What, what do you mean? So, um, you know, when we are finished with negotiations, we always are, you know, send out press releases and talk about it to the media and, and are really eager to talk about what's in a contract. But before negotiations are done, you know, we we mostly work on that in-house. So he so there is no contract yet. It's in negotiations. OK. What happens if he drops out before he agrees to the contract? Um, that really has depended on the past and in a lot of factors. It depends on any other agreements that the candidates may have reached. It depends on what it looks like in terms of um, like fundraising or in terms of organizing right from the workers. So I really can't say and I wouldn't speak to what's going on on the Yang presidential campaign. I, I understand. More interested in speaking on the broader issues. I, I understand. And on the broader issues, it is conceivable that a candidate can agree in in principle to a union contract, but then take their time negotiating and make sure they're viable before they agree to it. Correct? Uh, I suppose that's conceivable. You know, I think that probably could happen. Yeah, um, that's definitely not necessarily the case here. Right. I'm not talking about uh, any specific candidates, but it would be helpful if the Democratic Party had some guidelines that maybe when you declare your candidacy, you immediately have to start negotiating with the union and get a contract going? Wouldn't that, shouldn't that come from the top? You know, I think that would be fantastic, whether it was sort of an outline of here are the standards your campaign should meet. Here's a salary floor. Here's the type of health insurance, you know, either that or something related to unionization. I mean, there are contracts that can cover like multi-employer contracts, you know, so that's that's something we've thought about as sort of a, a an ideal. I think that'd be really fantastic. Will any party, you know, be able to achieve something like that and all agree on it together is a different question. So I think for now we're we're working on it, you know, from do, from the workers bottom up. But any have, support from the Do campaigns have a human resources department? Do most campaigns have a a H and R person who you can go to to complain about sexual harassment? Uh, presidentials, yes. I would say anything, you know, quote-unquote lower than presidentials, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's an actual HR person. Usually there's either someone who is sort of the default person who handles payroll who maybe you're supposed to go to, right, but they might have other roles. It might be like an operations manager. On some campaigns, they sort of contract that out. And on some, some campaigns, there's nothing at all. You know, mm-hmm. so overall, I would say, that's big, one of the big issues with sexual harassment on campaigns is that there hasn't been a clear person that you actually go to for this. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, a, a general observation. You know, the Romanovs never saw, saw it coming. They were surrounded by obsequious people who just told them everything is great. 
that's what the Democratic Party is like right now. They're kind of like the Romanovs. They just can't see how disgruntled 99% of the American people are. They don't see it. And when you watch the the debates or watch the impeachment trial, you, you begin to realize how out of touch. I mean, you expect the Republicans to be out of touch. I don't think the Democrats, except for Bernie, understand how deeply out of touch they are with the voters. The fact that the Democratic Party, the party of the worker, could treat its own workers this poorly and get away with it, they are the Romanovs. They don't see the revolution that's coming. Well, Meg Riley is president of the Campaign Workers Guild. And for more information, people should go to campaignworkersguild.org if you are a volunteer or a staffer and you'd like to start a union talk to meg riley she is reasonable and uh not angry like me and she can get the job done unlike me i i I can be angry i'm generally more anti-boss angry but uh, i appreciate you calling me reasonable and thank you so much for having me no you you speak volumes to what what we need we don't need people i'm an agitator i'm just angry I'm just pissed off. I could see you negotiating a contract. You're measured and you know what you want. You're not a flamethrower. No, I can hear. I can see you. You're not. You know exactly what you want. You want a contract for campaign workers and campaign staffers. That's it. And and that sums it up. If you know exactly what you want, you don't need to shout and scream. You don't want somebody like me going into the <laughs> to negotiate with you because I would make it all about my theatrics and look at what a great person I am, everybody. I'm passionate. Yeah, I know, but we, we, we didn't get the contract. I know, but I made some really good points in that meeting. Did yeah, 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 but we're not a union. We didn't. It takes union. all kinds, David. <laughs> no, no. I, you don't want me uh, anywhere near the Campaign Workers Guild, but everybody, try, I, 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 I'm, I I would trust you to negotiate for me anytime. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. That's an honor. Campaignworkersguild.org. Which side are you on? Stay on the line, Meg Riley. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Here's the latest on the coronavirus. The death toll in China has now passed 600, and the total number of confirmed cases in China has risen to 31,161. Wuhan province is rounding up infected patients and placing them in quarantine camps. And the Chinese doctor who first drew attention to the virus has now died from it. For more on this, we are joined by Timothy Ulrich, a reporter for CGTN, China Global Television Network. And he joins us today from Beijing. Welcome. Well, thank you. Great to be on there, David. There's been a mass quarantine in Wuhan that seems to be the center of the outbreak. What is going on in Beijing? Is there a sense that this is spreading and it's under control or... How frightened are you personally? 
what I'm hearing from other people is the worst thing that you can do is freak out about it. But uh, me and my girlfriend, we're counting our masks. We only have a limited supply of what are N95 masks. And these are these are the masks that block the uh, coronavirus, the, the germs that can be tr- uh, transmitted to you. And you can't buy them online anymore. You know, I've, I've gone to... I've gone to pharmacies and they say, we don't even have thermometers. We don't, we don't have, I, I asked for gloves at several pharmacies a couple of days ago and they were like, no, we don't even have, uh, disposable gloves. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, walking on the wire here. Are most of the cases confined to Wuhan or are you seeing more and more in Beijing? Well, so about 90% of the cases are still located in the province of Wuhan is in Hubei. Uh, and there are a growing number of cases. It's not like a startling, uh, staggering figure, but certainly there, there are cases here. So people are taking precautions, uh, wearing, Wearing masks, of course, to go out, washing their hands frequently, hopefully, and uh, just staying indoors. Really, that's the biggest thing. How would you describe Beijing right now? Would you? Is it a ghost town? Are people out in the street going to restaurants? It's well, ooh, restaurants aren't even open now. Like, there's a lot of restaurants that are just shut down. This comes after uh, Chinese New Year. Which, um, if you're in Beijing during Chinese New Year, there's nobody out on the streets, especially New Year's Eve that day. There's nobody there. And I'd compare it to that where you, you can walk around the streets, you can go to Tiananmen Square and there's nobody there. But that's for, not because you know, of the virus. That's just because of the time of year. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'd say that that's, that's a kind of the comparable number of people outside to what's going on now is to two weeks ago when people were going outside of the city to go home. You know, that's what it's like now. I, uh, I'm a little confused. So are you saying that there is panic or there isn't panic in Beijing? Well, I'd say, I mean, it's not visible, right? Because that's the whole thing about uh, that, that monolithic idea of face is that people aren't necessarily going to show that they're freaking out, but I'm, I'm sure that there's undercurrents of some, some concerns going on, but you don't see, like I saw a video go viral on Twitter, uh, at least a week ago, uh, these people just, uh, grabbing sacks of rice and fighting over sacks of rice. I mean, that's not something that I see when I go to the supermarket. That might be, you know, a sale or whatever, but that's certainly not happening where people are not, you know, stockpiling at the at the supermarkets and grabbing as much as they can. Mm-hmm. American businesses in China are shutting down. Flights out of China have been curtailed, if not completely ended. How bad could this get? Worst case scenario. Oh, wow. I don't really want to think about that. Worst case scenario, it's the, it's that preppers, doomsday prepper scenario, right? Um, really though, at the end of the day, when it comes 
to this this level of epidemic, I I really do feel as though there's some um, there's some level of oversight that could step in and uh, and and at least prevent that doomsday scenario from happening. I mean, we're talking about um, a country that built a a thousand person hospital, a thousand bed hospital in six days. Uh, Just, just try to think about that on the scale in America. Yeah. Uh, Would that, would that ever happen? I mean, that's something that it just, it just boggles the mind to, to people in the West and and me as well, where you hear about these, um, I mean, the deployment, the mobilization of, of people attempting to at least address the situation in a way that's, that's, uh, proactive, conducive to the situation. Well, the World Health Organization is going to meet next week to focus on treatment, how to diagnose the virus and come up with a vaccine. Do we have a vaccine yet? And do we know exactly how this virus is transmitted? Uh, from what I'm hearing, the vaccine, that's uh, that's something that takes months. We don't we don't actually know how quickly that would be available and be able to be sent out to the field effectively. I mean, so a couple of years ago, there was that Ebola, that major Ebola outbreak that reached, uh, I believe there was a case in Texas that was pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe this was, uh, when was this, 2015, 2014. Yeah, Obama was, Obama was president, and as I recall, I remember dropping to my knees and being grateful we had a president who believed in science and you know the it didn't spread we had people on top of it but we have a president right now who thinks the answer is what find out how to make money off this well right and you have uh steve munichin or sorry not wilbur ross wilbur ross wilbur ross coming out and saying that it'll it'll bring jobs back to america kind of a a messed up thing to say at the height of a of a what what the World Health Organization is calling a global pandemic or epidemic rather. Uh, it's just just a wild thing to say, and obviously it is being seen as kind of a cash grab. From that's this, how that from this. That's how this party, the Republicans, view climate change. They view everything through the prism of the Chinese proverb. Crisis is opportunity. You see a crisis, there's an opportunity to make money. If the planet is eating up, there's there are <laughs> land grabs to be had. So this you is sell bunkers, right? Yeah, that's that's how they see it. So, <laughs> do they know how it's spread? Well, the 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 spread of it is, uh, at least from what I've been hearing, it's been that. Uh, it, like how the flu spreads essentially uh, through through water droplets, and that's why they're saying that masks are so effective in in uh, in at least trying to stop the spread, the contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, really, though, I mean, until until further studies are done, I I wouldn't be comfortable on saying that that, that it's absolutely one thing or another. But given that it's a coronavirus. Uh, a family of viruses like the common cold and the flu 
it, it should be similar to that type of transmission. We're seeing a fatality rate of about 4.1% in Wuhan province. Are they sending in doctors into Wuhan? Is this a military operation other than the confinement? Oh, yes. How do they treat these people? How many people did you say live in Wuhan? Uh, well, so the containment zone is about 33 million people. And I mean, that's, <laughs> that's China numbers for you. Right. Um, so they mobilized the, the People's Liberation Army to these, to these hospitals. They were, um, they were delivering supplies. They were taking part in, uh, quarantining, uh, it, taking part in the quarantine and isolation operations, which is really what's key to this. They've, um, I mean, Chinese officials, they were on the front line dealing with the SARS pandemic in 2003, 2004. And so they, they know that this is, this is the key step to, um, identify, isolate, quarantine. And that's, uh, that's what they're doing right now. That's why they're building uh, this one hospital that was built in six days and another one, which um, in the same city of Wuhan, I'm not too sure how quickly they have built or will be building it, but it's, it's relatively in that same range. You know, a lot of people uh, said during the bird flu epidemic in China that it could be a threat to the Communist Party the same way Chernobyl was a threat to the Russian Communist Party, that the people will turn on the government if they can't provide the, the resources necessary. Are we seeing uh, protests in Hong Kong right now, or has, has that died down because of the virus? Well, no, more protests are taking place because of fears that uh, the... Uh, the Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam is not doing enough, not closing the borders and, and sealing themselves off from the mainland, from the Chinese mainland. Um, as for the, are, are we thing, seeing I mean, the level, Timothy, are we seeing the level of protests in Hong Kong that we saw before the outbreak? Or do people think maybe we should, maybe we should take it easy here for a second. Let, let the, the government you know, let them deal with this epidemic first before we get back to our political rights? There's certainly been an increase, but I don't know if that's the um that's the correct measurement because after the uh the, the local um what's that called local council elections the, the protests seem to have simmered down and became more of a smaller number and now they're coming Back up. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that they were at that level before those elections took place, though. I, I actually would uh, have no idea about those numbers. But from what I'm seeing, at least on on my Twitter feeds and and whatnot, they're not as high. The biggest thing in Hong Kong is the uh, the the healthcare workers who are going on strike. So that's the, that's the biggest thing there. But going back, why to are they the, going uh, on strike? Uh, because they they say that Carrie Lam, the chief executive, is not doing enough to address the government of Hong Kong is not doing enough to address the issue, uh, not necessarily with the borders, 
but also with uh, overtime pay, uh, mm-hmm. supplies, those types of those types of issues. How you how common is it to see workers going on strike in mainland China? Wow. Um, well, that's a topic for another day. That's a complex, complex issue. But um, at least you can see a, a glimpse of it from Hong Kong. And I, I'd say that, that Hong Kong's a lot more readily available. Uh, they're more readily free to express that without fear of direct retaliation. Right. And do you find that when there's a crisis like this, the years more more pronounced government I, I want to be careful here because uh, you are in Beijing. Would you say the government is keeping an eye on the media during a crisis more than they would when it's business as usual? You know, there's a there's a New York Times article by Maria. I'm going to murder this name, Repnikova. And uh, it's about the investigative journalism work that's been going on on the ground in in the in the Chinese mainland. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was actually one recommendation by the World Health Organization kind of summarizing what happened after SARS, which was, yes, you need transparency, but you also need people to be able to report on this actively. And I, I would like to believe that within the first, uh, within the first phase of this, of this outbreak, that's what happened. Um, recently there has been some curtailing. There's been, um, more, more measures taken to, um, enhance what the central government is calling the, the, uh, Ceasing the spread of rumors, mm-hmm. uh, because obviously with, with, uh, something such as this, a crisis such as this, there will be a lot of rumors spreading. And that's, uh, that's something that they're wanting to combat. Right. Right. We have President Trump that's- who we can't trust. I mean, he told us nobody got injured when the Iranians uh, launched a retaliatory strike after the assassination of General Soleimani. And now we're discovering that something like close to 50 Americans in Iraq had to be transported to Germany because of concussions. <clears throat> so we have a president who won't tell us the truth and <clears throat> tells us not to panic. You're a reporter in, in Beijing. Uh, would you say you're free to write whatever you want? Well, again, this isn't my scope. I'm not necessarily a domestic reporter. I'm more focused on the on the international world. What's going on in Iran? What's going on in Libya? Uh, you name it, Venezuela. These these areas of the world that I would can I would consider myself more familiar with. Um, Right, and the China, I'm, I'm you not, work for China Global Television Network. That would be the equivalent of, say, uh, RT, Russian Television. Is that fair? Or the BBC? Is that a fair analogy? I, I would, um, wow, I'd put it more in terms of Al Jazeera, 
uh, in between Al Jazeera and BBC. That's a pretty good uh, place to be. Those are good news organizations. Al they Jazeera, are. Al Jazeera they are. is terrific. And, and okay, before you go, and I guess we'll hopefully you'll be able to do this uh, more often. We've never had somebody reporting to us from Beijing. Medical care in China, vis-a-vis America. How does it <laughs> how does it compare? If you get sick, you're an American citizen, correct? Yes, correct. Okay, you get sick in China. Copays, deductibles, what happens? It's it's subsidized by the government. It's not it's not universal health care, which would be ideal for any country. But there, the costs of health care here are dramatically lower than what's in the U.S. And the the level of care is is somewhat comparable. Uh, depending on where you go. Uh, my go-to is an international clinic. I'm, I'm covered by my health insurance. I don't pay anything out of pocket. I when you say you're covered by your health there. insurance, are you talking about an American health insurance company or Chinese? It's, um, I'm not too sure about that. It's for international workers, so I assume there's, there's based somewhere else. Possibly is it even through CGTN? Is it employer-based insurance, or is it part of a national? It's employer-based. It's employer-based in China, and employer-based for international workers. If you were a Chinese citizen, you would have a different health insurance, right? Uh, that's correct. But I also I also pay into that system as well, which is kind of a relatively new measure where I pay. Into uh, um, it's called the the welfare system. Um, it's, it covers maternity, rent, uh, uh, sorry, housing rather, uh, health insurance. What do you mean housing? You. Housing that's associated with healthcare or just housing in general? Uh, it's more like improvements. If you're seeking to do improvements on your house, it's that's why I don't really get that benefit because I don't own a home in Beijing because I'm not a billionaire. Uh, (laughs) Hang on on for one second. Hang on for one second. So if you were a Chinese citizen living in Beijing, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. need health insurance. You would just automatically have health care. No, no. So that, that is, is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a insurance saving, I'm not entirely sure how it works, but it seems to be that uh, there's some like matching that's done. Like you put in three RMB, they put in one or something like that. I've actually never had to use it, but it, it seems to play into the the savings aspect of this. And this is what is is very different from uh, from the average American to the average Chinese person is that here saving is instrumental because of things like unexpected healthcare payments, uh, you know, things like that that could pop up overnight that you might not expect. You're saying Chinese citizens have to save money for health emergencies? Yeah, I mean, that's that number, the, the savings of Chinese citizens has dropped over the years due to, due to various, uh, various factors. But, uh, for the most part, like if you want to have a good life, you you own a house, you have good savings, you own a car, 
Uh, and that's just something that's not afforded to the, um, to the average American citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead it's, it's just credit card debt. That's your, that's your savings. Really that, that, that pitfall of living in America. And as an American citizen, if you wandered into an emergency room in Beijing, you would be treated. They wouldn't do the wallet biopsy, as they call it. What's that like? Do you fear getting sick in Beijing? I honestly don't. Um, as long as I walk into a hospital that accepts my insurance. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest thing, and most, most hospitals do. I'm really not not worried about even like an ambulance cost, which I know that most Americans are. Yeah, that that's over ten grand. You know that that if it's an emergency situation and my insurance deems it as such, then I wouldn't be paying for that. I wouldn't be footing the bill for that. I see. I see. Is it fun to live in Beijing if you're an American citizen? What do you do for a good time? Oh. Well, um, can you misbehave? I love adventuring. Can you misbehave in Beijing? Uh, recently, not so much, but yeah, you can still be rambunctious and have a good drunkard night, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me, I like going out to the countryside, um, just outside of Beijing. I mean, Beijing is a huge city. It's about the size of the Netherlands, the, the area of it. It's about the size of the Netherlands. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool areas in the mountains. Um, I just ride my motorcycle up there. I just go and see, you know, what's going on in this part or, you know, what's going on in this town. And, uh, to me, Beijing and China as a whole, uh, it's always been that there's an adventure right around the corner for me. All I have to do is find a way to get out there and boom, there it is. Are there traffic jams in Beijing? I've read that. There are jams where you, you know, park your car in a traffic jam and then leave the car, go get married, raise a family, come back (laughs) to the car and move a few inches and then leave the traffic. I mean, I've heard that there are traffic jams that just never end. It seems like that. Um, I don't drive a car all too often in China. So I wouldn't know in particular. Uh, when it comes to sitting, uh, city planning, there's a, a, a lot to be desired, let's say that. But I just drive a scooter, so I can just do whatever I want. If I want to drive down the sidewalk, if I want to go into the opposing lane, if I want to just zip between cars, I can do that. Okay. So, if- but there are some pretty horrific uh, intersections that I can think of off the top of my head that are just, you know, if I was stuck in that intersection during rush hour traffic, let's say that it would just be, yeah, I could get out of my car and go and eat at McDonald's, come back and not have moved an inch. <laughs> right. Right. And what does a Big Mac, I, I don't eat at McDonald's. I'm a vegan, but what does a Big Mac cost? In uh, in China, just under five bucks. I'd say about four thirty. Oh, so that's expensive. Yeah, yeah. For I mean, I could eat a way better meal for that. What do you mean? Four dollars and thirty cents. So, 
you know, overall, if you eat a Big Mac every day versus if you cook for yourself at home every day, obviously it'd be way cheaper. But I'm just talking about prices in Beijing. Is is it an expensive city the way New York is? That's what they say. But honestly, I mean, the rent here is comparable to where I'm from in Denver. You know, you're paying, uh, let's say, five hundred dollars a month for a one bedroom. Okay. That's about what I'm paying. And where's it easier to breathe, Denver or Beijing? <laughs> where where are you more likely getting, to be gasping for oxygen, Denver or Beijing? It's getting better here. It um, is. Despite, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, nothing's nothing's comparable to Denver, as you might know, but. You know, it is, it is getting better here compared to where it was, I'd say about three, four years ago when that, uh, what was it? The air apocalypse was going on. Yeah. Yeah. What's the comedy scene like in Beijing? Uh, I'm sure that there's some open mics that you could come in, uh, you know, go to and blow the socks off of people here. Uh, is there a comedy scene? Not like professional comedians coming and going. That's more like, you know, they they go to Japan for that. But here it's like a, you know, very amateur open mic type of expats complaining about China type of feel. So it would be. Oh, so it's English speaking comedians. But are there Chinese comedians doing stand up? It's becoming more popular. There's a. There's a, a show that's, uh, it's gaining popularity. It's this, it's this guy who was really influenced by American comedy and he wanted to bring it to China because in China, there's a very different type of, type of comedy. It's like, uh, two guys at the front of the room doing kind of like a, I wouldn't really call it a three stooges type thing, but it's a lot of like wordplay, uh, kind of like a, a two person airplane type of situation. You know, airplane, the movie. Yes. Yes. Kind of like that, a uh, little bit of slapstick, I think. I can't tell. <laughs> Any political but satire? Foo. Yes and no. Okay. Is that the name you of the comedy team, Yes and No? Yes and No, are they the biggest political satirists in China? No, just no. Oh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's what they're called. But you have to be a little bit more. Uh, I've noticed a lot with uh, social media here. You have to be a little bit more discreet, a little bit more um, uh, nuanced, let's say. So I'm sure it exists. I, I, I really do, especially um, I've, I've noticed. What a, okay, so one of my favorite bands here is called The White Paper. It's just this uh, local local band, kind of like punkish. But they do some some edgy stuff politically that you wouldn't think that you'd be able to get away with if you were in Beijing, if you were a Beijing-based band. Mm-hmm. And they do. They they do a lot of very, very politically edgy, politically charged. Um, obviously, you if you're there and you're in the experience, you can understand what they're what they're saying, what their message is. Um, very brave bunch. They've been around since for like ten years, so they're obviously doing fine. But you know that's where it is. It's it's not out in the open. It's not like some some big hoo ha event with spotlights in downtown. You know, who, come and see hoo-ha? the hoo ha. I've never heard of hoo ha. Who? Are, I'm sorry. I'm just. Kidding. It's a TikTok. 
He's on TikTok, ah, David. You need to get on TikTok to. <laughs> I'm just. What's the most delicious meal you've had in Beijing? Oh, uh, I don't really eat good food in Beijing. I'm sorry, David. My favorite type of food in China. Let's expand the scope out a bit. China is from Chongqing.、I'm、Chongqing、sure. is a city. Chongqing.、Yeah. It's a city of 30 million people that you've never heard of. It's like Wuhan. You know, nobody heard about Wuhan. Right. Nobody's heard about Chongqing. It's technically the largest city in the world. People think that you know it has the largest population in the world as well.、Uh, but the most amazing food. Like I've never thought that I would like eating cow dick. I'm sorry. It's great. What? Cow dick, David. You gotta have. You gotta try some cow dick. Have you? Have you ever just looked at a cow and been like, you know, I bet that dick is tasty.、Um, Are you okay, serious? Okay, so Chongqing food, right? Are you yeah, serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, well, hold it, hold it. In Chongqing, you're talking about bull. I, I don't think cows have dicks, do they? You, you, like, Sorry, it's the same word in Chinese. I, I kind of slip up on that a bit.、Uh, yes, bull penis. <laughs> What does it taste like? It's, a, it's more about the texture, you know. It's a bit, it's a bit spongy.、Uh, the the way that you eat it is. Do you know what hot pot is? Do I have to explain hot pot? No, this is、it's、the、like、best part of the show. Hang on for one second. Slow down because this is the best part of the show. So. <laughs> How do you serve cow dick? On a platter.、Uh-huh. What you do is you 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 pick it up and you dip it in the simmering broth in the center of the table.、Uh, just the broth is in this massive pot.、Uh, there's a bunch of in Chongqing. It's very spicy. A lot of what's called Sichuan pepper, which makes your mouth very tingly and numb.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you and you dip it in that. Now, how big is how big is it? It's pretty small, like、um, I don't know about the size of a thumb. The cat. A what? What? A bull?、Size. A bull's penis is that small? Well, at least that's what、uh, that's what they're cutting the slices up to be. You know, something a bit edible. I don't actually know how big a a bull's penis is. I haven't really checked and looked at one, but maybe you know, you're not getting a bull, bull penis. Maybe maybe it's. Otter penis. I mean,、uh, are you sure, David? I can I can taste a bull penis from a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like my sister. <laughs> oh man, do you have your sound your soundboard today?、Uh, yeah, but I didn't. I, I thought we were going to do a serious. Int- I mean, you're a legitimate journalist, Timothy. <laughs> I have to show you respect.、Uh, okay. I'm also a very big foodie. Um, okay, so hot pot, like they gotta have a lot in New York City, right? That's where you're at. But、how、I'm, far you, I'm f- vegetarian. I'm vegan. I can, you know. Well, there's my old boss was vegetarian, vegan. We used to go to hot pot all the time. They just make a simple mushroom broth. You just eat vegetables. You don't have to eat the cow dick, I guess, because you're boring.、Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you just don't want it. I don't, I don't get it, man. Like, what's not appealing about a bull's penis? Well, I'll eat it, but I won't eat it. If you know what I mean. Like, I'll <laughs> okay, go off、okay. in the corner as long as the bull is still alive. I have no problem 
eating. But okay. Well, I mean, do you have? So I would assume there's tofu. I would say. I mean, what 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 are the sources of protein? I guess a source of protein would be eating bull dick while he's still alive. But you have to eat it with your tongue, and then the protein comes. But uh, oh boy. I can't believe this is the problem with my show. I try to do a serious interview with you. I'm talking to a reporter from China Global Television Network, and it's devolved into this. All right. Let's face it. I've listened to your show too much. I know how this works. So I just went straight for the bull penis. Um, okay. Favorite food from Chongqing, though. It's called Xiaomian. And it's a, it's a wheat a what? Buckwheat noodle dish. Yeah. It's a noodle dish. Made from the vagina of the buckwheat, right? No, guys can't eat vagina. God, haven't you been paying attention? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. Let's keep this serious. <laughs> All right. You'll come back for Tuesday's show? Want to do this? Um, okay. We'll see what's in the, we'll see what's in the schedule for me there. Okay. If the coronavirus were not in the news, what would we be talking about coming out of China? What would the big story uh, be? Well, I, I would just be yelling to you about Iowa right now. Did China target Iowa? Or are they going to be targeting Iowa because of the tariffs? That's what I read. Do you have any... Uh, do you know of any... There's a lot of soybean farmers in, in Iowa. Yeah. Right. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're targeting them, nor just hitting them where it hurts. Well, the, 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 the story, there's, there are rumors that the Chinese government will be targeting Iowa politically to get even with Trump. Interesting. It's not really a swing state. It's a bit too late for them to target it. Okay. All right. Tim- <sighs> Timothy Ulrich. Is a reporter for, or was a reporter for China. We'll see how this goes down in Beijing. Timothy Ulrich is an American citizen working in Beijing. He's a reporter for China Global Television Network, and he has been talking to us from Beijing, China. Pretty cool. First time we've ever had anybody report to us from Beijing. Thank you. Hopefully we'll talk to you on Tuesday's show. Can you stay on the line for one second? Sure thing. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is standing by. She is a professor at the University of Arizona, an animal behaviorist who teaches animal conservation. Her two books are Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. Her other book is... Raised by Animals, the surprising new science of animal family dynamics with try-at-home lessons from the wild. She has a YouTube channel, 
Wild Connection TV. Subscribe. Go to JenniferVerdelin.com. Sign up for her newsletter. Get her writings and other interesting science delivered directly into your box. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Thank you. How are you feeling? I am, uh, you know, I can't laugh too hard. I start coughing, and this has been going on for about six weeks. Other than that, I feel lousy. How are you feeling? <laughs> well, my, my cough finally uh, mostly went away just a few days ago, so I, I completely empathize with this lingering sickness that uh, that you're experiencing, and hopefully it will it will continue to clear up. Drink a lot of water. Now, this virus coming to us from Wuhan, how frightened should we be? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Uh, so, so I think that there's been a lot of backlash, like, oh, don't panic, don't panic, stop panicking. And I think there's a difference between panicking and healthy concern. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the, that one shouldn't panic, but one should be aware and be concerned because we know relatively little about this particular virus. And I think that we don't necessarily have full and complete counts of the number of people ill, uh, the, the death rate that is, that is currently happening and that may be expected to happen. And, you know, one of the good I guess pieces of information um, so far is that there doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of evidence that it's mutated, which RNA viruses, which this one is, can do relatively quickly because they're like texting without autocorrect. The RNA Uh, virus, that's the messenger for the DNA? Right. So they don't have RNA viruses don't have DNA and DNA is sort of the editing tool, right? It, it, it cleans up mistakes that happen in replication, whereas RNA doesn't have that. It just replicates. And so there can be to- loads of typos, if you will, making the analogy to, uh, to lacking autocorrect mm-hmm. in your, in your, uh, texting or, or other, uh, software that you might use. And so, so that lends itself to rapid mutations. And, uh, but that doesn't seem to have occurred, at least from what I've read up until this point. I think in terms of, of worry, it's just, uh, you know, people definitely, I think can be concerned because oftentimes people who are sick go out and they sneeze and cough all over everybody and, and that's the uh, only and, and, reason to get sick <laughs> is to spread well, the spread it. Well, maybe the virus compels people to go outside and I don't know uh, any virus, not that one in particular. Right. But I so think they're that, saying there are about twenty eight thousand cases in China so far that we know of correct. and about five hundred and sixty to six hundred deaths that we know of. They've locked down Wuhan. Correct. We really can't trust the Chinese government to be truthful the same way we can't trust Donald Trump not to be truthful. This is why we need leadership that has gravitas and credibility. When they say don't panic, uh, why shouldn't we panic? First of all, is it, when you get diagnosed with the coronavirus, is it a death sentence? Apparently not. It can be treated, right? 
Well, so it's treated in much the same way that the flu is treated in the sense that it's support, right? So many folks have experienced mild symptoms, <clears throat> just just like when you get the flu, um, you know, there's really not much you can do. You can make sure you have fluids, you rest, you you control for fever, and and the big worry is if you get pneumonia. Right. And and that's very similar to this situation. I think one of the things that, you know, is concerning is we currently have leadership that just doesn't even understand basic science. Right. And reduce the response of the CDC through cutting positions and funding. So we might be a bit shorthanded in really dealing with things. And since sometimes people are more concerned about the economy, they might withhold information (laughs) if they think it will negatively impact, uh, you know, the economy. I don't know that any of that is happening. What I do know is that it's very interesting that we're not supposed to panic. And yet there's a, you know, level four response. And I believe I was reading that the Chinese government was criticizing the overreaction of other countries, but they're the ones who placed an entire city of 60 million people under lockdown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty serious. If we're not supposed to be even mildly concerned, then why is that happening? Right. And I think that you said something incredibly important, which is we, we only have the information that we have. We don't know what the true values are. Uh, we don't know what the, you know, what the implications will be in terms of the the global issue. It's not li- risen to the level of a pandemic at this point. We only have 12 confirmed cases. We're getting, I think, less and less information because there's an attempt to control the, the emotional response that people have. But I'm not sure that that's the best strategy. Right. I think that being transparent and reassuring people while still saying there's a lot we don't know. So it's not to attack people who you think might be sick. Um, right? right. But, but I think if you are sick, then you have a responsibility regardless of this virus or any other to avoid people and yes. wear a mask so that you don't cough on everybody. So the the idea of the mask is really not to protect you from getting a virus, but from spreading it. Right, right. But but now we have that situation in New York City where that poor woman who was wearing a mask, we don't know if she was sick or not sick. Maybe she was just trying uh, to rob a bank. Well, <laughs> Something as harmless yeah. as that. Right, it could have been. And so um so now what with all the fear and and that kind of outrageousness that 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 person displayed against her people who might be sick and who would have normally protected others might be afraid to acknowledge that they're sick and this is just foolishness so i think having a healthy awareness paying attention demanding transparency from uh, our government and that of others and delivering information in a timely manner so that people can make decisions about how to protect themselves with correct factual information is crucial. And that gets, I think, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of, uh, side, sidetracked or, or derailed by behavior of, of some individuals being, being, uh, destructive, ridiculous, over the top, panicked, paranoid, 
and, and, and that doesn't benefit any of us. Right. So it seems to have a 10% mortality rate. It's spreading mostly from China to Japan. Japan seems to be getting the, 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 the brunt of it than Thailand. The symptoms, and by the way, it mostly affects middle-aged men the worst. <clears throat> and these are, <clears throat> these are the symptoms, uh, 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 headache, <clears throat> sore throat, muscle ache, shortness of breath, cough, confusion. Got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> Don't need it. Got it, got it, and uh, a fever. So right. I've got it. If I don't have it, I've got it psychosomatically. So what about that? The power of suggestion? Because all I'm missing is a fever. The other right. stuff I have. Well, you have that from a cold you, you're recovering from. Yeah, and it's I called think- my birth. I, I'm still recovering <laughs> from leaving the warmth of the amniotic sac. But, uh, well, 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 first I want to sort of uh, ask a question about where the 10% death rate came from, because my understanding was if we've got about 28,000 and, and we have 560-plus recorded deaths confirmed, that's about 2% right now. Right. So right. it could I'm, change. I'm looking but, at the BBC, and that's what oh, they say. Oh, okay. Okay. So. so so then that's new information that I, I no, 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 no. Uh, you know what? I should double-check here. At least ten percent of the people brought into a hospital died. Oh, so, okay. Well, okay. that makes sense. Yes. Well, so so the trouble is, right? Thank you, you for calling. Have- Thank you, by the way, for uh, calling me on it. This is the danger of getting news from comedy writers. By the way. <laughs> well, it could also be uh, the danger of how things are worded in news media that that confuse people and so so the fact that this came up is important to clarify so that other people who might read the same article yes aren't aren't confused about the numbers but the tricky thing is that all of those symptoms are similar to the flu so my guess is you're okay you have a residual cough from this cold that these cold viruses too that i've experienced this this year and that you've experienced to me, they're much stronger than they've been in the past. You know, they linger for weeks, and and this is really interesting to me. I don't have an answer about why, but it seems. And, and there's over you know 200 plus different cold viruses, and a subset of those are human uh, coronaviruses. This is a zoonotic, which you and I have talked about. Some small number of viruses can jump from people to, or from animals to people. And that is what appears to have happened here. And that's what makes it novel is, is how it got its, its name, right? It's novel. It's not been seen before in people. And so I, I think one could induce psychosomatic symptoms of all kinds when one is focused really heavily on and, and that's combined with anxiety of certain issues yeah all right let's talk about something a little more cute and that is a video i sent you everybody has seen this it's gone viral. yes it's gone viral like the coronavirus uh <laughs> it's the badger and the coyote 
hunting together. There's some night video, and it is the most. It's like something out of a Disney documentary. <laughs> it's as though they're walking into the sunset together, the badger and the coyote, and you can hear the badger being voiced by Edwin, and, and the coyote <laughs> being voiced by you know, Dean Martin. It sounds like it just looks and sounds, even though there's no sound, I've added the sound. It just sounds like something <laughs> from my childhood. It's a, it's a Disney cartoon. Yes, it's so well, cute. I- it was so cute. The badger with the short legs wobbling <laughs> through the pipe and the coyote going, let's go, let's go. It's just so cute. What What's the relationship between a coyote and a badger? So I love this video because I've known for almost, you know, I'm going to age myself a little bit, two decades, Mm -hmm. that coyotes and badgers in certain areas have this special cooperative relationship because I study prairie dogs and both coyotes and badgers are predators of prairie dogs. Okay, what is a badger, by the way? What is a badger? Oh, gosh, I think it's in the weasel family. You're going to put me on the spot here, but I believe it's... um, is it a, a rodent? Uh, no, it is not a rodent. It's a mustelid, which is uh, the the weasel family, right? So weasels, otters, um, they're closely related uh, to those. Uh-huh. So I was correct. Okay, so so they are they are people are more familiar maybe with the honey badger. There's a YouTube video that has you know this sort of uh, the honey badger doesn't care. I'm going to use that language, and uh, honey, you know, badgers are not particularly social they can be in certain environments they have a lot of variability and so so what i love about the video you can clearly see the coyote doing like a play bow right so so what that familiar stance that we know from dogs where they want to they want to play or they're excited it bows down and wags its tail and then kind of hops up and and you get this sense it's like come on hurry up hurry up hurry up Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and doesn't want to leave its its pal behind. And then just like you said, here comes this waddling, you know, badger following his pal into the tunnel, into the sunset. And and so so we know from past research, I mean, as early as 1992, there was a paper talking about how coyotes and badgers in certain environments cooperate to eat ground squirrels. So ground squirrels have these burrows and badgers are burrowing predators and coyotes hunt above ground. So they were seen working together where the badger is flushing the squirrel out of the burrow, basically into the jaws of the coyote. And the coyote keeps the squirrel underground so that the badger can get it. And it's, it turns- it's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. And it works. So by working together in certain places, and they tend to work in places where the uh, coyote has trouble because of, of heavy bushes, right? It, 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 it relies on being able to capture and, and bushes prevent its ability to capture so the coyote uh the the capture rate increased by 34 percent by working together well coyotes i'm gonna ask you many stupid questions coyotes are endemic to los angeles right (laughs) well they're endemic to uh to north america 
Okay. So, and they have definitely expanded and they are, um, they, they were always found in California. They're just now really having relationships with people because we've expanded into their space. So how do they know that the badger will work with them? Why wouldn't the badger instinctively be afraid of the coyote and see him as a predator? What, why? Oh. How do they learn this? Well, so that is an interesting question. So we know that badgers and coyotes, badgers aren't going to be afraid of coyotes. Uh, and, and in fact, it, it seemed to be, at least from the study that I read that was done documenting this many years ago, that it's the badger that decides he's done cooperating with any particular coyote, right, by not resurfacing. So when they are in association with coyotes, they they surface almost 60% more of the time, and it's assumed that they're also benefiting from an increased capture rate. But because badgers catch squirrels underground, they couldn't actually count how many more Mm -hmm. a badger caught hunting with. Now, how they learned this is a really interesting question, and I do not have the answer for that. Right. So it might I don't think been, anybody would, right? It's almost, right? I mean, how Right. Would, right. I mean, I would say that my instinct would suggest there was um, you know, sort of accidental and somehow – you know, maybe an individual badger and an individual coyote somehow recognized what was happening. I have no idea. But it would have but to they, be passed to all the other coyotes and badgers that we work together. Well, there's sort of learning that can happen, right? So how that transmission uh, works, I, I don't really know. What we know is that if a badger stops their own activity, coyotes would leave within 30 minutes, uh, and now they also found that certain coyotes repeatedly had these sort of, let's call it friendship, mm-hmm. right? So so it's not just a random collection of coyotes and a random collection of, of badgers. It's that particular badgers and particular coyotes were seen repeatedly working together. And so you can clearly see that, from the video that that coyote and that badger, not only do they hunt together, but they're like, okay, let's go to a new area and try that. I mean, they, they were going somewhere together. So I think that we don't, because we don't um, have a good record historically of camera trap videos like this video where we don't know half of what goes on. I mean, I've seen video of, of a possum taking ticks off of a deer in the middle of the night. There's a picture of uh, uh, some other animal on the back of a deer (laughs) at night traveling through the forest. So I think that our picture of what really goes on and how other animals interact with each other is constantly upended when we start to get these kinds of remote access where we get to see things we wouldn't normally see. Or maybe and they're just showing off for the camera. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But we've known for 20 plus years that coyotes and badgers will frequently cooperate and hunt together and that both of them benefit from this. Now, how it started, 
how individuals learn to do that and, and whether friendships develop that persist through time is an open question that is wonderful. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about what was caught on tape over at South Africa's Kruger National Park, a mm. wildlife guide turned on his camera and caught footage of a baboon grooming a lion cub. And yeah. I w- was told that it wasn't going to end well. I couldn't figure out if it was going to end poorly for the baboon or the lion cub. Right. Well, so I, I actually thought about that as well, because the only, you know, not having more information, like was the lion cub, uh, on its own because it's, it's, it's usually lion cubs are chilling out with a babysitter in the pride. Right. They're not isolated. So in that case, the well, apparently, cub, uh, the, the mother lion hires the same kind of babysitters I used to hire as a teenager <laughs> uh, with an iPhone. Cause this, this cub got, got snatched. Well, so it could be that it got lost or, or, or something else happened to the cub. And then remember, I think we talked about at one point when we were talking about sort of parents, parenting and infants and, or maybe it wasn't us. I'm not sure, but, but essentially that cuteness factor, other animals are susceptible to that. I mean, even deer recognize the sound of human infants crying. Mm -hmm. So the idea that a baboon would gravitate and care for in some way and groom a cub is not unheard of. And there was cases of a, a lion taking care of a young antelope. Of course, it almost certainly did not end well for the antelope. Now, why it doesn't end well is not necessarily because that in that case, the lion would kill the antelope, but because the antelope would starve to death because its mother wasn't there. So for the young cub, not knowing how it, it is certainly incapable of surviving on its own without its mother and the pride. So perhaps it got separated and will be reunited, but it's not. The baboon is not necessarily going to kill the cub. The cub may die because it can't nurse and it can't feed. They don't eat the same things. And, and who wins in a battle <laughs> between a, babo- a baboon and a fully grown cub, which I believe would be called a lion? Yes. So in general, uh, lions can be predators of baboons, but baboons have pretty good alarm call systems in place. And they actually cooperate. They have a sort of tense cooperative relationship with antelope because sometimes baboons will kill baby antelopes and eat them. Uh, and so uh, they, there is a bit of a tense cooperative relationship there. But so they work together to keep an eye out for predators like lions, leopards, hyenas, etc. And so if somehow a baboon a baboon would lose with a lion for yeah. sure, unless it could get away faster or somehow the gr- it was a lone lion and the group mobbed it. We call that sort of mobbing behavior. I'm not entirely sure how baboons respond in direct confrontations with lions. My sense is the primary objective is to detect and avoid. Right. Okay. You know, confrontation. So. Uh, but it's not surprising. I mean, even people who are shown images of baby tigers, baby lions, baby kittens, 
who are not even parents will show greater care when they're playing the game Operation after just seeing a picture. Wow. You, that's how uh, sort of innate our our care is for young things, and that makes sense, right? It, it, because they're so dependent. And if we weren't careful and we were aggressive with infants, then and we would might have a lot less people on the planet. Well, you uh, sent me a story about cephalopods. I guess those are squid. Yes. What does cephalopod mean? Um, it means like head foot, basically. It translates into head foot. So they have. Um, that's the you thing know, that's in the northwest that people claim they see. Well, that's Bigfoot. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Um, so, so they have a prominent head, right? And that's usually, uh, if you think about an octopus, you see how big its head is, right? Uh-huh. And, and, um, they have a, uh, and that, and so squid, octopus, or, and nautilus, and, um, cuttlefish belong sort of in this group of cephalopods. And, and then, of course, they have some kind of modified, mollusk type foot right so that that does stuff and is uh, if we think about the octopus they've got eight of them right and so so it literally kind of from the greek translation means head foot or head feet so they put a cephalopod i guess a squid under an mri machine what did they, they did. discover and what did they discover well, so, so they discovered that the complexity essentially matches very closely to, uh, to as, as much sort of complexity that we see in dogs, right? And so they have a lot of neural circuits, uh, a lot of brain connections, a similar amount of brain connections is what we, what we know from dogs. And, you know, in general, cephalopods are incredibly smart. Their genome, so the number of base pairs they have, is very close to the number we have. And the octopus genome is almost entirely unique. It's um, like almost like they're aliens, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of them have uh, as many as 500 million neurons. And just to put that into perspective, rats, who we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. and who are, are quite clever, have only 200 million and, and uh, we have lots more, but that doesn't actually make us smarter. So uh, like neural connections, what, what is a neuron? Gosh, oh dear. Okay, uh, so well, a neuron is, is basically, let's think of it as a brain cell that can transmit information uh, and... and um, so oh, it's, gosh. The, it's the connections. It, it's, it's, it's yeah. the connections within the brain that allows it to communicate to, to nerve cells and muscle right. cells and, right? So, so it's sort of like the road from one cell to another. Right. Right. You have neurons. And- I have morons. That's, I have <laughs> so if the dog and the squid are similar, can you train a squid to do tricks? Can you train a squid to roll itself in batter and jump into? <laughs> Hot boiling, <laughs> delicious oil. No, no, and in fact, um, cuttlefish develop something similar to PTSD when they have been um, when subject to a predation event. So when they've been almost caught, if you will, 
they are hyper vigilant. So mm-hmm. anybody with PTSD knows what hyper vigilant means. It's sort of you're on high alert all the time for anything that's remotely similar. Right. Now, what's interesting is, at least in, in the case of cuttlefish, which are related to squids, they survive better by being hyper vigilant. So there's an adaptive quality or adaptive reason for why when you've experienced a trauma, you would be hyper alert to, to future potential right. problems. And of course, in us, it can be more debilitating for lots of other reasons. Now, what's interesting is not only did they, they look at, so I think, yes, you could probably train, I mean, people would argue you could probably train uh, octopuses and so you could probably cha- train uh, squids to do lots of things that yeah, were within that their ability. Yeah, I saw a documentary in the PBS. We had talked about this where somebody, uh, an animal behaviorist, was keeping an octopus as a pet in the house and the octopus developed an emotional attachment to his daughter, would recognize her when she came home. And, oh, yeah. And want, want to be touched by her. That's right. And if an octopus does not want to be touched by you and does not like you, it spits at you. So it's also a really clear communicator. Mm. That's the, oh, the, yeah. ink, the ink. Is that the, the... No, no, they spit water. <laughs> they take what so so there's anecdotal evidence at least from people who have worked in aquariums where a particular octopus didn't like a particular person every time that person would walk by they'd try to spit water out at them so are aquariums something that we should be getting rid of or do they provide any value for education oh gosh you know i don't know i, I feel similarly about aquariums that i do zoos I've seen some aquariums, you know, sharks need tremendous amount of space. I've seen aquariums that have dolphins and sharks and, you know, I think that, that anytime that we are enclosing animals in a fraction of space that they are built to have, you see problems. You see stereotypic, um, neurotic behavior mm-hmm. and, this distresses me a lot, and I think that, uh, personally, my opinion is that if any zoo is going to have animals, they should have local animals mm-hmm. that reflect the environment that people are living in. They should use money to conserve habitat and fund programs locally to educate people and deal with some of the the issues that wildlife is facing, and... Uh, you know, a polar bear does not belong in Arizona. Right, right. And we know there are many polar bears in captivity that have psychologists working with them because they're depressed. Right. And they're anxious and they, and, and I think that the idea that animals should be kept in enclosed spaces for our entertainment is not something I support. Okay, let me get some advice regarding reincarnation because a lot of my listeners want to come back as the right animal. Now, as a parent, a lot of us will say to our kids, okay, don't eat too much for lunch because I'm <laughs> taking you tonight to the Red Lobster. They have an all-you-can-eat buffet. I want to get our money's worth, so mm. don't eat 
too much. And then my kids would load up at lunch and we'd show up at the all you can eat buffet where they were serving shrimp and my kids had no appetite. If I want to be reincarnated, is there an animal that I should come back as so I can have kids who won't annoy me as much as my kids did? Yeah, well, I mean, then we got to go back to the cephalopods because cuttlefish, which yes. we were just talking about, yes. um, they're smarter than, than your kids would be. Yes, um, yes. Right? or so, easier to raise. Well, there's that too. In so fact, if I said to do- my cuttlefish, I'm a papa cuttlefish, I would say we're going, <laughs> we're going to the red lobster tonight. Don't eat too much. There's going to be all you can eat shrimp. What would my right. cuttlefish kids do? They would, they would, uh, not load up on food earlier in the day and save room for their favorite tasty <laughs> meal. And that's exactly what cuttlefish do. So they, they, they don't really like crabs that much, but you know, they don't want to starve. Right. So. Some researchers, when we talked about just teaching, can we teach squid things, right? Well, we can teach cuttlefish that if you're, if they're, if they're regularly given on a predictable schedule shrimp, they know, okay, today's the day I'm going to get shrimp, so I'm going to eat fewer crabs. But if you randomize it and they can't track a pattern, so they're making future predictions. Wow. So, right? So, so you tell your kids and they can't figure it out. They aren't told, they're just figuring out the pattern, but if there is no pattern, then they're not going to take a chance, mm-hmm. right? And they eat crabs, and, and then it's just, shucks, I'm full, you know, I can't eat all right. those shrimp. <laughs> but if if they can detect a pattern, they predict and plan for the future by holding back and saving room for shrimp. Well, how smart is that? I mean, what, what does that tell us? Because they don't have as many neurons as my morons but how do they do this (laughs) well so so humans i think have somewhere in the order of like a hundred billion neurons and the the squid that they did the mri on came in at about 500 million so it sounds like oh well we should be so much smarter but remember we've talked about intelligence and it's about being smart for the environment that you you are in and the skill set that you need. We have a hundred billion neurons, but I can't change color based on my mood. Right. I mean, other than turning red, maybe. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but but I can't turn blue and green and yellow and and all these different colors and and, and these animals can. So I think that. Again, finding food is not as hard for us because we're surrounded by opportunities to secure food. Some of us don't have that ability, and we might eat things that we don't prefer because we don't know when our next meal is going to come. Right. So in that sense, cuttlefish and people in insecure environments will take what they can get. Right. And... and earlier we talked about the badger and the coyote hunting together. Yeah. I watched a nature documentary. There was this fish named Dory, and she worked with, I think it was a clownfish mm-hmm. uh, named Nemo. And they had, <laughs> it was something I saw, I, I think it was on the BBC, Attenborough. I don't know, somebody. But anyway, Dory... And Nemo, no, or Nemo's father worked together. That's common in, in the sea where, where the fish work together, right? 
Uh, well, so, so they may cooperate. Uh, there's one relationship, uh, you know, I can't, I can't, I'm not entirely sure what specific help your, your cooperation you're referring to, but I do know that, uh, reef fishes usually have cleaners that come and clean stuff out of their mouth. And so they have cleaner fish and do of they, course it's a, yeah. Uh, it's a bit risky if you're going, if you're a small fish and you're going to put yourself in the mouth of a bigger fish, right? So like, they're like <laughs> dental floss. They're like toothpicks. They are. They are like toothpicks, but yeah. there's trust here, right? So, so cleaner fish that violate the, like, so it would be the, the same as if, if somehow the coyote suddenly attacked the badger. Now the, the friendship is over. There's yeah. no relationship. So cleaner fish that cheat and take a bite out of the flesh of the mouth of the fish that they're supposed to be cleaning instead of just debris, uh, earn a bad reputation and, and then no other fish want to let them near their mouth. Wow. So, so, you know, I think, um, definitely animals work together. And what is the fish that does the cleaning of the mouth? Um, they're called cleaner fish, so um, do they have they're as different high as, species. Do they have the same suicide rate as dentists? <laughs> um, I didn't know that dentists actually have. Oh, they have um, the highest suicide rate of all. Really? Of all professions, yes. Why is that? Do you know? Well, imagine going to work every day knowing that nobody is happy to see you. Oh. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I like my dentist. She seems pretty darn happy. Okay. Uh, but, you know, but anyway, so wrasses are, are sometimes, uh, 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 cleaner fish and they, they might move, remove, they, they might service a grouper, for example, right? So mm-hmm. little, little wrasses, they're these little fish, um, and they may, um, may clean the mouth of, of something like a grouper. Or, or larger, larger fish, but, but they get a bad reputation if they cheat and take a, a bite out of your flesh. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about penguins. I should mention that during the seventies, when the price of gold was going through the roof, most dentists had gold because they used to use gold for fillings and they would uh-huh. use their extra money. This is true to finance pornography. A lot of the great, this is, I'm just trying to, Teach the audience that in the 70s, mm-hmm. much of your favorite pornography had been financed by dentists who were making a killing in gold. Just something wow. to know. Yeah. Just, you know, I know things too. Well, you know, and I would say in, in terms of the quality of porn, probably that porn was better than, than the, the current porn. Well, they, they had the studio system back then. So the actors and actresses were trained in all facets of porn. And then the independent producers came in and like the fall of MGM, they didn't have a studio system to train the porn actors and all. Right. The, I mean, fencing, they learned everything. <laughs> they learned everything when there was a, a studio system for porn. A team of researchers, you tell me, from France have discovered the linguistic patterns of penguins and that penguins hue to the same linguistic laws that humans do? I know, right? And mm-hmm. it's jackass penguins, which is awesome. So, what, what is so a jackass penguin? Well, so it's an African penguin, and the reason they got the nickname uh, Jackass uh, Penguin is because they sort of have a distinctive call that sounds like a like an ass. Oh. 
like a donkey um, or yeah, the, the call yeah, my yeah. son makes when I no, ask like him a jackass. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so apparently, right, there's some laws uh, in terms of, you know, using, if you're going to use the same um, word, the, well, shorter words tend to be used more often. And this is sort of conservation of energy, uh-huh. right? And you can think about really long words, and we don't say them very often. And and so it turns out that that is a law because this is true for all human languages. Now, we've known when we study animal, other animals and their communication, they have syllables, they have grammar, they have a syntax, so an order in which sounds appear that makes sense. And in fact, for zebra finches, if you scramble their their song, they get really upset. Well, now, a zebra finch is named, we're naming animals after other animals. Well, it's a finch that's striped, uh, and so that's how it got its name. Okay. So, yes, the way we name things is a bit strange, but jackass penguins got the sort of nickname. They're really African penguins um, because of of the the sound they make is so similar mm-hmm. but they have uh many many vocalizations and essentially what they found is that they have three sounds um or sequences that are similar to syllables in human languages and that they also follow those laws that explain how human languages work. And so the idea is that the more concise you can be, the less you have to produce sound, which has a lot of advantages, and that That's being able to... That's co- interesting. Brevity yeah. is a solo wit as well. Exactly. And this is true for other animals, and it can increase your mating opportunities. And it's heritable, so the ability to be a concise communicator and a precise communicator, I should say, as well, is uh, can be passed down to your offspring. And it's, it's really – so it's fascinating that, again, the more technology we develop, the finer-tuned understanding we can have – about the similarities, really, between ourselves and other species. Getting to the point, in other words, is attractive. Yes. Haven't you noticed that? So, in other words, animals who can communicate simply without complexity, who who, who say what they mean and mean what they say, are evolutionarily superior Okay, I'm going to change that a tiny bit and say we're not talking about complexity, but we're talking about pre- uh, precision and being concise. So you can be complex if we think about bird songs and whale songs uh, and even these African penguins. There can be complexity in the communication, but yet it is the the they use concise syllables to make words or sentences that communicate clearly and this is efficient so efficient communication can be complex right but they're looking for the strong silent type like gary cooper if you're on a date (laughs) be like gary cooper right I i don't know gary cooper 
and I've never spoken with him, so I don't, I don't know what that means to strongs. So strong silent type, these are very noisy penguins. They are not silent, but the, what they're saying is clear and is concise and complex at the same time. So this is not about being quiet. This is about, if you're going to say something, say it clearly. And, and this way you don't have to say it often or use too many words. Well, fantastic. There, <laughs> I said it. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin has two books people should buy. Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. And Raised by Animals, a surprising new science of animal family dynamics with try-at-home lessons from the wild. Subscribe to Wild Connection TV on YouTube and watch Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Go to jenniferverlin.com, read her blog, and sign up for her newsletter. Follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. As always, fantastic. Thank you so much. Can you stand on the line for one quick second? Sure. Thank you. Let us now go to Georgia, where Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess, is standing by. He is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, a columnist for Jacobin. He teaches philosophy at Perimeter College, Georgia State University. And you can hear him every Tuesday night doing the debunk on the Michael Brooks show. You can see him live at the Bell House tonight, February 7th, at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, doing a live taping of the Michael Brooks show, along with Harvey J.K. Mr. Binder will be there. I called him Binder last time. (laughs) Who else is going to be on, uh, on the bill? Alyota Mikoski, uh, Brendan Sutton, who's a pretty bad lefty on Twitter. Yes. And, of course, uh, David Griscom and Matt Leck. And if you like this sort of thing, I guess also Michael Brooks. And Michael Brooks will be there. And I'll be reporting live from New Hampshire. Did yeah. you know that? I did not know that. I will be reporting live from New Hampshire. I, I think... Michael is doing a disservice to journalism because you know that I'm a Bernie bro, right? Right. From way way back. back. (laughs) From way back. And to send me to New Hampshire, where's the objectivity? How can I possibly give an even-handed report on, on the candidates when I'm so obviously in the tank for Bernie even though he just... Or at least in the tank for Bernie once. I mean, we're going to get there. Yeah, we're going to get there eventually. That's right. That's right. I just don't know how he can bounce back after that humiliating defeat in no, Iowa. This, this is true. This is true. It's 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 really embarrassing for him because um, even though uh, six thousand more people showed up to caucus for him as their first choice than any other candidate, and even though on um, 
And of course, look, it doesn't even matter how many people, you know, caucus, you know, show up to the caucus intending to go for you because, you know, it could be that your caucus say, you know, they don't get enough people to meet the threshold. So they do this whole second alignment thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, even there, he was he was uh, he was uh, servant up a humiliating defeat. Uh, he uh, only two thousand five hundred more people uh, caucus for Bernie on the second alignment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so and and then you might say, okay, well, um, you know, you might think like if you're if you're just stupid, right? Like if if you just don't know anything, you might think that what matters is how many people vote for you. Yeah. Um, That's not but, America. That's not how. No, no, no. That's no. silly, right? Um, elections are not about how many people vote for each candidate. You know, that's that's like trivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what really now? If you're if you're still pretty stupid, but not as stupid as that first person, you might think that what matters is how many delegates you get. Um, and because of the arcane and frankly incomprehensible way that the, this happens despite the thousands more votes for Bernie it looks like the delegates are going to be split up evenly between him and uh, and Mayor Pete um, although Biden clearly won with uh, zero delegates absolutely absolutely um, because he's electable and he can unite the party by getting zero votes in Iowa he united the party everybody could agree on Joe Biden exactly so look, you might think that what matters is is how many people voted for each candidate, right? How many people showed up to the caucus to support them? Uh, you might even think it has something to do with the number of delegates, but this is all just dumb. So our our smartest uh, political journalists have been keeping us focused on what really matters, which are the SDEs, state delegate equivalents, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the system they. They use after after all the caucus it is over. There's the first alignment and the second alignment, and then they uh, they have you know they have this whole system for translating how many people and what's you know in um, in which caucus sites came out uh, for each candidate in the second alignment and SDEs, and then they use the SDE count to come up with the number of delegates. So clearly, because you have the decisions made by caucus goers which are sort of shorthanded with these SDEs and that they're then used to uh, apportion delegates. Clearly what matters is not how many people went for each candidate, and it's not even how many delegates there are. It's the, it's the SDEs. It's, it's, the, it's, it's basically the notation system that's used by the state party to keep track of it all. That's the only number we should be focusing on for some reason. Right, and the fact that Pete Buttigieg could thrive in such a system proves to me that he can bring this type of complexity to the Oval Office, that his grasp of making something as simple as getting 6,000 more votes into something more labyrinthine, labyrinthine, maze-like, and and turning it around, turning a a 6,000-vote loss into a victory means that he can twist and turn and make use of complexity to bend complexity to his will as president. And that's what the Democrats need to be better at, is to take simple things and make them way more complicated. Yeah, no, that's right. That's that's really where the party has been failing in, um, in recent elections, that they haven't given the voters nearly enough complexity. 
Uh, and they really haven't emphasized the, the fact that they're much smarter than everyone else. Well, I think this proves that the Democrats are much smarter. They can figure out how to make an election impossible to understand. Yeah, I mean, if they just if, if they just started emphasizing that point at every opportunity that they're much smarter than mm-hmm. ordinary voters, that they're, they're just not the same as them, that they went to better schools. Uh, the more emphasis on this, honestly, really the better as far as how the election goes. Yeah, and I think Mayor Pete did a great job declaring victory before he had any facts to back it up, because that's what we need more of from our Democratic leadership. Yeah, is confidence. It's confidence to tell us things are fantastic Despite the evidence, that's right. That's right, and uh, and yeah, it's also particularly fun that after days of being told that um, Bernie Sanders' popular vote victory, or even the is irrelevant, and even the fact that it looks like they're going to get the same number of delegates is irrelevant because all that matters is the precise number of SDEs. Exactly. Uh, then after days of this, uh, you know. Today, this afternoon, it was starting to look like when uh, there was like one precinct that was left and it was a very it was a very Bernie friendly precinct. And there were some of these satellite caucuses that people went to, for example, sometimes like workers whose shifts didn't allow them to go to the regular caucuses. So they had these satellite caucuses and uh, Bernie uh, tended to be very strong in those. And um, in a crazy coincidence, just before these last numbers came in, which many people were speculating would have uh, actually given Bernie an advantage, even in the fucking SDEs. <laughs> um, yes. Just then, uh, Perez, the uh, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, decided that um, that really they should just restart the whole count from the beginning. Ah, that seems right. That seems fair. He wants does- he wants transparency. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't even need to know these last numbers. Of course not. Of course not. You know, I would assume a lot of the Hillary dead-enders want Mayor Pete over Bernie Sanders. Is that a fair assumption? I would I would assume so, yes. They're cut from the same cloth, right? Uh, very much so. Uh, in um, what I was just, you know, saying about reminding the voters uh, of how much better and smarter you are, I, I remember in 2016 hearing a lot from uh, my liberal friends about how um, Hillary Clinton was the most qualified candidate to ever run for president, uh, which seems to be pretty much the Mayor Pete conception that elections are about comparing the length of your CV. Yeah, your CV, yes. And, and, and as I recall, the Hillary Clinton types in 2016 we're all about the Electoral College. The popular vote doesn't matter. It's your ability to work the system. Right? She, she, right? She, she said, <laughs> no, the popular vote doesn't mean anything. Smart, well-educated people need to know what the rules are. How do you get elected president and play the Electoral College game? And the same applies to Mayor Pete. He played the SDE game in Iowa because that's what smart people do. What are the rules? Let's win by how we pick our, our either candidate or president. Right. Didn't the Hillary people embrace the Electoral College in 2016? Uh, like, like at the end of the year when the general election happened? Yeah. Uh, I forget. 
Oh. Oh. I was, okay, well, let's move yeah. on. Yeah. But uh, I, I think maybe Hillary won the Electoral College and Trump got more votes, or maybe it was the other way around. The other way around. I can't remember. But they're smarter than Trump. So That's obviously right. they won the hard thing. Yeah, and they're focused on what they needed to do to do that, like uh-huh. uh, like like winning um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Uh, that's that's why Hillary Clinton was pretty much living in uh, Flint and Milwaukee for the last few weeks of the election. Yes, because it's a meritocracy in the Democratic Party. The better educated rise to the top and they know what's best for us. Well, I don't know if, you know, and you know that I'm a Bernie guy. Of from, course. From, from, way, from way back. back. From way, way back. back. From way back. I was a socialist with David Brooks. Remember <laughs> David, David Brooks, Brooks the columnist, the New York Times? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may use some of this if you don't mind tonight because I have to, <laughs> I have to be reporting for Michael Brooks from New Hampshire and uh, talking about how <laughs> Bernie's coming off this humiliating defeat in Iowa and can he be the comeback kid in New Hampshire? Oh my God! In all seriousness, without any irony, satire, he won. Iowa. Yes, he did. I'm. Uh, I'm actually uh, uh, writing a, a piece for for Jacobin about this. I'm going to be working on it while I'm in the airport tonight on my way to. Uh, uh, well, tonight as we're speaking, <laughs> the uh, the past as people are listening to this, uh, and and it's 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 insane, right? Like there's a, there's a clear Democratic mandate. Um, nobody gives a shit. Uh, or has any reason to about the delegates from Iowa, much less the SDEs. Right. Uh, the, uh, he, like, Iowa doesn't have very many delegates. What matters about Iowa is momentum, whether coming out of the gate more people support you than the other candidates. That's the only thing anybody has ever cared about from Iowa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once again, I have to believe that Bernie is the beneficiary of all this. It just seems to be lining up for Bernie. The complaint. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic about that because I because I, I feel like there have been a few moments when um, when it really seems like the media and the other campaigns have have thought that he was done for uh, the heart attack, certainly, and then. Um, Elizabeth Warren, yes, yes, pulling the he what, said, what, what, she what, said. What Elizabeth Warren remembered from the private conversation they had two years ago, and yes. had to get off her chest a couple of weeks before the Iowa caucus. Yes, um, which, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Elizabeth Warren told me in a private conversation that the uh, the show tonight is going to be amazing. Everybody has to come. But um, all right, I, I agree but, with her on that. Yeah, yeah, at the but, Bell House. So, yeah, at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's right. Um, I, I was surprised she even knew about it, but uh, but she told me that if if I told anybody, she'd deny it. But you know, there you have it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, and you can really tell when the Warren one happened. You remember how that debate played out? Um, they really like the moderators like really thought that they had Bernie on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there was that infamous moment. When they asked him, so to be clear, you're saying you didn't say this. He's like, no, I didn't say it. Senator Warren, how did you feel when he said it? Right. Well, right. Like, it was just so obvious that they thought that, like, um, 
you know, like they thought that they'd caught him in something that would sink him. Uh, and in both cases, it, it seems to have had the opposite effect that, um, that like, uh, there was, it actually brought new energy and enthusiasm, like the, uh, like when that Elizabeth Warren thing happened, there was like a massive like fundraising haul from, from yeah. Bernie, like immediately after that, because everybody was so frustrated by what they were seeing the media try to do to him that they, uh, that like they chose that moment to, to give, you know, to donate. And, uh, and, and I think it's the, uh, I think it's the same thing here that like the same way that at the debate, it was just so obvious to any normal person watching that, like how rigged it was against him, uh, that, that it, it, it rebounded to his benefit. And yes. I think it's going to be the same thing here that it's, it's, it's so like anybody, like, I mean, whatever, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's an element of genuine incompetence, uh, cause people who think they're technocrats are always incompetent. But uh, that's you know like like see previous successes like the uh, Obamacare website, but um, or the Vietnam but, War or the Vietnam War right the best and the brightest yes uh, absolutely right but um, but I think that this this whole thing where nobody seems to want to talk about who got the most votes uh where it's somehow taking days and days to even tell anybody or maybe we're just not going to tell people how the last 2% shook out uh and like it it's so i just can't imagine like even uh i mean my republican mother-in-law who wants nothing good for any democrat you know bernie or you know bernie or anybody else was you know uh, was like oh so so they're 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 trying to take it from him right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like it's just it's just obvious I I think you have to be I think you actually have to be like a very uh like a acculturated in a particular way as like a media wonk to train yourself not to think it's obvious right right and so and so because because I think most normal people are going to look at all this and, <laughs> and conclude that at the very least. The party establishment would be much happier if he didn't if he didn't win, you mm-hmm. know. Um, then, then I think that's that's going to be good for him. The same way it was good for uh, the same way it was good for Trump that people thought that you know that it was like him, you know, him versus the establishment. Right. The Democrats, the typical Democrats, blame everything but themselves. They'll blame the Electoral College. They'll blame the Senate. I've heard Democrats say we have to get rid of the Senate because yeah. of the distribution. Our votes aren't important. Get rid of the Senate. We have to pack the Supreme Court. Bernie doesn't believe in packing the Supreme Court. I don't really hear him talking about getting rid of the Senate. And I, just, I, I, I just have to pause to say that it's amazing that there are people who think that Medicare for all is unrealistic, but we could abolish the Senate. <laughs> Or the Electoral College. Sure, sure, sure. Like these, like, yeah, no, those we could do, right? Like, we can, we we can, fantastic. We can have the most sweeping changes to the Constitution of American history. (laughs) That, that's totally a a gettable thing. But like, passing like this popular healthcare reform, come on, come on, you gotta be real about these things. Right, right. It's, it's, they look for any excuse for not being able to win other than maybe a platform and a candidate who appeals to the 99%. And now they start bringing in the identity. This just came to me from Politico. I love this. 
Okay, Elizabeth Warren, you want to play the identity card? Let's talk women of color in Nevada. This just came out that in Nevada, Elizabeth Warren staffers are complaining of prejudice. They have discovered that six female, female, female women of color have quit Elizabeth Warren's Nevada campaign because of a toxic work environment in which minorities are tokenized and they are marginalized. The senior leadership ignores them. They complain to human resources. There's no follow up. Quote, complaints, comments, advice and grievances were met with an earnest shake of the head and progressive buzzwords, but not much else. Hmm. Which is which is amazing because all of this is happening in the campaign of one of the co-authors of Pow Wow Chow. <laughs> what is Pow Wow Chow? I don't know. Oh, you don't know this? This is amazing. Um, yeah, back in uh, like the 80s or 90s, I'm not sure exactly when, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, contributed some recipes to a, a book called Pow Wow Chow where they were taking a bunch of prominent Native Americans uh, and uh, and asking them to invite uh, to contribute to this cookbook, and of course, because Elizabeth Warren at that point uh, was um, allowing herself to be promoted by Harvard as the uh, the first uh, the first woman of color in the uh, law faculty, wow, you know, because of her Native American roots, wow. she contributed to this, and, wow, and she um, called it Pow Wow. Yeah, yeah, the book was called Pow Wow Chow. And oh, that's sensitive. Part, the best part is. Uh, that the, um, that, uh, so I mean, there, you know, there were actual Native Americans who contributed to this, who contributed like actual Native American recipes, uh, but, uh, but the ones that she contributed, uh, seemed to have been plagiarized straight for the New York Times. Really? Yeah. Sounds like something Joe Biden would do, who got accused of plagiarism in law school. Did you not, did you know that he was accused of plagiarism in law school? I did not. I knew that he one of his one of his several previous uh, fumbled presidential campaigns went down because he um, he plagiarized a speech by uh, British Labour leader uh, Neil McKinnock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's the famous one. But I, I didn't know I didn't know he plagiarized in law school. Yes, it is, one, it, one of the underreported stories about Joe Biden. He was brought up on charges of plagiarism in law school. Well, I have limited time. With the great well, professor that, Ben Burgess, go ahead because I wanted to turn to David Brooks, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I just, I just want to say, like, you know, like just in case anybody might be souring who's listening might think, oh wow, uh, these are real vulnerabilities by Biden and Warren here. Uh, maybe I should take another look at Bernie Sanders. You just have to remember that Sanders hasn't been vetted. So what that means when we say Sanders hasn't been vetted is that um, the things that centrist Democrats, Republicans have been saying for him about him continuously for the last five years since 2015 mm-hmm. haven't particularly landed. So, you know, he hasn't been vetted yet. So, you know, people once people find out that he's a socialist, you know, it's going to be a whole different game. Yeah. And by the way, Bernie was the first campaign to go union. Mayor Pete his staff just got a union contract two weeks ago, just in time for him to drop out of the race in three weeks. They'll, get, they'll be able to work under a union contract for about three weeks, and then Mayor Pete will suspend his campaign. Well, David yeah. Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, 
I, I love having you on this show because I do read the New York Times. I'm just stunned by these supreme intellectuals like David Brooks, who can just get away with making blanket generalizations without footnotes or hyperlinks and are never called never called to answer on their statements. This is a tweet. Then we'll get to a piece that he wrote. You respond to this tweet. This is what he wrote moments after Trump was acquitted by the Senate. David Brooks, the resident conservative, hand-wringing conservative. You know, we see him on the PBS NewsHour on Friday, wringing his hands over Trump. You know, he's he's a, a good conservative. This is what he said right after the acquittal of Donald Trump. Instead of spending the past three years on Mueller and impeachment, suppose Trump opponents had spent the time on an infrastructure bill or early childhood education. More good would have been done. So so it's our fault, the Trump opponents, that there's no infrastructure bill or childhood education because we've been fixated on Trump. Yeah, well, because the the uh, Republican Senate would have totally gone for that. Yeah, right. Like, like they would have been eager to to pass such a thing, but uh, they didn't want to. They thought that it would have been uh, that that was more in the Democrats' lane to get it started. They they didn't want to they didn't want to uh, get out of line or step on any toes by being the ones to propose it. Right, and I re- I can remember when Obama just never in the State of the Union, brought up infrastructure that Mitch McConnell <laughs> and, and Boehner and Paul Ryan were saying, when is he going to bring up infrastructure so we can... we will pass that right away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as, as soon as he mentions it, we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, like, uh, you know, infrastructure, early childhood development, I mean, damn the expense, right? Like, this this is something that... These are these are Republican priorities. Right. And, and the, the democratically controlled House of Representatives has not passed any infrastructure bills or childhood education. Well, they must not have, because otherwise it would have been passed by the Senate. Yeah, because that's what they're all about, infrastructure. Well, David Brooks, how do you get away with making these statements? Huh? I don't understand how the New York... Okay. Well, 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 okay, okay, okay. David, you're not being fair, because that's just a tweet, right? Anybody can put out a dumb tweet... But surely the things that he actually writes that are printed in the paper of record are much more serious than this. Yes, which makes us turn to a piece he wrote two weeks ago entitled, Joe Biden is stronger than you think. Here's why he is still winning. <laughs> okay. Yes. How much awesome. time do we have, sir? Uh, let's, 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 let's try to do like five minutes or so on this. Uh, It was yet another epic failure of political punditry. Go back to the early months of Joe Biden's presidential campaign and read what the consultants and commentators were saying about him. His support is just name recognition. He'll fade. He's too old. He's running a zombie campaign. The party has moved left and he's out of touch. He he voted for the crime bill. Almost everybody was bearish on Joe, but now look where we are. Weeks from actual voting. If the polls are to be believed, Biden will win Iowa. How did he do in Iowa? Uh, yeah. So, again, remember, it doesn't matter how many people vote. 
uh, all that, all that, you know, so let's, let's look at a more, more important metric, which is delegates. Mm-hmm. Um, the last count I saw, it looks like, uh, he is on track to win zero delegates. He got zero delegates. Okay. Yes. And he'll come in second in New Hampshire. This is what David Brooks wrote two weeks ago. Uh, not looking that way right now, but who knows? He will easily win Nevada. Easily. Hmm. Uh, we'll see. He's now tied for the lead in California? Uh, if you say so. Okay. I mean, I've seen a lot of polls for a long time where Bernie's been uh, been winning California, but who knows? I, you know, I need more time with you to dissect this piece. We, we have to do this in two parts because the he goes, it's the 947th case in which we see that every second you spend on Twitter detracts from your knowledge of American politics and that the only cure to this insularity disease is constant travel and interviewing, close attention to state and local data, and raw, abject humility about the fact that the attitudes and academic degrees that you think make you clever are actually the attitudes and academic degrees that separate you from the real texture of American life. This is David Brooks telling us why... You can't. It's just the the verbal gymnastics are. His David Brooks's finger is on the pulse of of ordinary folks. Uh, He's he's not one of these coastal uh, coastal elite types. He he knows what's up. (laughs) He says Biden didn't just luck into this. He and his team grasped six truths. Ooh. One: understand the year you are running in. I, I I need more time with you. Uh, yeah, we've got to we, we, we've got to run. run. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, it's so so. It it seems like what he what he wants to. Um, in fact, uh, it seems like Biden's strength, uh, according to David Brooks, is that. He just wants to run on how Trump is a very bad person who's, and Biden is not Trump. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting diagnosis. Um, it, it seems to me that that sounds a whole lot like the Hillary Clinton campaign in, in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, maybe it'll work. Um, the uh, it it doesn't strike me that uh, you know like if if part of this plan is that he's going to unite the Democratic Party behind him, um, then I, I will say that's not gone off to a great start. Yes, we're we're out of time. Let me just read you the last. This is just so incredible. You respond to it, and then we'll continue this next week. I hope this is what David Brooks writes. Understand your party's core challenge. All around the world, parties on the left are losing because they have lost touch with the working class. These parties think they can reconnect with that class by swinging even further left. But Jeremy Corbyn in Britain and Bernie Sanders here are a doctoral student's idea of a working class candidate, not an actual working person's idea of one. 
Biden, on the other hand, has criticized his own party for losing touch with this class. He emerged from it, is focusing his attention on it, and is winning support from it. How can you be so fucking stupid? That's yeah, what I added the fucking stupid. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Um, people who uh, who aren't uh, out of touch doctoral students with their heads in their hands, like apparently the majority of voters in Iowa, um, which is, I guess, I mean, I, I had no idea how educated that state was, but uh, but I guess uh, six thousand more Iowans are uh, are working towards their PhDs than uh, than than have any other level of education, but. Um, but yeah, no, and everybody else, like normal people, salt to the earth people, you know, not they're not these these like fancy out of touch intellectuals. Salt to the earth people understand that a real working class candidate uh, is one who has spent decades uh, getting massive donations from credit card companies uh, headquartered in Delaware, and who wrote. Uh, who wrote a bill making it harder for people to declare bankruptcy? I mean, that's the yes. you know that that's the kind of those are the kind of like down home values <laughs> that like, just regular working people you know yes. care about. Yes, like you know we can let these doctoral students talk about healthcare, blah blah blah. Who cares, right? What we what we want to know is are the credit card companies going to get their money back? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, published by Zero Books. He is a columnist for Jacobin. He teaches philosophy at Primer College, Georgia State University. You can see him every Tuesday night doing the debunk on the Michael Brooks Show. And you can see him tonight at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, tonight, February 7th doing a live taping of the Michael Brooks show with Professor Harvey J.K. Tell us who else is on the bill, Professor. Uh, yes, so there is Brendan Sutton, um, Aloni Mikowski, Matt Binder, um, David uh, David Griscom, Matt Leck, Michael Brooks, of course. Uh, and, and, I, and I understand that... Uh, that there is going to be some uh, some live reporting from uh, from New Hampshire, doubtless from a trusted journalist. Yes, thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. Stay on the line for one second. Thank you, Professor. Absolutely, thank you, comedian. Let us new, let us now go back to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. He was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, oh, I think I can get this right, Christ? Is it pronounced Christ? Indeed. This is four weeks in a row uh, you've gotten it correct, thank and I you. commend you for it. I really do. Welcome back, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. We couldn't have you on the show because last week I was in D.C. I was in your neighborhood. Yes, you were. Yes, and I you was. were doing a very fine job, accompanied 
uh, by Triumph, the insult comic dog. Yes, we were covering the favorite. impeachment for Stephen Colbert. If you have a chance, go on YouTube. It's pretty funny. Pretty funny stuff. It's very, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's so hilarious that I actually uh, taped it so that my sleeping wife could watch it the next morning. And I was ha having a little uh, email conversation with our friend Louis Black yesterday, and he said he thought it was hilarious and that I should pass that on to you. Well, so I'm doing that right now. Thank you. Thank you. And we have to have Louis. But, you know, I had a couple of. What was we, that? We have to have Louis back on the show. Absolutely. I had a couple of questions for you, and I wondered if before you get into questioning me, whether I could ask you a couple of questions about Triumph coming here to Washington. Sure. And the difficulties that he had. Uh, first of all, I wanted to clarify with absolute transparency that although your website says you write jokes for Triumph, the insult comic dog, how do we know that he's not writing jokes for you? Could be. Not sure. Could be. Could be. What do you mean you're not sure? Triumph the Insult Comic Dog does not write jokes for me. I write jokes for comic. Robert Smigel is Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, and he puts together a crew, and we go down there and create havoc. You did, and I was amazed at how far you got. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people, including senators like Lindsey Graham, that as Ted Cruz had simply ignored Triumph, the insult comic dog. And Ted Cruz, of course, had a wonderful conversation when Ted Cruz was running for the Senate against Beto O'Rourke. And uh, Triumph tried to remind him of that. And he, he ignored it. And I just wanted, again, to clarify for the purposes of transparency that they didn't want to talk to Triumph. Are you sure they would have spoken to him, but they didn't want to speak to you? Did they, were you there, physically there? Yeah, I mean, that's conceivable. But, yeah, that's, yes. Yeah, but they were pretty serious. They, they, they were very solemn about this. I wish they were as solemn about the impeachment as they should be about the 60,000 uninsured Americans who die every year or the 20% of children who are food insecure. That they can't seem to be too solemn about, but it really pained them. You could, there was a palpable sense that the institution was threatened and they were concerned about democracy and the rule of law. Yeah, they certainly were. And of course, I think it would have been a nice thing for Chief Justice Roberts at the very beginning of these two weeks of proceedings, if he had reminded people that according to the rules of the proceedings, you were supposed to sit there. That didn't mean you couldn't go to the bathroom or you couldn't go out and grab some water in case your staff hadn't brought you enough. But he never even mentioned it. And of course, we had records of people uh, going on Fox News when they should have been observing the proceedings. And for the chief justice not to say anything about that, I found shocking. I mean, a, a virtual impeachable offense itself. But I want a question about this. Uh, during the Triumph visit, uh, Triumph uh, saw a, a gentleman named Brad Sherman. Yes. Uh, did, did, did you or Bob or Triumph honestly not know that he wasn't a senator, but he was a member of the House of Representatives, because that was a very amusing part of your interview. 
we're not the brightest people in the world, but we knew that he was a congressman. Yes. <laughs> but do you know that Brad Sherman also does stand-up? You're thinking of Alan Sherman. <laughs> no. Uh, Alan Sherman, he does bits. Yeah. No, but Brad Sherman was one of the very few members of about 10 years ago. It's a very popular thing for a comedy club like the Improv here in Washington to invite activists and Ralph politicians. Nader participated. Ralph Nader did participate. I participated. And Brad Sherman was literally the funniest person in Congress who made any kind of uh, did any kind of routine at all. The, the only person coming close was a guy named Henry Gonzalez. Of a Democrat from Texas, hmm. and uh, but the others, like uh, Marsha Blackburn, did this pathetic routine called "How to Talk Southern," which wasn't actually funny the first time you heard it, and it it was truly appalling the second and third time I had to listen to it. So, can but Brad's I... very funny, very clever man. Yeah, can I give you my reaction? Because uh, I do get. A feeling every time I go to Washington, D.C. I, I want to go back there. I, I really do. I, I want to sure. do more shows uh, out of Washington, D.C., more of these shows out of Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. I'd like to interview more Congress people, more senators, sure. more lobbyists, more spoke. Anyway, yep. I get the same feeling when I arrive in Washington, D.C. all the time, and that is I understand the uh, the Republicans, there's something you're used to it, but there's some something isn't right about Washington, D.C. I understand why there are people who want to dismantle it. Do you? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Why? why do you understand it? I'll tell you why I understand. Because I, I've watched them make the sausage and I know that it's an appalling process. And I know that even the people that I like and I respect the most are frequently people who, if you ask them, how can you take on all these issues? They're very controversial. They'll say, well, uh, because I'm in a safe district, because I'm, I represent Berkeley, California. I represent Detroit, Michigan. And uh, and they would, again, I, I many of them would concede that if they were in some other more swing district, they wouldn't be able to take the positions and do all the work on so many progressive issues that they do. And the other uh, the other thing is that you, you just watch these people, watch them uh, give speeches just about impeachment. Why? Who are these people? Uh, there's an arguable, an arguable argument that we shouldn't even have a United States Senate. Why should there be people like Senator Enzi from Wyoming, who triumphed, attempted, you know, briefly, he looked at the sign on the door and then moved on to the Ted Cruz office. But he was um, he was on to something. I mean, these 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 two characters that represent Louisiana, both Republicans, um, these are not people who appear to have any common sense, any ability to reason, any ability to think through issues. And therefore, they come up with no solutions. And all they do is complain, complain, complain. They do nothing Democrats when, in fact, if they had any ideas, uh, these guys could offer them. But they don't seem to have any. How long There's have no you been in Washington? Ideas left anymore. How long have you been in Washington? What was that? 
How long have you been in Washington? Since 1973. And do you think people, it's good, you're good, obviously, you're different. But do you think there should be a permanent, a permanent class that resides in Washington, D.C.? There's something incestuous about it. You know, I walked around the, the Russell office building. You see these young sure. staffers. They're not sure. there to do good. They're, they're resume building. This is about ambition. This isn't about serving the American people. You really get a sense that this is a $3 trillion a year business, <laughs> that yep. they're helping people dip their beak into and take something out of. There's something, something doesn't feel well, right there. Well, that's much more the case now than when I got here. When there, when I got here, there were people like uh, Thurgood Marshall's uh, son worked for a very long time for Ted Kennedy. He was there year after year after year. He was not building a resume. He was doing work that he thought was important. But now you find people go in, they, they spend a year or two years working for some senator, and then they immediately leave the senator's staff to become a lobbyist. And the argument is, well, at least I know some people, and I might have access at least to my old boss. I can't tell you how annoying that is. It is resume building, but it isn't built very strong or very high. It's minuscule, a couple of years, and then immediately go to, uh, to business and trade off of your modest connections to one or two members of Congress. Or it, to one or two generals or to somebody who works over at the EPA. I mean, it's not just the Capitol. We're talking about a lot of agencies, federal agencies, where people are getting lobbied. No, absolutely. But I, I think that that is a problem that has gotten so much worse since the early 70s when I was here, where you really had committed people who stayed for a decade or more working for the causes they believe in through the members that they believe in. One of the first people I met here in Washington was counsel to uh, the late uh, uh, Senator Phil Hart. And he worked for him for decades and he was committed. He was a lawyer who wanted to do good and he he did, and he, he was able to, to work with an astonishingly moral actor, uh, Phil Hart of Michigan. So but, there is man, a conservative people, argument. A legit, again, I'm voting for Bernie. I'm a leftist. Yeah. I believe in a big state because I still think as dirty as government is, it's still cleaner than a corporation, more efficient. They don't pay... The most you can make working for the state is, what, $300,000 a year if you're lucky? Very lucky. Very lucky. There's less <laughs> waste in the state than there is in a corporation. And that tax dollars are still more sacred than the money that goes into the coffers of Microsoft or Facebook. You're more likely going to see waste at Facebook than you will over at the Department of Justice. That being said, there is a legitimate argument. We're not hearing it from the Republicans, but we do need a small government party 
to say, wait, whoa, 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 no waste. This is we don't need this. We don't have that. But no. there is an argument to downsize to downsizing Washington, D.C. Won't get an argument from me about that either. I mean, I think that there's so much. You go to some of these agencies, and they're really dedicated people. So when the right wingers say, "Well, you know, the bunch of uh, bureaucrats and drain the swamp," most of that is baloney. But if you go to certain of these agencies at four o'clock in the afternoon and closing time is five o'clock, you see a heck of a lot of people standing around uh, looking at their computer uh, and not apparently doing anything just so like bureaucrats facebook. just like just like facebook yeah yeah just but like I mean, any corporation that, any corporation but absolutely you could uh, you could downsize but what i don't think you should do is uh, complain about the fact that there's longevity still with some staff members in these agencies and staff members on the hill they they're there they know what's going on they know how the system works and they they're not just gaming it they're actually trying to use it to do the public good right and then you have people yeah. like rick perry who come to washington dc to run the doe the department of energy as a wholly owned <laughs> subsidiary of texas gas and coal and oil that's correct. Uh, and uh, you, you see Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education, a woman who's never even supported public schools, whose uh, whole career path has been based on privatizing education from elementary school all the way to community college. She doesn't care about public schools. She hates them. Uh, she doesn't even pay lip service to them. She just wants to find ways that private education facilities can get government money so they can do what they want and in her case uh, bring the students back to god because right. that's of course the undercurrent of the betsy devos life right her brother i mean it's bad her brother is finally being investigated by the justice department finally he had testified mm -hmm. more than a year ago <laughs> before the House Intelligence Committee saying that the meeting he set up in the Seychelles Islands was not set up by him and he didn't know any of the Russian bankers. And now apparently Bill Barr's Justice Department has answered Adam Schiff's request to investigate Eric Prince, the former head yep. of Blackwater, who wants to privatize the war in Afghanistan. Of course. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for Attorney General Barr to do a vigorous investigation of that matter. I simply I mean, he is he is simply a man uh, beyond corruption, beyond corruption. He he doesn't care. Uh, he thinks that he is basically the private attorney for President Trump. And I, I just have zero, zero confidence that he's interested in exploring any of the relatives of cabinet members or anyone else in the Trump orbit. Well, he gave a speech a few months back at Notre Dame talking about atheists and agnostics and the lack of religion in government. Tell me about the National Prayer Breakfast, the President took a victory lap yesterday. 
What is the National Prayer Breakfast? Didn't Dwight D. Yeah, Eisenhower get convinced to go there kicking his Dwight swimming? Eisenhower was involved in it. He wasn't necessarily interested, terribly interested in it, but he certainly went to it, and he started a, tra a tradition so that every president, including Democrats who ought to know better, feel obliged to show up to what is a private event. This is not a government function. People go, why, why can they do that? Because it's all private money. But it's private money uh, run through something called the family. Um, and the family is chronicled in a five-part series on Netflix called, ironically, The Family. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of the first half hour of the first episode, please get through that. But it's really dynamite stuff uh, written uh, by a man who uh, cooperated with it and who had done two books, not just one, uh, two books on this nefarious body. And they they're, they claim to be non-political, but, you know, you can kind of say anything. It's very political. It's very conservative. And they find you find that some of the very people who have been the greatest apologists for President Trump are associated with the family. Now, there's a house that they have on C Street just off of Capitol Hill, and they live there occasionally. Or if they come long distances, they live there a lot of the time. And they pray together, and uh, they chat together. And, and they stay together. Um, they stay together. The family that but prays no together. Shenanigans. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, but no, no shenanigans at the C Street house. Although people who have had shenanigans in their uh, in their rest of their private life often end up living there also, uh, presumably uh, to get away uh, from their spouses. Right. That veterinarian I mean, wasn't there a veterinarian Congress a senator who. It's about 10 years ago. I forgot. I want to say, t go ahead. I'm sorry. There, there, there was somebody. No, but I mean, yeah, the, Mark Sanford, the uh, governor of South Carolina, was having an affair. Uh, he, he disappeared for a while. He was living there. He was closely associated with the family. And uh, it turned out he was uh, in Argentina uh, with his girlfriend. John and Ensign. Was a big Senator John Ensign. Oh, yeah, well, John Ensign. Um, John Ensign had an affair with um, his chief of staff's wife, and then he apologized to the gentleman uh, whose wife he was sleeping with. Uh, and then, when the gentleman tried to see what his wife was doing after the apology, uh, she was continuing the affair. When he went back uh, to Oklahoma uh, to check it out, and all of this is chronicled very well. In, in this series on Netflix called The Family, and I, I heartily recommend uh, okay. you see it written by a friend of mine named Jeff Charlotte. How was Excellent. our president? He spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast. Was he magnanimous, forgiving? No, he started out actually by having copies of the Washington Post and USA Today uh, that it said, Trump acquitted. In fact, the font, the size of the headline in the Washington Post is was so large. I mean, I haven't seen something like that since 9-11 and possibly the moon landing. Yeah. But here, Trump acquitted and he, he just like a peacock. He held it up. He also said that this vindication, which is what he calls it hmm. from the other day, was a sim similar to 
the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Who, who, as you may know, was related to the United Church of Christ. Now, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Let me, uh, you know this more than I do. Jesus never did get acquitted, did he? No, no, he, here he was an innocent man, <laughs> never got acquitted. And here is a guilty man uh, claiming to be vindicated uh, because only, you know, 49 people voted to convict him of, of both of these offenses. Yeah. But he, he did some other extraordinary Excuse me, things. 49 I mean, people who represent a majority of Americans. And you, oh, suggested, you suggested earlier that the Senate, what, should be abolished? There's an argument against the Senate? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any credible basis for having the United States Senate even exist, because even though one likes it when you have you happen to live in a place that has two wonderful senators and you, they can get you tours of the Capitol and they can give you flags that flew over the Congress. Uh, but but there's just it's no justification. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, these places are so sparsely populated that it, it's hard to make a serious case. And we don't we're not 200 years ago when there was this battle brewing uh, in theory, at least between bigger states and states that might come into the union and smaller states. Just do it proportionally. Just have a House of Representatives. It will represent people in a much more fair and equitable fashion. But, but you're talking Senate about Article One of the Constitution. Yeah, you have to change the. If you were going to rewrite the Constitution today, I do not believe there's any serious argument to be made for having. The United States Senate, where no matter how small the state is, you get exactly the same number, two of representatives as New York and California. It's just, by every stretch of the imagination, unfair, unworkable, and stupid. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of... So what else did he do today? Wait a minute. Well, you know, he also, uh, <laughs> uh, Trump today... One of the people who introduced him, a minister, said, uh, uh, I, I want to check something out. I, I would like you to rate people to raise their hands if you actually love someone who you disagree with politically. And a very large percentage of the people in the audience raised their hand. But Trump sat there like a lump and didn't raise his hand. And then when he got up to speak, he, he suggested that he kind of disagreed with the idea that you should love your enemies. And then he kind of laughed and said, well, m m maybe I, I, I'll get better at that. But it was clear he's not just ridiculing the minister that introduced him. He's ridiculing Jesus, who said exactly the same thing. Yeah. So uh, all of a sudden, Mr. I love God uh, having a little argument with Jesus right this morning at the National Prayer Breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk yeah. to me about the pearl clutching in the right wing, J-Lo at the Super Bowl, Jay-Z at the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, you can make a colorable argument that maybe the halftime show was a little 
too provocative. Maybe it was too sexual. You can make that with a straight face. As a feminist, as a feminist, you can make that argument. Absolutely. And, And feminists have come down very much on both sides of this. But there's also a fact that there's a lot of cultural uh, announcements being made, particularly by Shakira, who has uh, uh, both uh, roots in, in Colombia and uh, her, her dad was from the Middle East. And some of the gestures that, that she was being criticized for are actually culturally important and significant within the family background that, that she possesses. And J-Lo coming out with uh, the Puerto Rican flag, obviously, was to make a point. And it was, hey, people watching, I'm from Puerto Rico in part, but don't forget it's part of the United States in spite of the fact that the president fails to understand that. So there was a lot of politics. Yeah, but she she wasn't Eartha Kitt in front of Lady Bird Johnson attacking the Vietnam War. I mean, she just flashed the Puerto Rican flag. She didn't really make that big a statement the way Eartha Kitt did. That's true. The Eartha Kitt statement was profound and important, and uh, this maybe wasn't as profound or important, but it's also, you know, I mean, if you're going to make a, a statement, make a statement. <laughs> well, what was she going to do? Stop singing? Uh, get up on the stripper pole and say, uh, excuse me, but I wanted to make a statement about Puerto Rico. See, wow. that's not going to cut it. Yeah. But Jay-Z... Okay, so there is footage of Jay-Z and Beyonce during the national anthem sitting in a room. They're not standing up. And this has just set off all kinds of of people who are just enormously upset about it. Uh, Tommy Lauren, the kind of the new Ann Coulter, um, constantly uh, people should follow her on Twitter. just, Just make sure that they... They get upset every day in case, you know, they're not watching enough Fox News. I think she's on Fox News, too. But she was all upset about this. But neither she nor any of these right wing characters who are trying to make make the Jay-Z Beyonce, they didn't stand up into a major issue, have been totally silent about something that actually, in my judgment, does matter, and that is that the president, caught on camera phone video, is in a room. Everybody's that you can see there has their hand over their heart. They're listening uh, to the uh, to the national anthem, and he's grabbing food and and gesturing, moving food around, and then making a a, a kind of a hand gesture, <laughs> uh, like he's actually conducting the music i mean it was he's the commander in chief he -hmm. is supposed to be respectful of the military but we know he doesn't respect the military after the uh, the bombings a few weeks ago when at first they of course they reported there was no one injured and then it was 10 people were injured and then 20 people injured and they had concussions so what does the president refer to these concussions he said they have headaches. And I know a lot of people, he says, who have worse injuries than that. Brain concussions are not headaches. 
and for him to say that and then be largely ignored. Nobody goes, why, that's a shocking. Here is Mr. Bone Spurs, who doesn't understand that a, a brain concussion is really serious and not to be compared with, you know, a headache that requires two aspirins. Are you saying that he was more concerned about football than he was our soldiers, that he wanted to minimize, minimize concussions so people would continue to watch football? <laughs> well, you know, when you, when you think about football um, and, you, and you think whatever side you fall on, on the over-sexualization of halftime, there are a heck of a lot of concussions, and we know that now more than ever as we study it more. I mean, this is not a, this is not a game that could be a kind of uh, confused with tiddlywinks. This is a very damaging uh, sport. And it's I know a lot of people who have kids who are, were thinking about uh, playing high school or college football who have just said, we don't want our kid to do that because the damage, the risk is too great. But, you know, for Trump, he, he doesn't care about these things. Headaches, take an aspirin. Yeah, he doesn't care about any of these things. And, and his supporters and, the, and you saw this throughout the impeachment. They, they have, it's so easy for them to be annoyed at the wrong things. And I think you saw it play out with Nancy Pelosi the other mm -hmm. night, the State of the Union address, which is literally the dullest State of the Union address I've, I've ever heard. And I listened to all of them uh, over the years. I mean, it was just a bore. It was clear that he didn't write it. He could barely pronounce some of the words in it. But then Nancy Pelosi, to her credit, I think, tears up a copy of the State of the Union address in a very visible way as he's, she's sitting right behind him when he's completed uh, his State of the Union address. And that's just a, a firestorm, not just with conservatives. Progressives go, well, this is, she went too far. Mm -hmm. She went too far. He didn't shake her this, hand. He didn't shake her hand. And, of course, she got him the votes for this new Mexico-Canada-U.S. trade deal, which I think is, frankly, almost useless. But she got him the votes, and he didn't invite her to the signing ceremony for the trade bill. See, he disses her all the time. And for her to do that, as she said, well, it's a, it's more polite than other things I could have done. Mm -hmm. But people, and again, not just not just right wingers, uh, some of the people who uh, are more like you and I, who have said, oh, it's, it's terrible, it's just it's, it's shocking that she would do this. And How dangerous true. is he? Is Trump? Yeah. I think he, he's, he's vastly more dangerous than Richard Nixon was, Ronald Reagan was, George Bush uh, Jr. was, um, because this guy doesn't care about anything. He has no empathy. He does the things. He had the nerve in the State of the Union address to talk about Harriet Tubman, who he decided to have removed. She was scheduled to be the new face of the $20 bill, and he squelched that so that Andrew Jackson, you know, who was uh, 
shall we say, a moderate, a modestly useless uh, president could stay on the $20 bill. Wow. But he uses Harriet Tubman, um, an extraordinary woman. And you know, there is a new movie about her came out a few months ago, and I recommend that. Here's somebody who was not only a centerpiece of the Underground Railroad, but later became a spy for the Union Army. Many people don't don't really know that, and uh, it's she she's a real national hero. He mentions her in passing, having already dissed her and her memory by making sure she's not on the twenty dollar bill, and instead gives on national television the mel- to the tub uh, the tub man to, himself. Man, this guy, Fresh Rush Limbaugh, Excellence in Broadcasting Network. And he, I mean, he said so many irresponsible, racist things, terrible things about immigrants, and terrible things about women. Uh, There was a woman here in Washington named Sandra Fluke, who was a Georgetown University law student. Uh, She uh, rose to some prominence uh, when she insisted that Georgetown cover her... uh, access to birth control in their student health plan, which they then and still to this day refuse to do. So Rush Limbaugh calls her a slut, a prostitute, and then asks, well, why should we pay for her birth control? She's the one who's deciding to have sex. Now, that's terrible. And Sandra Fluke and I did a couple of, of meetings and radio shows together at that time. But an even worse thing was when uh, Clinton was um, first in office. And as you may remember, he had a a cat named uh, Socks. Socks. And so Limbaugh one day says, uh, well, everybody knows that uh, the president has a cat named Socks, but many people don't know he also has a dog. And then he put a picture up of 13-year-old Chelsea Clinton. Right. Right. Chelsea Clinton. That was so, that was legitimately despicable. When you listen to all the criticism, when one of the witnesses in the impeachment uh, trial uh, made that the joke about, uh, well, you know, you can name your son Baron, but you can't mm-hmm. make him a Baron. Right. You would have thought that 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 was the end of the world. Right. Right. The, the fact that, Lim- Limbaugh, you know, when you think about it, Limbaugh has contributed not, literally nothing to America. Oh, I think nothing. he's heard it. I think he has blood on his hands. Don't you? Well, I think he does, too. Of course he does. He's worth in north of $400 million, which is possibly more than you, I, and Triumph are, are worth. And he, <laughs> I mean, he's um, he had a very clever way to get into major markets. And uh, if I can digress a second, when I did radio here in Washington for a small station right on the edge of of Washington, D.C., it was all kinds of conservative talk. And Limbaugh was just getting started. And so Limbaugh was looking for these small radio stations outside of major cities. And he figured if he could build a market around those small ones, then he would be hired to do a major market in D.C., in Los Angeles uh, radio show. And um, so he was he was um, he was on the station that I was on. 
And he, um, there was a woman who worked in the business end of this radio station. A very, she was a very conventionally attractive woman. So we're having a Christmas party, not a holiday party, because this is ultra-conservative radio. Mm-hmm. A Christmas party, and everybody's invited, and most people felt an obligation to go. So this woman decides to invite Limbaugh by Xeroxing body parts, her body parts, and sending them via fax hmm. to Limbaugh. And this Limbaugh was really intrigued by this. And uh, he, he thought he could come, but he never did show up. So maybe he wanted different body parts. I don't but, think I mean, he this could come. I think the reason it didn't, he didn't show up, because I don't <laughs> think he can come. Hey, is there a GoFundMe page for his lung cancer? Because I'd like to donate to the lung cancer. He is, how bad is that, that I... It's, it's pretty normal. Huh? I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go there because I have too much uh, cancer in my family. But um, no, he. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the guy. Whatever one thinks about that, um, this is not a guy who deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as Maya Angelou, Muhammad Ali, and the panoply of talented people in entertainment in sports and in politics that received this honor he Just, should be spoken no- in the same breath as jefferson davis benedict arnold Jeff- he is he is a bad guy yes he is but amazing that you would point up uh, benedict arnold because the fox news anchor lou dobbs uh, he, he was he he was just so upset that Mitt Romney voted to convict on one of the two counts uh, in in the trial yesterday. Romney, he said, will be associated with Brutus, Judas, and Benedict Arnold forever. Hmm. Yeah. And what of course has, today? Yeah. Yes. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I mean, it, it, look, Mitt Romney is many things. Uh, I never, I rarely agree with anything politically, but I mean to to suggest that he wasn't basing this vote on a sense of what was right and wrong, and he linked it to his religion. He's a very devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormons. Well, where's and, his um, religion when Bain Capital? a private equity firm that he ran. Where is his religion when he's buying up perfectly functioning companies with overfunded pension plans, gutting them, laying everybody off and destroying lives? Where's his religion there? Well, he he obviously, uh, it doesn't apply it everywhere. And I think he got too much credit, frankly, for applying it in this case. Uh, but I, I think when you take another step, as uh, Trump did in this ridiculous uh, lunch uh, celebration he had that went on for an hour and 10 minutes today, uh, when he suggests that Mitt Romney uh, was just making up an excuse using religion in order to, uh, you know, the vote uh, to convict, uh, to convict on abuse of power. I think that's it's just Ridiculous. What uh, is Mitt Romney, way? other than Obamacare, which used yep. to be Romney Care, which Romney Correct. turned his back on when he was running yep. for president, what has Mitt Romney done? I think he's done more damage to this country through Bain Capital. Bain Capital has destroyed 
Main Street. They continue to buy up these drug rehabilitation centers now and overcharge mm-hmm. these families yeah. that are suffering from drug addiction. They are not good people, the Romneys. They're not. They're definitely not good people. But in a, in a time when we have uh, a party that is completely and utterly as corrupted as the Republican Party, when there's one spark, when there's one thing somebody does, doesn't make up for the bad things, but when someone does something right, I give them a little credit for I it. Don't. Not the kind of credit getting. No, no. You leave the party. Go caucus with the Democrats. Yeah, well, there's speculation, but I think it's idle speculation that he might actually do that. Well, what is he doing? I mean, why is he there? What What is is he he doing? (laughs) Most of these people don't really do anything. They don't get anything accomplished. And this is, of course, the criticism even our our friend Bernie Sanders has been getting. What does he actually accomplish? And when people go, well, he didn't pass laws, but he rewrote the nature of the political debate about health care, about the environment, about wage inequality. He he's changed the entire conversation. Mitt Romney never could be credited with changing any kind of conversation. So he was over overpraised. But, you know, let me just yeah. let me you, just interrupt you for one second, sure. Bernie, because this is Bernie country. That is a myth that Bernie hasn't accomplished anything in the legislative branch. He tacked on the public clinics to Obamacare. He's the amendment king. Billions and billions That's of right. dollars out of Obamacare went to public clinics. You couldn't get his vote unless he unless he was guaranteed these public clinics. He's introduced bills that were passed guaranteeing VA uh, more benefits, increasing the amount of funding for the VA, the war powers resolution against intervening in Yemen was introduced in the Senate by Bernie Sanders and it passed in both the Senate and the house, but was vetoed by Donald Trump. He as a Congressman was known as the amendment King and was able to get a lot of money sent to the right people. There is no legislative achievement in the legislative branch since Ronald Reagan became president. What has, (laughs) what can you point to? Obamacare? Uh, You know, uh, the invasion of Iraq? What a a tax cut for Obamacare? For its time, Obamacare was one of those dramatic changes and made better by the very ideas that Bernie Sanders added to it. But, um, but nobody accomplished. What, what has Elizabeth Warren accomplished in the Senate? The Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, yes, yeah, she came up with that, but she was a professor at the time. Nobody accomplishes anything in the Senate. <laughs> That's pretty much true. And, of course, now... Um, the the friendly turtle, uh, Mitch McConnell, who was highly praised at this uh, luncheon at noon today, um, has been sitting on a huge number, close to 400 bills that were passed by the House. And a lot of them, frankly, aren't terribly important, but they're incrementally important. And for McConnell to just sit on them, he's sitting on a bill that was passed by the House to uh, curtail the cost 
of drugs, of prescription drugs. And of course, we heard uh, Donald Trump talking about how this is the kind of thing that why we ought to be able to work together, but the do nothing Democrats don't. They did it already. They sent it over there. And Mitch McConnell just sits on it and does nothing. Infrastructure. There are all kinds of things that the House has done. They're not as grand, perhaps, as you and I would like, but they're not nothing. And nevertheless, uh, Mitch McConnell refuses to even consider them. And and meanwhile, he gets all upset. I, I have to say, I'm not a big Chuck Schumer fan, but I thought that his closing arguments uh, yesterday before the vote uh, in the Senate was pretty damn good. Pretty yeah. good. I didn't like and, his thank yous, like at the end of the trial when he's thanking everybody. You, no, well, that, you lost. You don't get to thank everybody. Yeah. We're almost out of time. Very quickly, <laughs> tell me about the wonderful Matt Gates, who voted with Bernie on the War Powers Resolution. He has been yep. consistent on that. What did Matt Gates say this week? Yeah, that? today he he filed charges in the House Essex Committee against Speaker Pelosi because she quote destroyed official records. In other words, he thinks that the copy of the State of the Union address that she tore up was an official record and that that's a violation of uh, his deep commitment to uh, uh, to making sure that official records are kept. And uh, that's uh, literally uh, so preposterous. And of course, it won't go anywhere. But he was, uh, he was pointed out, he... Uh, Jim Jordan, all of these clowns uh, by the president today uh, at this luncheon address, which can only be described as as so bizarre. I mean, it was sitting out attempting to eat lunch while uh, watching it. And it was just appalling uh, to think that this is the kind of communication that the president of the United States thinks is great and important. And it was just it was as my mother used to say, it, it was the voice of befuddlement. Yeah. He just randomly would see people, he'd say, and then thanks, and then I might be forgetting somebody, oh, and then he'd say, and Senator so-and-so. It, it, we deserve, this country deserves far more than this guy gives us. And it's not just his policies. It's the fact that he is incapable of any human empathy. He is incapable of anything uh, that makes him look uh, remotely presidential. And that's why it's important to get rid of him. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Joni Ernst from Iowa, who used yep. to castrate pigs. Yes, she did. And uh, uh, she didn't castrate any pigs this week, but she did say that if Joe Biden was elected, it is likely, she said, he will be impeached quickly. Now, in the last day or so, she said, well, it was a hypothetical, as if we were supposed to forget that she actually called for Obama's impeachment back in 2014 because she said he was making so many recess appointments. These are appointments that you you make when the Congress is out of session that he was, quote, becoming a dictator. Mm. That was in 2014. So now she says if Biden's elected, why, look, this could Absolutely. (laughs) He could be impeached under the standards the Senate is using now, the House is using now. I think she she is an evil person. He's Uh, self-impeaching. Let me ask you about Joe Biden. Yeah. Didn't do well in Iowa. 
Didn't do well in Iowa. Right? He did not. Had he said, you know what? My son Hunter is going to testify and bring on Parnas, Rudy, Mulvaney. If it means my son testifies, all these other guys will testify. Bring it on. He would have won Iowa. (laughs) You're the only person I know other than myself who believes that the biggest mistake made was that he didn't volunteer to do that and urge his son to do the same because it would broken the logjam. And we would have heard what John Bolton you know, may or may not have to say, um, and Parnas, and, uh, and, you know, I realized that uh, Triumph did try to talk to as Parnas, and, and that didn't work too well, but the, the what's happened in Iowa is so preposterous. I mean, I know that, you know, this app that no one had tested, very few people uh, in these party caucus uh, locations had even downloaded the app uh, to their smartphone, even though it didn't work, but they didn't know it didn't work because they hadn't even tested it. There were no, there were no uh, instructions about it, and it's, uh, it, you know, it was invented by some guy who uh, worked for the Clinton campaign. And I don't want to be too conspiratorial, but since we know that Hillary Clinton didn't run a great campaign, uh, apparently now her staff members uh, can't run a good private enterprise either and create a simple relatively simple app that just counts numbers and uh, even that they screw up and you notice that they are kind of subtly already blaming bernie for what's going on in iowa because he of course forced them um, to do the popular of embarrassment to get the popular vote and they say well now this is a new it's a new thing we have to carry you only have to do two more counts instead of mm-hmm. just one count and it's all because of bernie and i mean i think he's going to do when all is said and done he, he probably will by any stretch of the imagination not just popular vote he'll probably win iowa but you know by this point mayor pete the shiny object that i think everyone was fascinated with for at least a week and a half uh, now is already and has since Monday been claiming that he won Iowa. And He's it's, a despicable, I don't know what you feel, but I, I think he is a despicable human being, Mayor Pete. This man, that victory speech was yep. pure narcissism. It was, it was just, it said absolutely nothing. He says <laughs> nothing. Nope. There is one good thing that comes out of Iowa, though, and I think that's the end of the Iowa caucus. Because if you look at the terrible political institutions, notwithstanding the Senate, but the, the public doesn't need caucuses. They're inherently anti-democratic. If you work at night, you can't get off right. in most companies to go. If you need child care, you can't get it. And the turnout in Iowa is absolutely pathetic. It's projected to be 170,000 people. That's 70,000 fewer people than in the contentious uh, Iowa caucus in 2008 when Barack Obama emerged. Are Iowa voters particularly engaged? Um, That's part of the myth. But then in statistics that came out Monday night, 35% of the people who voted in the caucus 
said they only made their decision within the last week. So all of the year plus that candidates have been roaming around Iowa, apparently they hadn't quite caught on with a lot of Iowans, and they didn't know until the last minute who they were going to vote for. And there's a famous thing, and people should take a look at this on YouTube, is a woman who votes for Mayor Pete, who's in in conversation with other supporters of Mayor Pete, one of them says, oh, yes, and he's, uh, you know, he's married and uh, into another man. And and this voter, an elderly white woman, says, what? You mean, you mean he's, he's gay? And the the other people go, yes, oh, yes, he's gay. And this woman goes, uh, well, why wasn't I told that? Oh, my God. And the response was, uh, it's common knowledge. Apparently, a year plus wasn't common knowledge enough. They should have, when you look at 170,000 people, it's about 11% of registered Democratic voters in the state of Iowa. When you look at what happens in the average uh, Democratic or kind of middle uh, state with a primary, I looked this up the other day, 52% of registered Democrats voted in the New Hampshire primary last time, 49% in Wisconsin, and that 170 people, 70,000 represents 16% of Democrats in Iowa. So it's time to scrap this goofy caucus system. Well, dump it. The Soviet Union, the CIA didn't see the Soviet Union falling. Mikhail Gorbachev didn't see the Soviet Union falling. The people at the top never see what's coming. They just don't see it. Nobody saw Nobody saw Trump toppling the Republican Party. And it happens very quickly. The Soviet Union fell very quickly, the same way the Romanovs fell very quickly, because they didn't see it coming. And the Bushes didn't see Trump coming. And if you look at the Democratic Party, it is a hollow shell of self-serving Clintonites, Bidenites, Obamaites who are just cashing in. They are just, you know, they're feeding off the trough. They're there to just sup off the Democratic Party. And Bernie has come along and Mm -hmm. they don't see it coming. But he is he literally like Trump, like Trump, because Trump was supposedly a Democrat and Bernie is supposedly not a Democrat. He is taking over the party and there's going to be a cleansing. There's going to be a purification. And they they don't see it coming. They don't know how ridiculous they look. The Chris Matthews, the Rachel Maddows, these people who just want to maintain the status quo. And it's not even incrementalism. It's nothing is. The- no. Well, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, in case anyone needed any more uh, evidence that we really don't need to hear anything from her again, 
if you promise the moon, she says of Bernie today on some show, uh, you better be able to deliver it. And then he suggests, she suggests he couldn't deliver it. Well, if you never try, if you never try to dramatically change the message, um, you never know. And at a time like this, um, I think you need bold ideas. You need people who are going to stand up for something. And um, Bernie's, uh, you know, he's my guy. He wasn't, as you know, some months ago. But yes. these other guys are just uh, fizz fizzling. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, even Elizabeth Warren. I mean, they just there's just nothing there. Elizabeth Warren, I think, did good uh, in her town hall on CNN a few nights ago. Um, Biden it was terrible. I mean, I it was awful. And um, and uh, of course, uh, shortly after we. Uh, we uh, finish this uh, little taping. Uh, there will be more. Bernie will be there. Mayor Pete will be there. Amy Klobuchar and uh, Deval Patrick. Now I don't even know from Bank why Capital. Deval, Deval Patrick. Patrick from Deval. Yeah, Deval he's... Patrick. But does that give him the right to have a town hall? I don't know. You'd have to ask CNN that. Well, promising the moon. JFK promised us the moon. And we had no idea how to get there. They had no idea <laughs> exactly. how to get to the moon. They just knew we That's were right. going there. Yep. The Reverend Barry W. Lindsay. I'm sorry. No, I mean, people ought to watch the whole speech that that uh, Kennedy gave about going to the moon because it's richer than the one or two sentences that most people have heard. It's yeah. well worth listening to yep. in its entirety. Yep, 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 yep. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is an ordained minister in the United Church of, let me see if I get this right, Christ? Exactly. Thank you. You can remember for a full 45 minutes. Follow him on Twitter, Barry W. Lynn, two R's, two N's. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's always fun. Thank you. Stand line for one second. Sure. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. It's crunch time in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire primaries are Tuesday. It's Friday. Citizen Bacon joins us from New Hampshire. Hello, Citizen Bacon. Hello, David Sullivan. How are you this evening? You've been traveling all over New Hampshire. You were down in Washington, D.C., covering the impeachment trial for us, and now you're back <laughs> in New Hampshire. How do you feel? Yeah. You must be exhausted. I need some sleep. I'm, yes, I'm exhausted. I have too much tape. I don't have time to do edits and run around. There's they're, they're they're everywhere. They're they're like coming out of the woodwork. They're you know, There's like twenty twenty something events a day. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. They're everywhere. And, and all the and now the reporters are swarming too. Like it's you know. It's like I tried. I went to a I went to a Pete event today. I pulled into the parking lot. 
and there was like a guard or something, and I got into the thing. Then they came over to my car and were like, oh, you're not a good enough reporter to park here, and I have to go down the street. So, I don't know. It's too, it's very hectic, though. So, what is the on. mood up there? What do you sense? Desperation in the Biden camp? Oh, well, I haven't seen Biden since before the, 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 you know, his, like, you know, how he, since before we knew how poorly he did, which rightfully so. I mean, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but that's, I mean, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, his events don't seem to be as busy and stuff as, you know, some of the others. Like, I think I said last time, like, he had a decent crowd, but he had such a small venue. Um, I don't know. You know, he's, he's, he's one of my least favorites. So. What are your, what are your thoughts on Tulsi's thoughts and prayers for Rush Limbaugh? Did you see that? You no, know, I did. I, no, cause I'm, 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 the more I'm running around, the less I have even time to, like, look at stuff. So, yeah. I, you know, I'm so behind on, like, news and things. Isn't that interesting oh. how that happens? And I noticed that in the rotunda <laughs> watching the other reporters running around. And I found it with myself while we were covering the impeachment. And I found it when I was covering the presidential race back in 2016. If you're covering it, even for a comedy show, I know that sounds pretentious, but still <laughs> you are covering it. You don't know what's going on. You can't see the forest through the trees. Well, I mean, without a doubt, people have their Twitter stuff, and they're 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 at least informed on like the the headlines. I think, but I don't. People don't have time necessarily to go more in depth and stuff. But I'm not even like, you know, getting the, the Twittery stuff. So I don't even know that's the headline stuff. But you are looking yeah, so forward, Citizen Bacon. I can tell you're looking forward to the end of the New Hampshire primaries. Yeah, I mean, I've seen enough of these candidates. I, I don't, I don't even really care about them very much anymore. It's, I still really like talking to the people, like that go and you know the the regular folk and stuff, and people who are there for whatever cause or something. But the candidates themselves, I am kind of bored with them. You've been. But I've heard their things so many times, you know. David Bacon, you've been covering the New Hampshire primaries for the David Feldman Show for about three months. What? Did you learn? What did you not know going into it that you now know? Oh, um, it's interesting. I don't know. Like, I, I, I it makes, it, 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 it really makes me think about like who exactly who is it that wants to be freaking president? Like the. Uh, to 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 want to endure all this nonsense, you you have to have you know you have to have such an ego. I mean, it was interesting about Yang, where he's the one who's like, yeah, it is. I I didn't, you know, this wasn't my dream to become president. I'm just, you know, it seems like this needs to be done or whatever thing. You know, he come out, you know, he's not like a lifetime politician of this stuff. But I, so it, I don't know. It just seems I can't I can't I can't imagine the ego one must have to have to in order to you know do this. Every, of all, all the all candidates, the of all the candidates, whom did you get closest to? Whom did you talk to for the longest stretch? Was it Tulsi? Probably or Bennett, Bennett, really. Bennett? Probably Bennett. I, I probably talked to Bennett the most. And Bennett would, Bennett would, because he had the, I mean, Tulsi probably had just as much. Well, Tulsi was a little, it's a little bit more popular than Bennett. But, you know, Bennett had the time and stuff to, to you know, 
answer my question. I mean, you know, sometimes he answered my questions pretty, you know, for a long clip. I think Corey a little bit answered them too, and I never, I don't think we ever played a full like Corey answer. Um, so yeah, probably Bennett I talked to the most. Okay, your I car think. is broken down on the side of the road. Of all the candidates, oh. who is most likely to stop and help you? Huh. Yeah. You know, it might be Deval Patrick. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, at least he, because he, he, he at least is pretty, he seems like he's actually a general, generally a, I mean, Corey seems kind too. But like, uh, I don't know, Duvall really seems, he, I don't know, he just, he seems like he, he's very nice and apologetic and like, oh, bless you, good, you know, whatever, and, you know, like that kind of, I don't know, he seems, he seems willing to listen to your stuff, even though that's not what you're asking me, but, I don't know, he seems like a generally, like a, like a nice guy. Okay. And I, that's not something I would have, I, I've kind of re-thought of that, too, like, after listening to him, and I, I ran into one of the, uh, that, the, 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 um, uh, what's his name? The guy from the Union of Concerned Scientists. I saw him yesterday, and we were talking about stuff. And I guess Deval Patrick was the only person that, over time, at the beginning, he was like against the whatever treaty the concerned scientist guy was talking about, or whatever. Like the Deval Patrick actually, over the few times that he saw him, switched his platform and is now in agreement with the concerned scientists. And that's okay. pretty cool too. Okay. But, who is the candidate you learned to hate the most? Well, I knew it from right away. Uh, I mean, Pete. Yeah. And what is the problem but, with Pete? What is the problem with Pete? I don't think he has a soul. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I don't think he has a soul. Yeah. You know, part of the pathology of homophobia is you create... People like Mayor Pete, who have to spend so much time in the closet that they learn to say things that mean absolutely nothing. That is the 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 one of the horrible side effects of not allowing people to be how they're born. Because when he speaks, you can just tell that this comes from decades of learning to to say things that mean nothing to not tell the truth about what you're feeling and what you're thinking and that's who mayor pete is that victory speech that he gave after iowa prematurely told me everything yeah. you need to know about mayor pete that he can talk for 45 minutes and say absolutely nothing you get no idea of who he really is or what he really believes he might as well be a republican i feel sorry for him the struggle that he's had and I wish him well, but uh, he's uh, he's dangerous. He is a dangerous man. He really is. Okay. Yeah. 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 Clipping letter one. What do you got for us? Okay. So this is just a this is just a brief. It, this is I don't know. It just I just have a tiny interaction with Yang, but I'm kind of in an area where I'm not supposed to be, so I don't really. I just sort of you know, say hi, and it's good to see you kind of thing. Okay. I, I don't know. Citizen journalist it, it, David Bacon. 
And then they try to form a gaggle, so I kind of clip it together, but, like, no one is prepared because there's just too many people and this is at this event, so the gaggle thing kind of falls apart, so you'll just hear some, some people get some kind of questions in, but I don't know. Here we go. Always good to see you again, Andrew. You're the best. Why are you going to win? Uh, you guys, because I'm the best opponent to take on and defeat Donald Trump in the general. Yeah, it's so good to see you again. I really love your spirit and your, uh, what you say and stuff, and it's good to see your energy and all that stuff. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Thank you so much. I am pumped to be in New Hampshire. We're going to grow and grow and max out February 11th, right when the voting starts. And the best thing is, you know when we're going to know how the voting went? It's also February 11th. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be a great night. Excited to campaign here in New Hampshire uh, every moment between now and the voting. Hello. What are your plans in South Carolina after this, Mr. Yang? Perfect. Oh, I can't wait to get to South Carolina. Go. It'll be Thank good fun. Any thoughts on Biden going after Buttigieg today? Thank you, guys. That was fun. Yeah, it just was a little interaction. I mean, I, you know, like I have so much stuff, but I just don't have time to edit. Like I was at the thing with Bernie. Bernie talked at the uh, Museum of Art at like 11 o'clock after Trump gave his State of the Union thing. I was there, but, you know, I'd have to edit, cut up stuff. But so it would just be him talking. So I don't we'll know. We'll play it Tuesday. That's, we'll play it Tuesday. too much. Too play it Tuesday. All right. Clipping letter two. Okay, so this is going to be, I, I'm not going to get her name, but she'll say, this is going to be two people. This is at the same event where Yang just was. Um, so this is going to be one of the, the first person is going to be a local New Hampshire uh, the activist person. And then it's going to, it's just going to be real brief. And then it's going to cut into the woman who was like, I guess it's called stumping. She was stumping for Bernie at this uh, the event in Concord, which was like a, um, a climate, youth and climate change kind of event. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, one of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement. And remind us what the Sunrise Movement, movement is. Remember we had that lady a long time ago uh, uh, on, and, and, and that was the, the, like, uh, the thing that, like, uh, uh, what is it, AOC or whatever, like, joined. She went into that office. Uh, early on, and like that's part of the Green New Deal came out of that, or part of that, or okay. you know that kind of stuff. We, I talked to that lady a long time ago. This lady will talk all about it. She's do better than me. Clipping number two. Sure, my name is Josie Pinto. I live here in Concord, and yeah, I work for New Hampshire Youth Movement, which is partnered with Sunrise Movement. Right. We are running a field program among young people here in New Hampshire to get out the vote. We recently endorsed Bernie Sanders. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we are specifically telling young people that he is our candidate on the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and Free right. College for All, right. which are our top issues. Um, so we are getting out as many young people to vote in New Hampshire as we can. So far, we've pledged over 11,000 young people to vote right. across the state. Right. So, yeah, we're just doing as much work as possible on, on college campuses throughout to get out the youth vote for Bernie. Awesome. Um, hi, I'm Varshini Prakash, and I am one of the co-founders of Sunrise Movement, and we launched Sunrise in the summer of 2017 with a mission of making climate action that is rooted in racial and economic justice a priority in this country for the first time in our history. Right. Um, and so, you know, we're just young people who are fed up with watching our politicians uh, be completely asleep at the wheel. We are fed up with banking on generations above us to solve sure. this problem. Yeah, yeah. So we're taking the reins into our own hands and we're building political power in this country for a just and equitable future. Right. I am one of the co-founders and currently serving as the executive director for Sunrise Movement. And we are building an army of young people to stop the climate crisis and create economic prosperity. How old are these people? 
Um, twenty young, you know, lower twenties, I guess. Okay. For all, um, and we actually endorsed Bernie Sanders through a pretty intensive democratic process earlier this year, and have decided uh, in resounding numbers, over eighty percent of us uh, of our membership, three thousand people voted, and decided that Bernie Sanders was the best candidate on climate running in this election and in this primary. So I believe in Bernie Sanders because he has been the most consistent on this issue for his entire political career. I remember watching him on the campaign stage in 2016. In 2016, calling the climate crisis an urgent and existential threat, and he was laughed at by pundits for saying that. I remember him talking about the role that the fossil fuel billionaires had in bringing us to this crisis. And I remember thinking as a young activist at UMass Amherst, oh my God, this is the only presidential candidate that I have ever seen who seems to be taking this crisis as seriously as young people in America do right now. So Bernie Sanders is also the candidate that has gone out and put forward the most ambitious, the most comprehensive, the most far-reaching climate plan called the Green New Deal. How many people have heard about the Green New Deal? All right, I'm glad to hear that. And the Green New Deal is fundamentally a plan that actually meets the crises of our lifetimes with solutions that are equivalent. And what Bernie Sanders understands that I think sets him apart from every other candidate is that we don't have time, that we have to tackle the climate crisis along with the crisis of economic insecurity in this country, along with the crisis of white supremacy in this country. That at once, we can tackle climate change, economic inequality, and racial justice through a Green New Deal. And what it will take is not tweaking little things in the tax code. It is not about uh, passing small taxes and fees or small incentives on the side. This will require a massive socioeconomic transformation of which we haven't seen in this country in a half a century or more. It will require an absolute mobilization of all of our resources. It will, crea it will create tens of millions of jobs. It will ensure that clean air and clean water are basic human rights. It will ensure that we are moving to an 100% renewable energy economy. And we'll do all of this right now and fast. Wow. Great job, Bacon. Great job. Very inspirational. These people are in their mid-20s. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, she was definitely, yeah. She have, uh, and, you know, she, like, uh... You know, it was like Bernie's handler lady was there who, like, escorted her around. It was kind of interesting because I only got to ask her that one little short thing. Mm -hmm. But I did, I did, you know, it's this, this uh, what is it, his deputy, whatever person. And I've seen her so many times, so I just was like, hey, can I just ask her ask uh, her a question? And she was like, yeah, sure. So Great. that was kind of cool. Great. Um, but whatever, you know. Great. Yeah. Clipping letter three. Okay, so this one is going to be back down from D.C. This is going to be, there's three Amnesty International, uh, they're college students who, you know, were down for a little bit to, you know, talk to the, the congressman. They were sitting on the floor next to the elevators, 
And I was like, okay, I saw their little folder said Amnesty International, so I talked to them and they gave me a, you know, a quick interview. So they all talked about their issues. It's kind of interesting, you know. And again, it's, the, the young people and some of the older people too are, are just an inspiration to, you know, keep going and do stuff because you need their, like, uh, energy and things, you know. This is Citizen Bacon down in Washington, D.C. last week covering the impeachment, talking to representatives from Amnesty International. Yeah, this is David Bacon in the uh, for the David Feldman Show. It's January 27th, and I'm in the, oh gosh, the, oh, Dixon uh, Senate building. I'm going up to see Amy Klobuchar, and I ran into three um, uh, women who I guess are working for Amnesty International. If you guys want to say what you're doing, your name, all that's whatever would be great. I don't know who wants to start. Sure. Hey, it's really good to talk with you all. My name is Emma Marks. I'm a volunteer with Amnesty International from Wilmington, Ohio, and we're here working on some legislative policy that would help missing, murdered indigenous women, oh, wow. as well as helping to end the crisis of gun violence in the United States. Oh, wow. And uh, hi, I'm Lucy Engie. Uh, I am also a volunteer with Amnesty International. Um, I work on legislation uh, in the state in coordinating uh, efforts in the state of Ohio from Wilmington, Ohio. Oh, wow. My daughter goes to school in Ohio. Oh, awesome. I'm Ellie Henze. Um, I'm also a legislative coordinator for Amnesty International, and I go to Ohio State University, and in Columbus and in Ohio and our national campaign, all focus on um, refugee rights and ending gun violence. Oh, wow. So those are all important issues. Oh, gosh. I don't know where to start. The first one that you said, though, was what about women? And uh, to talk more about that. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, in the United States, four in five indigenous women will experience violence at some point in their life. And it is absolutely important that we're collecting data on the violence that is happening and coordinating. Did she say four out of five? I believe so, yes. Efforts between tribal, local, state, and federal authorities to make sure that we can address this violence. Is there, is there because if that's a tribal uh, thing mm -hmm. and people are maybe on reservation, is there a different law that is focused on that since they're tribal? Yeah, so it's really confusing, and each case is different. It depends on so many factors, including um, who the victim or survivor of the crime is and who the perpetrator is and each of their status, as well as where the crime takes place, whether it's on tribal land right. or United States territory. Right. So with all of those different considerations happening, we find that police offices and police departments aren't working together and aren't talking to each other. So it's taking longer for cases to get processed. So for instance, the law we're working on is called Savannah's Act. It was named after a woman called Savannah who disappeared and wasn't found until eight days later because the information about her case wasn't being transported. And unfortunately, when she was found, um, she had already been murdered. Oh gosh. Yes. Oh gosh. Of course. She was eight months pregnant um, oh, when wow. the crime happened. So her child survived, um, but she unfortunately passed away. And we need legislation like Savannah's Act um, to make sure that we first understand why these crimes are happening, who's committing them, and against whom, um, and so that we can take that data to move forward and create policies to keep our indigenous women safe. Right, and, and just to uh, play off of that a little bit, I know when there was all that um, uh, protesting of the, 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 the pipelines and stuff up there, mm -hmm. because I think some of that was, like, there was, yeah. like, people were just, they were doing all these crazy things to all mm -hmm. these indigenous people who were fighting up for, I know it's a different thing, but still, yeah. it was like, it's so... And there was news yeah. that came out about it, how, like, uh, they just are just, we're not, yeah. we're not treating, God, the people who were here first at all yeah. well. It's yeah. so sad. Yep, it's um, incredibly frustrating, and it's for so many reasons. Um, there are things we're looking at where, um, in areas where there's a lot of natural resource extraction, right. these huge towns are being created at the drop of a hat. Right. Um, like and fracking these, or something. Yeah, like through fracking yeah. and through oil extraction. Right. 
And because these towns are created so quickly and they're only for workers, they are almost right, right, entirely right. male, and there right. isn't the police department. And it's the like the old gold rush days. It is. Yeah, with the yeah. brothels and... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it's really, really concerning that we aren't seeing justice um, in these communities, and we're seeing them able to take advantage of Native folk. Wow. And, and what was the topic that you mentioned now? So to... uh, our other piece that we're Gosh. lobbying on today is Amnesty has a big gun violence campaign, ending gun violence campaign. Sure. And uh, we're working on uh, three different pieces of legislation legislation. Um, one is breaking the cycle of gun violence, um, and that is provides uh, funding, federal funding um, through grants on the community level, so helping uh, hospital intervention programs, providing counseling and other resources. Um, a lot of times when a person experiences gun violence, they also then are likely uh, to commit violence themselves, so stopping mm. that cycle and breaking that, and also helping, um, helping violence before it happens, so addressing um, different concerns there. Our other two pieces are uh, extremist protection orders, and um, that would allow um, if someone, for example, was a harm to themselves or others, their family member could report them, and through court action... Is that the red flag thing? Yes, okay, that's, it's, yeah, that's yeah, its yeah. more formal title. Um, and so that would allow uh, people to, uh, the government, the police to apply for a court order, which would then allow them to take those weapons, and then there would be a court hearing to determine if that person was or wasn't a risk, and that would happen in a matter of hours, and then um, within several days that court hearing would occur. So that's huge, um, specifically for uh, suicide, which right, right, is right, like right. two-thirds of... Um, what gun violence is committed in the right, U.S. Right. and when you yeah, it's commit mostly suicide, handguns and stuff. And when you commit, no talk about yeah, when you commit suicide by gun, that instantly kills you. There's really no way to save you. So right, it's too easy. Exactly. So there's no second thought. So this would also really help um, suicide prevention. But our final um, is uh, universal background checks, right. and that uh, allows for if like you buy a gun or I buy a gun, we have to be background checked. Right, right, so right. that's making sure. Everyone who still wants to buy a gun, who should have a gun, still has their gun, and that just creates a check to make sure people who shouldn't be having guns right. don't have those guns. Right. Yeah, it seems like those are all pretty reasonable um, um, requests, and a lot of the candidates, uh, a lot of the Democratic candidates sort of are mentioning similar things. A lot of them, like, back out. Background checks is like the one that everyone just throws out because it's so easy and yeah. who argues with it. But yet no one does want to talk about handguns because of the suicide. Well, not because of that, but that that's huge. And the domestic violence thing with the handgun, the handgun kills way more people than the the, the it's like it's like the car to the plane. Mm -hmm. The handgun to the like assault weapon. We go after the assault weapon. Oh, a plane crashes. It's like oh, we have to do all this stuff. Even though there's so many more people dying in cars every day, there's so many more people dying with the handguns every day. But we have to work on that stuff. Yeah, and we think there are just so many um, different aspects to the gun violence fight. And we think that while universal background checks are important, a lot of different programs are important. And when you talk to impacted communities, you hear that universal background checks aren't the solution for them. And instead, mm -hmm. it's investing in these organizations that are doing things like peer-to-peer -peer counseling, survivor to survivor counseling and assaulter to assaulter counseling to okay. try and get folks the help that they need to feel safe in their communities so that they can continue to create a space that's safe for them. That's why we're really excited about bills that would help fund those organizations at the local level. Right. There was something, this is from a long time ago, but um, there was something about like, a, there was there was like a attack or whatever in like an Amish area mm -hmm. and like the Amish women made food and stuff. Mm -hmm. They're like child or whatever was killed, they made food for the person who, like, they caught the person, and they, like, brought food to the person, and just were like, we just forgive you, like, and it was like, 
it's almost impossible to put yourself in that position, but it's almost like we have to all, I don't know how we all get to that point where you're just like, but I don't know. That was something that I just remember. That was just yeah. like remarkable. It's like, oh my gosh. And sometimes you hear that, like the thing that you were mentioning about the, 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 the assaulter. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Meeting and like, yeah at least understanding or seeing like it's not like the person necessarily was after that person who did get killed but gosh maybe they can come together and work through things or something like that and i think we are seeing hope on this fight um we know that for instance the cdc just finally received funding um through new legislation to actually research gun violence as a mental health crisis right, right so right. this fight is long and i think a lot of young people feel really frustrated we feel like right. we've been working on this issue and not making progress right. but i want to leave people with some hope um that right. with new research we'll be able to explore more options it's the young people and the old people that all have to come together because that's the two groups that have the time, the mm. retired and the young before you've gotten to those. It's so true, though. Isn't yeah. it? And yeah. it's like, and, and, and there are, I could talk about that all day. But yes. And do you want, do you want to add anything? Uh, yeah. Sorry to come so fast over there. Yeah. So uh, the last piece that we didn't talk about was um, one of our priority campaigns. We're not here to lobby on today, but one of Amnesty's um, priority campaigns is refugee rights. Hmm. So we have our global campaign where we um, work to pressure the president and our administration to increase the refugee admission numbers. Right, um, right. So yeah, we, good luck with this one. Right. Yeah. So, so in our communities and our schools, we're passing resolutions that say that we support um, refugee resolution to kind of put pressure on the administration to increase the numbers. Right. And there's our domestic campaign where we focus on um, pressuring the government also to close the child detention camps that um, yes. are absolutely horrid and do not even have to cover the welfare standards that like group homes have to in the United States. So it's absolutely ridiculous. People die all the time. These So they absolutely do not provide the necessities that the children need. And it's disgusting that these even exist in the United States. So that's the main focus of the Amnesty International Refugee Rights Campaign right now. So I just, okay. There's so many problems and issues that we all have to face and deal with. How do you stay motivated and focused and wanting to keep going and help? Like, what is it, you know? So uh, Emma and I are both part of the Wilmington College uh, chapter of Amnesty International, and it's really, I think, great to work on these issues with your friends. Yes. And it's very supportive, yes. and um, we all are very passionate about these human rights issues, and um, so getting to work on them together, it's really special, and yeah. Get out and join groups. Yeah. Work together. No, and Amnesty being nonpartisan really allows people from all different sides to work together right. on things through a human rights lens, right. and uh, that's that's a special way to address. So issues even if that people are coming from different sides, you can find a, Amnesty, an area. Amnesty is home yeah. to anyone who wants to work on human rights issues. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're left or right, yeah. whatever you yeah. want to be. Right. Republicans and Democrats here to lobby with us today. For right. Amnesty. We were um, yesterday at our training. There was a man named Sean who was speaking to us, um, who was a volunteer in Greece. Hmm. Um, and he was doing search and rescue for um, asylum seekers. So they'd oh, wow. come on these boats um, that were just falling apart, that were way overcrowded. The boat would tip over. Right. And then Sean, as a volunteer, would head out into the ocean um, to save these folks who were drowning. Right. Um, and unfortunately, oh, he was arrested on entirely trumped up charges. Um, you should head yeah. to our website to read a little bit more about his case. It's insane. Right. Um, but he's facing 25 years in prison. Um, for helping these folks. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the end of the visit, um, when we had finished our meeting with him, we thanked him. We said, thank you for the incredible work you're doing. And he says, I appreciate your thanks, um, but I don't want you to treat me as a hero. We need to normalize treating refugees as humans and normalize the actions that keep them safe. Right, right, right. And I think that's part of the attitude that we need to bring to this movement. Not right. only that it's incredibly hard and heavy work, but also that it's work that we should be doing and that we should treat as the usual way we treat others. 
great. That artist, I think, uh, I think his name is Ah Weiwei. Mm-hmm. He was living in Berlin, and I think he put the the, the uh, those orange uh, vests that the yep. life preservers on. I don't know what building it was, but on the columns, and you could see then visually how many people have yeah. you know. And there's other artists who've done other things, and that's another topic. Okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. I guess that's it. Great job. We're gonna have to keep sending you down to DC, Bacon. Well, it's, I, you know, I, I love again the enthusiasm, you know, and they were just like bright eyed and bushy tailed. Yeah. They were just down for like a little bit. So they were more excited than I was interested in interviewing them, I think, you know, yeah. like they parked right up and it was, that was so fun. Yeah, yeah. Great. And how old are they? I don't know. They, those are college students. They're, you know, and it was so, I don't know, somewhere, you know. Yeah. I made a note. You said something about indigenous people. We have to respect the people who were here first. And and I wish you would extend that same courtesy to me instead of trying to move me off this show. Yeah, it's because you were here first. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're right. I I should listen to my own uh, rhetoric. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. The hypocrisy. Much respect, David Feldman. Okay. Much respect. Clipping letter four. And by the way, there's room now to play... Uh, Rev, the Reverend at the end. So, clipping, oh, cool. clipping number four. What is that? Okay, so this is going to be a um, uh, indigenous activist uh, who I met the same place. Uh, this is so. This this is going to be at the, the barber uh, poor people like campaign event. The same place where I, I talked with the code pink that we played last uh, right. last show. Okay, so this is just another activist in the room. So she, she's pretty cool. Speaking out for indigenous people. Yes. Okay. This is David Bacon from the David Feldman Show, and again, I'm at St. Mark's, uh, January 29th, and um, I'm here with, what was your name again? Irene Montantes. And you are part of what group? Or I'm a part of an Indigenous Peoples Collective in the Northeast San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles County. Indigenous Peoples call that area Tongva, Tataviam, and Chumash. Oh, wow. And what is like your, what's the, what's the big thing that, what's the biggest problems that you have and that you're trying to solve and that kind of stuff? We're just, we're trying to raise a awareness on what's happening with indigenous communities. We're continuing to lose our lands. Um, Indigenous peoples have the highest rates of poverty and addiction on reservations. Um, Indigenous peoples um, have gotten forgotten. They have been forgotten through media, through political um, conversations, and we want to be at the table. We want to be heard, and we want uh, awareness to be raised around what we're losing, not just our lands, but we're losing our culture, we're losing our ways, and we're suffering just as much as um, the people, in, uh, ever, all people in the United States are suffering, definitely more. Right. Yeah, I talked with a, a woman from Amnesty International, I think two days ago, and she, and she they were working on an indigenous rights thing, and they were saying something like four out of five indigenous women suffer violence sometime in their lifetime. Well, right now, a lot of, in my community, a lot of indigenous women are have started a movement. It's called Murdered and Missing Women in um, indigenous women and girls. Right. Um, the biggest issue is that there's all these man camps, which are these oil companies right. on reservations, uh, because the laws are different on reservations and on U.S. soil. Um, men are taking advantage of that and taking women from these reservations, and they end up.
up missing, and um, some of them end up found, and they found out they were I, they were violated, um, raped, and murdered. Right, and because the laws are different, because it's a that it's sometimes there's, aren't, there's not tracking of stuff of the people or something, and so it's hard to get a lot of information between different groups to like actually put a stop to that. I, I heard. That, that's another thing is that that um, when these women are are murdered and they're taken to to um, the facilities that families go and they um, claim them, these people aren't educated on how to um, identify where these people, where these um, women are coming from. Some of them are identified as Mexican, Filipino, or mm. other, and they're not being counted as indigenous people, so there's no accurate count on how many are missing. And the count is coming from the communities, and they're crying out. They're trying to, their voices are trying to be heard, um, and they're trying to reach out to mainstream media. It's right. just, it's not enough. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, everything seems like it's such a slow process. But thank you so much for being a part of this, and uh, I, I, I guess I'll see you during the March stuff. Yes, thank you for being here. Thank you. The March stuff. Is that kind of like the David Feldman podcast stuff? Oh. Because it was a multiple, multiple thing. I don't know which part I'll see, or right. but, you know, uh-huh. a whole bunch of March stuff That's all day great. long. It's There's great. a whole bunch of March stuff. This is yeah. Great. This is the best you've ever done. We're gonna have to start sending you on assignment after New Hampshire. Clipping okay. letter five. Okay, so this is gonna be um, a bunch of the German. It's I guess during while while there, the, the, all of the German. Um, uh, uh, Foreign exchange students, I guess, met up for the week. They did something in New York City, then they all came down to um, um, D.C. So it was like German foreign exchange students all from around America who had stayed here for a semester or something, then, you know, met up in D.C. So I saw them in front of the, you know, four protesters out in front of the Capitol, interviewed them, and then the next day... Uh, we, I ran into a few of them again in in the in one of the Capitol office buildings, and then so I got to talk to a few of them again. So I just spliced it together. So it's kind of cool that we'll hear they'll talk about stuff, and then we'll hear them actually have done some of the stuff that they'll talk about. So that's kind of fun. Okay, David Bacon and, and, and enthusiasm. I'm great. Okay, great David Bacon talking to German foreign exchange students. Okay, again, out in front of the uh, Capitol building, uh, I don't even know the date, there is a large group of, oh, maybe high school students, and you're all from Germany. So you guys aren't going to be able to vote. No. Okay, what are you doing over here? So we're We're at a high school. We're with a program called CBYX, Congress Bundestag Youth Exchange. And, um, yes, all... school's free, right? College? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we're all exchange students from all over Germany that live now all over the U.S. And this oh. week we're in D.C. for the week. And right. we're doing all this cool stuff. We're meeting with representatives, senators. Who have you met with? Not, Not yet. Oh. Tomorrow. Oh. We're just tomorrow. trying to... Yeah. Who, who are you, do you know who you're going to meet? No, no. The plans are going to be up to, uh, today, this evening. And right. it's also going to be the other way around. So America American students have also the chance to go to Germany and go there to school right. with the yeah. Bundestag. Oh, and the yes. program has existed for 36 years. It's a 30. So oh, wow. Years. So we are... We are yeah. Oh, yeah. So the program is sponsored by the government. We are basically youth ambassadors from Germany. So Awesome. It's a very cool program. So please apply for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the cool thing about if you go to, like, English, American people go to Germany, like, all the kids speak English. Like, you guys, yeah, like, yeah. like yeah. you, like, take German, English, and another language, I think. Whereas over here, all the high schools are dropping and have been dropping German, which, I mean, it is tough. 
It is a tough language. Although you've shortened the words. You haven't, you, you stopped piling them all on, which is very tough to follow. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I love Germany though. Uh, uh, so what, what, how, what have you, you so you've been, you're, you've done stuff in America around with your stuff and now you've met up. So what have you liked about America? The people. the people. Oh, <laughs> wow. You're like almost unanimous there. Like this situation right now, like you're so open and that's not common in Germany. Like people are so <laughs> yeah. serious and, and not nice. Uh, hey, how are you? And we didn't yeah. really do small talk is so nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not like the others. So, you know, you don't, don't judge, but. <laughs> yeah. um, oh my gosh. Uh, so, so the people, what else? Where? Yeah, you like the high school in general? Yeah, is it curricular? Okay, so here's another. Here's an, uh, just another thing I'm just mentioning in, in passing. So uh, uh, my friend's dad uh, worked for a Bayer, and and he transferred to America, and so I grew up with a German kid, and then went over there and did whatever. Anyway. He ended up being very disappointed that he missed a lot of the German education time when he was here for middle school and part of high school because he thought you guys got a better education in Germany than we got here. Yeah, and I yeah. just went, right? <laughs> you agree, yeah. right? We all, most of us have to repeat our year yeah. when we go back yeah. to Germany. Yeah. Oh, you go, oh, really? Yes. yes. Not, wow. It's not yes. always the case, but sometimes yes. your school requires you to repeat the year. There's a private school in New Hampshire called uh, uh, St. Paul's that does that same thing. Almost all the freshmen who come in, they will repeat like a grade before they... I don't know. It's just a thing I'm trying to relate to. The, I don't know. That's all I got. You know, hey. Yeah, I don't know. But they, it's just interesting that they have to repeat too. Like they, that private school also doesn't think that like the school is good enough. But you guys are learning a ton. What's the need? Wow. What have you learned? Do you think in America that you might not have been able to learn in Germany? About American history, all the Civil War stuff. Oh, right, 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 right. About the political history. Okay. We don't have them in some in most schools in Germany, and that's like something really It's cool all more curriculum stuff, yeah. not that yeah, extra yeah. kind of, yeah, like yeah. home ec we have and stuff, and maybe shop class or that something like so that. That's so cool, and that's, that's so yeah. needed. But yeah. you guys have a way better, like, um... Uh, like, you, aren't you guys more unionized? And don't you, or, or don't you have a better like um way? Like, if say you don't want to be like a doctor or something, say you want to be a plumber, yes. don't you have a better like trade yeah. school yeah. thing yeah. than we do? It's yes. like you when like you're job. in Germany, you can pick and choose. Although if you're like deciding for one school for one path to go, you can still like change it up. You can still change. Right, you're, you're not locked into that path. Yeah, you can always change your path, and even if you're like over twenty. You can still change your, like, what you got, like, what you learned, your education. You could still go to another path and decide on another job. And you don't, you're not expected to go to college. Right. People yeah. who don't yeah. go to college still, still have fine. a valid, valid job and get a good, yeah. have good, good income. Money. Yeah. And so if yeah. you guys end up going to school, am I to assume that you'll go to school in Germany? Yeah. Or will any of you consider going here? Because you'd have to pay over here where there would be free, too. So I guess you're going to go to Germany. Yeah. Probably, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. But, um, for example, I know some other exchange students who consider going to college here, so they're now in high school and kind of applying already. Right, right, right. Well, I just want to, I've taken up some of your time. I don't want to take up too much time. Um, oh, have a wonderful time talking to the centers and stuff. Um, you know, you their buildings are like right over there. You can like wander the halls and stuff. Yeah, you've already said Yeah, I know. What am I telling you? Ah, uh, uh, there's a cool, no. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this is David Bacon again, and I ran into, or they noticed me too, three of the German students that we talked to, that I talked to briefly, yes, God, it was only yesterday. 
What? Oh, yes. And, and, and another, another person. Um, so, uh, you said you, so today you actually got to go to the senator's offices and stuff and you, and you got to see someone who, the fans of this show are going to be amazed at. So go ahead and tell me what you've got to do today. So we went to the office of Bernie Sanders and took some pictures because we knew it, he wasn't there yet. Right. But then we saw him in the elevator. It was just for a second. Right, but right, it was right. like a fan moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the impeachment trial uh, or the... Yeah, we're in the yeah. trial phase. It ended early today because there was just the the the. the, the... Didn't know that. No, I know. Yeah, right. But you, you just looked out. Um. Uh. Yeah. Whatever. Um. So, and did you get to see anyone, or did you? No, get to... not not really. But I'm still waiting here. Maybe we can see someone just right. for an accident or whatever. But it's pretty exciting, and it's so everything is so excited here. I mean, this time is like a history time now. I know. So it's. Crazy. Tomorrow. It's crazy to be here. Are you guys going to be here tomorrow? Uh, um, we go to the White House, actually, tomorrow. No, this evening. No, he'll love oh, this evening? There's going to be, there's gonna be a, uh, at noon here, mm -hmm. there's, there's a protest every day. But tomorrow it's going to be big. And then Whoa. there's a whole bunch of stuff tomorrow. I just saw some small protesters, Democratic protesters, mm -hmm. good sides. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's them. all anti-Trump. It was all anti-Trump stuff. Mm -hmm. They were here earlier. But then tomorrow, like... So, uh, uh, there's a, there's like a Reverend Barber from mm. South Carolina who's coming up to speak. It's like the poor cool. people convention or some kind of thing. There's, but cool. apparently there's going to be there's going to be civil. Uh, mm. There's people are going to get arrested on purpose on the steps oh, tomorrow. Wow, that's so, that's so, so cool. Yeah, so like no, noon here, and then I think then they walk over to there at some point. There'll probably be mm. stuff here. I don't know. I don't know. And I have to leave, but I'll get to see a little bit of it. Um, and what did you? Sorry. <laughs> like, oh, no, no, and what? So what did? Did you get to see anyone or talk with anyone? I, I didn't. Um, we saw the staff members of like our um, sen sen senators, senators um, and we talked to them. Right. I had three meetings, um, but I didn't see anyone like popular. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But you still amazing trip. It yeah, is. yeah, yeah. It is so we learn a lot. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And That's... actually, can ask the staff members for some opinions and all that stuff because they said to us, "Yeah, you can be open. You can ask whatever you want to." And right. then, I mean, we're teenager. We're naive. Right. We're like, yeah, "Yeah, why not? We right. can ask whatever we want to." Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And that's that's a cool opportunity, even. Because we are so young and yeah, well, it's, I, 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 I would, yeah, it's well, the youth and the elderly are the people who have more free time to do stuff, and it, those groups, those two groups, need to get together and yes. and change the world yes. because yes. you know it's, and it really falls on you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it you is. know, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's up to everyone so to do true. their part. You have to do what you can, you know, and stuff. So yeah. I don't know, but thank you so much. Yeah, for, you thank know, you. It's, it's amazing. Great job, David Bacon. Great job. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was cool. Clipping letter six. What do you have for us? Okay, so this is going to be, I, she's like a guitarist. She's a musician person who, she's representing the swarm, the capital people who are. Silent. The ones who, the, Silent but deadly. Well, it's because that's what you can get away with inside the, um, the, the, the inside the office. The, so the she's Senate a office musician office. who doesn't sing or play an <laughs> instrument. <laughs> she can't. She can't. She walks around, which she'll have it with her during the uh, during the event. But yes, she won't play it inside. Once once it like moves outside, then they 
walk over to the Capitol building at a later time, then then you actually will play okay. the So Let, Let's play clipping letter six. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is David Bacon with the David Feldman Show, and I'm. Uh, it's uh, January 29th. I'm at St. Mark's, I think it is. Yes, Saint Mark's Episcopal. And um, what was your name again? Tay Phoenix. And you are with a group called. Uh, well, I'm with Swarm the Senate, right? um, Remove Trump. Right. And uh, I mean, I'm involved with a lot of groups, but that's who I'm here in D.C. with. Right. And I saw you yesterday. You were in front of the uh, Calder statue in, in in one of the Senate buildings, and mm-hmm. it seems like you guys have been putting on um, at least an action for a few weeks now. Um, so we have been here since January 6th. Right. Uh, there's actually a big group who uh, were here in November. I was not among them then. Um, we've been here since January 6th. We've been visiting offices, senators' offices. We've been holding space in the hard atrium, the right. Russell Rotunda. And then we've been engaging in protest and nonviolent civil disobedience um, for weeks now. So right. we're going into week four. And today seems like it's a bigger event, a special event. There's some other groups that have come um, the Poor People's Campaign, I think, mm-hmm. is downstairs, and they're going to be taking part in some of this. Yes. And maybe there's other groups involved, too? Yes. Uh, there's. It's like an alphabet soup. I couldn't possibly list sure, all of them. Sure, sure. among them, obviously, the Poor People's Campaign, the Center for Popular Democracy, Women's March. Um, I know Indivisible has been throwing in. It's There's just a lot of different groups that are bringing different things to the table. And, like, had, I'm experiencing boundless gratitude for right, that. Right, right. So it should be a really big uh, demonstration in, in, in the Senate building today. I mean, yesterday yes. you probably had 30 people or so? 50. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then today should be even more, and it will be exciting. And then you guys are marching over or walking over to the Capitol building, I think? Yes, that's right. And then later tonight, there's a bigger, uh, at least the Poor People's, the poor campaign, people's campaign, have a 530 thing that's later correct. tonight. Yeah. yeah. I unfortunately, I have to get back home. but Where's uh, home? Uh, New Hampshire. Okay. But I'm stopping and seeing a friend in New York City. But yeah. anyway, yeah. I, you know. This was like a bonus. Like when I met, I met you guys yesterday, because mm-hmm. I was trying to get some senator people, and I found out about your, or, and I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, I have to stay longer. I wish well, I could stay I'm even so longer. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, well, we're not, I mean, we're not an organization, so we're, we're a swarm. So we're not an organization. We are a swarm. We're, we're self-guided. There's a lot of us from a lot of different groups all coming together. Um, that's, you know, that I think is, is a really wonderful way for uh, movements like this to function because we right. don't need to ask permission. There's not bureaucracy. We can be nimble and, and we move into the space as we need to. And right. that's what this swarm has been doing. I really liked the, the, yesterday, the, the quiet, the silence, mm-hmm. just the shirts on. It yep. was, it's very, it was very profound and very good. And I'm looking for so much forward to today to see <laughs> today how big going it's going to be. I know. I'm so happy I'm here for at least some of this. So yeah. and say your name again. And, uh, Tay Phoenix. And you play the guitar and stuff sometimes. Yeah. So I didn't get to hear you because I guess you're not allowed to play in the Senate building. But yeah. maybe today when you're walking? Well, or you're actually, if you're if you're here in the... I'm, pl- I'm, I'm opening up the whole oh, awesome. thing at 10. So be sure to get right. some recording of that because right. I think it's going to be really good. Um, Both things are starting at 10, though. Yeah, well, do what you got to do. I know, I yeah. know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's also video online if you want to go look. Uh, um, I did, I did uh, performance in Mitt Romney's office a mm. few days ago. Um we were sent, his staffers were like really like moved. It was, wow, it was good. lovely. It was like a really great connection. Well, he might actually be helping us out a little Let's bit. Let's hope so. I know he um, was talking. I saw him. He, he uh, I saw the impeachment. I saw most of it yesterday uh-huh. and he was talking with some of his people during the little break time. And it was, yeah. good to see. and you know, what was very interesting was, um, uh, Susan Collins from Maine yeah. came over and talked with, uh, uh the, the defense or the, 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 the Democrats yeah. Uh, people. Yeah. Uh, Anything so. else you want to ask me? No, that's all. So okay. good. Yeah. Nice uh, thank you. you so Okay. That was fun. Yeah. You know, it's just, she's part of that swamp thing. It's cool. They have all these, those great, they're like black shirts and then they'll have a little saying like, uh, 
Trump is guilty or there's one that's like um, uh, extinction or no extinction, um, 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 bribery, extortion, impeachment, right. Uh, removal. And so I have that shirt. So I, I was wearing that at like, you know, the events up here now. So I'll be on the side of the wall, you know, I'll be on the, in the little press thing and I'll have this like black shirt with all this, you know, I love it. Like wearing that kind of thing and being at the event. So I'll be in the background of some of these shots and it'll have a nice, you know, you know, get Trump out of the office kind of shirt. Okay. So whatever. Clipping letter seven. Okay, so seven is going to be more DC. This is just going to be some sort of miscellaneous protest stuff. There's going to be different groups who then more after they do that big, big silent protest at the, the office building. Then different groups all march together over to the Capitol building. So there's just going to be some different sounds and stuff of the, that stuff. Okay. So with a little interview and thing like that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. What is your organization? We're RefuseFascism.org, and we're joining up with Remove Trump right. to walk on over. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on today. It's amazing. I got yeah. to see Dr. Reverend Barber speak already, and oh my gosh, oh, what, a, yeah. what a great organizer. It's amazing. so cool. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're probably going to that thing tonight at 530? Yep. Yeah, I have to get out of town, but this is great. Yeah. Awesome. I was so disappointed. I've been here. This is my third day in D.C., and the past two days, there's been no one, and I was getting all depressed and sad that no one was doing anything, and then I find out today there's all this stuff going on. So it renews my spirit in, a, in yeah, everyone. Some of us have been out here for like a week, but right, yeah, right. most of us came down today. Yeah, I think so. Monday there were like four people, so, and I was like, really? Yeah. The impeachment's going on right now. The hearing's right going there, on right exactly. now. Okay. We just need to be disciplined together. We got three speakers. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. I've asked them. They can. Everybody's free speech, but if they would give us a moment to do what we're doing, okay? Stay disciplined, stay focused. If you're here with the swarm group that was announced and all of our partners, we know why we're here to demand that there be witnesses and not a cover-up. There's gonna be a there's gonna be a step onto the steps. There'll be some speakers. I do want you to know that the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, we had some other events, but it was important for us to stop and come where you all are, where we all are together. Yeah. But we have to step back because we got another one to go over. Right? Ladies and gentlemen, we have three speakers. We are here today to demand a witness. We are here today to demand witnesses. We are tired of seeing Southern justice in the Senate, the kind of justice where it's already decided who's going to get acquitted and who's going to get found guilty, where the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, and the judge work together. Senator McConnell has brought Southern justice to the United States Senate. It is time for it to be over. We need all witnesses to come forward. We need a real trial, and we need to stop the cover-up and stop the cover-up now. Is it true for, for uh, yep. anybody? Okay, I just want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. What do they have? Let them testify. Let them testify. Stop the cover up. Stop the cover up. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. My brothers and sisters that are listening, 
what we're seeing in the United States Senate is as bad as what we saw in Jim Crow. Yes. It is McConnell and other senators bringing all Southern justice to the United States Senate. The same kind of justice that got the killers of Emmett Till acquitted. acquitted. The same kind of justice that did not get those who failed in small training government found guilty. It is Now, who's speaking? That's Dr. Reverend Barber. Mm. And did he end up getting arrested? Say again? Did he end up getting arrested? No, he, like, they had, the people who did get arrested were a bunch of people from the swarm group. They had, like, a special meeting early on to decide, you know. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And the judges work together. They have a trial, but it's a phony trial. Yeah, you don't see him on MSNBC or CNN or the nightly news. It's as Ralph Nader always says, it's just reporters interviewing other reporters. Man, that (laughs) makes me angry. Okay, clipping letter eight. Who is Reverend Barber? Well, he's he's taken up uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's um, Poor People campaign. Uh, He's a a, a reverend from South Carolina. and you know he's really uh, getting a lot, getting a lot of different groups together. Uh, again, like at the morning event that I went to, you know there were all these union leaders who spoke, and all these different different religious leaders who spoke. It was just amazing. I mean, I yeah. wish I knew who more of the people were, but whatever. You would so think that this it would have been covered, uh, you know, mainstream. You yeah, would cover something I, I like know. this. You know, you know, it's funny because I did, like, I mentioned... Especially since we just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. Know, it's know, Black History Month. Do you think they would cover something like this? Go ahead. Well, I ran into um, uh, this lady, Beatrice, who's one of the, like, inbeds who I know from up in New Hampshire. And she was down in D.C. You know, she's out to Iowa and then she, whatever. So I saw her in the Senate building and I was telling her, like, oh, there's a... You know, I told her all about the thing. She's like, "Oh yeah, I knew. I know nothing about that." But mm-hmm. of course, she gets sent. She gets sent only to her. You know, she can't just do stuff on her own. She only goes to wherever she's sent to. But it was like she she knew nothing about that event that was the next day. That is this you know whole Reverend Barber thing. Okay, clipping. Right. So this yeah. So this clip is going to be like that. The last bit that we had, you know, that's during the thing. The that's an amplified sort of speech thing. I think this last part. He's he's now leaving. The, the sort of the group that's going to be arrested is still there. His group is leaving to go to other things. There's a guy, it's me and a, there's a guy next to me who he knows, whose name is Mark, because we'll reference him. He is live streaming the event for something for for 
Lemon Barber or whatever. So he's walking backwards, and I'm just standing next to him walking backwards, getting the sound. And Barber's talking to me almost as much as he's talking to Mark. So it's kind of cool because he's just talking to the two of us. Okay. Um, and then there's a little crowd around, you know, around him. So, so I don't just see Barber, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. All right. I'm getting a chant going. Hang on. Whose show? My show. Who what? Whose show? <laughs> my show. Uh, it's my show, Bacon. It's my show, I, not yours. I know. You, you do great. Yeah. Don't patronize me. Not. I'm on to you. Whose show? My show. Yeah. Whose show? <laughs> my show. Okay. Here we go. You're not getting me to chant along, though. <laughs> okay. Here we go. <laughs> You see millions of people in the street. And one of the things we're hoping is that this will spark. People saying, stop just staying home and fussing at the TV and arguing and, and, and being mad. Mobilize. Show your face. Uh, put people with your body out. You don't have to do it violent. Do it non-violently. But come here. This is the people's house. It's the people's place. Uh, we need folk to mobilize. Yeah. And we need folk not just now for the here the impeachment, but we're hoping on June 20th, 2020, mass numbers of people will join the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, Poor People's Assembly, Moral March on Washington. As I said, around the world, in other countries, if this was going on, it's almost an arrogant way of saying, we're going to do this in your face to see if you will protect your own democracy. And, and there's a point that ought to be a point of no return. There's a point that we ought to say, enough. Even if they do it, they ought not get to do it in the dark. They ought not get to do it without thousands of people. You know, in some places around the world, there'd be millions of people in the street right now if they saw what we see happening on TV. Not even, it's not even whether he gets impeached. I mean, he's already impeached but found guilty. It's the trial itself. And we have fought against this stuff, particularly in the South. You know, Mark, we, we know about that. I've been a part in the last 20 years myself yes, of at least seven cases where people were found guilty for murder who weren't guilty yes, because of this same kind of foolishness. That's right. People not having the witnesses, lying about the evidence, the trial lawyers and the prosecutors and the judges in an unholy coalition, collusion. We see this happening. And this is bigger than Trump. It's about the very heart of our democracy. If this happens and goes down like this, it changes everything yeah, yeah, yeah. from here forward. Yeah. It, you know, I can understand why brothers in the street are so ticked off when they see what's happening here and then they see how they're treated in the judicial system. It's just totally uh, uh, wrong. It's the antithesis of democracy. And so we ought to be standing everybody. There's not a reason why everybody in D.C., for instance, that believes in basic justice ought not march every day you can by the thousand. We hope today will spark people's imagination that in this moment, there are moments in history that if you stand down, you are bowing down. If you be quiet, you are participating. If you don't say anything, you're just as guilty as the people who are doing what they do. My grandmother used to say it like this. If somebody <laughs> steps on you mm. and you don't say anything, yes, sir. you're not saying ouch is a part of the reason it keeps them stepping on you. 
Now, the other, my uncle, who's a little more crass than that, said if somebody <laughs> pees on you uh, and tell you it's rain and you know it's not and you allow it to keep happening, then you are at fault for allowing them to continue. Yes, sir. We are being lied to in public. Mm. We are being stepped on in public. Yes, sir. People are literally defecating on the, the system of democracy. And I know that's strong language, but it's time for strong language. Time for strong language. And we have to say, I'm not going to take it, and we're not going to take it as a people, and nonviolently stand up and protest. If you're not, if, if there ever was a time, it's right now. Uh, Rem Barber and, yeah. and Rem Liz, is, isn't it also true you all are taking over Dr. King's mantle and the Poor People's Campaign? When that was going on, Dr. King also had to walk and chew gum at the same time. He was leading the Poor People's Campaign, leading the movement in the South, protesting the Vietnam War. So we have to be on all these fronts, don't we? You have to be on every front. And not only was that, he was dealing with an electoral time when you had Nixon running, you had just had George Wallace. You had uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson saying he wasn't going to run. I mean, we don't have the luxury of choosing one thing. We have to know the moment we're in. And so, and it was unpopular. And it wasn't just him. That's what we keep telling folks. It was the women. It was the welfare rights, the Jewish Federation. It was Cesar Chavez. And I know, you know, it has its struggles. Even us standing up will have its difficulties and struggles. But we cannot, we cannot stand down. Every night, we are we are literally seeing people just lie <laughs> and make us try to make us think it's the truth. I see you, but we cannot stand down in this moment, and that's why the poor people's campaign is saying, "Liz and I, come on, Liz." We're saying we don't just need a moment; we need a movement. Right. Yeah. Liz, you want to say something real quick? Just the same people that are are blocking witnesses at this impeachment right. are blocking health care in the states. That's right. Are blocking voting rights across That's the it. country right. and are keeping wages low. And so, if they're, as Reverend Barber says, cynical and mean enough to be together, we have to be hopeful and powerful mm -hmm. and smart enough to come together. Right. And you see right. people coming together here. You'll see people coming together tonight on our We Must Do More tour here in Washington D.C. Connecting the poverty, the racism, the climate chaos, the the militarism of our community here in D.C. to the rest of the country. So, so join the join us for the Mass Poor People's Assembly. That's right. Tomorrow March it? on Washington, June, June 20th, 20, 2020. 20, 20. And, right. and guess what? No right. poor people, poor person in this country will get a trial like Trump's getting. That's, that's, that's right. White, that's right. black. That's, right. that's, that's, what, that's, that's right. why we got to stand. Not one poor person in this country would be afforded this kind of fake trial. Yeah. And so, as Liz said, the same people that are doing all the other injustices to women, to gay folk, are doing this trial. They are betting on us fighting in our silos, but we're going to make them have to pay that bet because we're going to fool them and join together. Amen. Well, there's only four people purchasing yesterday, and you got hundreds, if not thousands, today, so thank you so much, sir. Sorry, excuse us, everyone. Excuse us, excuse us, excuse us. That's how you can find out more about the Reverend Barber. And the poor people's yeah. campaign. Great stuff. Yeah, Bacon. so June, June 20, 2020 is going to be the big event. So everyone should go to uh, D.C. To learn more about it, go yeah. to breachrepairers.org. And uh, people should follow Reverend Barber on Twitter. It is Rev. Dr. Barber. That's R-E-V-D-R. 
Reverend Dr. Barber, B-A-R-B-E-R. He's the president and senior lecturer at Breach Repairs and co-chair of Unite the Poor, the Moral Movement, the Moral Revival, breachrepairs.org. Big stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah, Great he, stuff. Yeah, I was so, I was so happy to, to, to meet him and you know, talk to him briefly. But yeah. Fantastic cool. work, Citizen David Bacon. I'm proud of you. I love you. New Hampshire oh. is Tuesday. Get out there yeah. and yeah. report. <laughs> I'm not interested. I have enough stuff already. Right. Yeah, I'll go to a few things, but right. whatever. I'm bored with them. All right. Stay on the line for one second. Have you called in your backup e-coms now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly it in, Cole. Go ahead, Cole. Uh, he's, never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Connecticut, where Dr. Jay Sute is standing by. He is the hardest-working pediatrician in comedy. Hello, doctor. How you doing, David Feldman? Good to hear from you. Well, as my personal pediatrician, I always like to check in with you and give you some of the symptoms, and you tell me. I'm what... still waiting on that stool sample, by the way. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, I've had this cough that just won't go away. Yeah, I think I talked to you a little over a month ago when you were having uh, the cough issue. Yeah, and I really can't have, I can't, I had Jackie on. Yeah. But uh, I started. You must have wheezed. I was wheezing. Yeah, it was yeah. Jackie the Wheeze Man. He was ma So what is that? It's lingering? Is it because of the weather? What could it be? It could, it could just be that you developed a, a, a some kind of bronchial infection that has just lingered. Have you been on an antibiotic throughout the course of this at all? No, my doctor said he doesn't want to give me any antibiotics because he's hoping I'll no longer be his patient in a couple of weeks. There you go. That could work. That's a good strategy. Yeah. So, so yeah. The antibiotics, he says, you know, let's keep you off that stuff unless you really, really need it. The only thing I would say is if you've been coughing for over a month, you can have something called mycoplasma pneumonia that responds to Zithromax. And for people that have been coughing for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, uh, it's worth a try to, to that antibiotic if you've suffered that. You know, I mean, you were it's been over six weeks you've been sick, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, and, and at this point, you know, does it hurt to take a Z-Pack for five days? No, no, it doesn't. But that's antibiotics. 
It is, it is, but you know what? You haven't been able to shake this virus. Something they have said. Have you had a chest X-ray? No. You might want to start with that then. I mean, it's going on a month now. Just make sure that there isn't anything there to treat, and maybe something like uh, mycoplasma pneumonia will uh, show up on it, and you'll get an antibiotic, and you'll be back to not coughing anymore. But I thought antibiotics treat bacterial infections. They do, but you can have something called mycoplasma pneumonia, which can give you what's called walking pneumonia, and it's usually treated with Zithromax, five, five days of the medicine, and that doesn't act like a normal pneumonia where it's the lobe of your lung that gets infected and you get a fever and you're, you're very sick. Uh, it can just uh, cause um, uh, what's called a, a, you know, a bronchitis type of thing or, or a, 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 instead of a lobar pneumonia, it's just more of a, a full lung kind of uh, uh, inflammation. So it's possible. So if you've been coughing for a month, I would get a chest x-ray at the very least just to make sure you're not dealing with something like that. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, it's it's five days of Zithromax and the cough goes away in another five days. So Right. I just have know. to talk to my listeners for one second. Can you hold that for a second? Sure, I'm not going to do the boogie-woogie blues joke for those of you who are over the age of 40, okay? I'm not going to ask the doctor about the boogie-woogie blues, so knock if, it if off. If you don't take Zithromax, you may never shake that bo- boogie-woogie flu. So, you know, but no, so sometimes things just settle into the chest, and uh, uh, a Z-pack sometimes is a miracle uh, for turning things around. But, you know, I would definitely get a chest x-ray done. Has anyone li- listened to your your lungs to see if you have any crackles or any wheezing or anything? Yeah, or, I, I have doctors who listen to this podcast, and I have them. Occasionally, I put the mic to. Yeah, I, I had a checkup. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, you know, they know what they're doing. But if you've been coughing for a month, at the very least, getting a chest X-ray at your age isn't a bad idea. And what about just a genuine uh, ennui, a lethargy? Is that something I should be concerned about, or is it just February and I need a vacation? Um, I always blame it on the latter, but things do sneak up on you sometimes, you know? What do you mean? I, you know, like I said, it, it usually is just that, you know, you, you need a quick trip down to the Bahamas and then there's only three more weeks left of, uh, uh, winter and with springtime and then you're done, you know? But listen, pitchers and catchers report next Monday. So baseball season is almost upon us. Wow. Wow. Yes. I, I wish I, winter. I wish I, uh, was capable of being excited about that. Do children suffer burnout? Do babies get burned out, exhausted from being babies the way adults get exhausted? Is there a grind? I mean, if the kids, if the parents don't cut the shit with the flashcards at the age of six months, yeah, they could burn out. No, I'm just kidding. Are they, are they doing flashcards at six months? Baby no. Mozart? No, they can't even sit, sit, sit up with the strength of their own body at six months. They teeter over still. Does baby oh, Mozart work? Well- I doubt it, but I think any kind of interaction between parent, uh, parents and the baby is good interactions regardless of what the task is. But if you're sitting in front of a TV or listening to baby Mozart, but you're not paying attention or engaging the baby, then you're probably just spinning your wheels. Right. And it's not about how successful and brilliant your child is. It's about how loved the child is. Right? Well... It's both, and there's a whole bunch of other things that are important, too. But, uh, you know, like dashing good looks and everything else. But uh, 
But yeah, no, you're right. So I agree with that. Is it but safe to say that a child who feels loved yes. until okay. they're 60 will thrive more than a child who has fed flashcards and the Stanley Kaplan test prep school? Isn't it better just to love your kid as is? And well, what rest- is your goal, though? What is your goal? Is your goal to, to, to raise a billionaire or is your goal to raise a well-adjusted, functioning uh, adult human being? The latter. Yeah, that, then you're doing the right thing, you know. Kids have got to be kids, and too much of one thing is not good, and a lot of a bunch of different stuff is always stimulating and exciting to them. You don't like kids to play the same sport year round. You got to mix it up a little bit and uh, exercise other muscles. That goes for your brain too. So, um, but the kid is going to turn out the way the kid is going to turn out. He's going to turn out to be the same shithead his father is. Of course, that's the case. It's right. genetics. But what are you going to do? Well, but it's also not even uh, nurture. Teach your kids coping skills and resiliency, and they will do well in life. Right. You don't need to be hiring tutors and getting them basketball tutoring, exactly. and co- right? Right. You need to give them attention, and you need to give them guidance. And a little bit of love here and there when they need it. Did you go to a private school growing up or a public school? Uh, public school until I went to uh, high school. And then high school, I went to uh, uh, prep school. Oh, you did go to a prep school? Fairfield prep, yeah. yeah, yeah Fairfield. Isn't that a fancy prep school? It's, uh, sounds, it's, it sounds fancy. It, yeah, it's fine. I, I, uh, I got a good education there, and uh, it got me into a good uh, medical program. And look at me now. I am so happy. Fairfield prep, so... That must have been hyper competitive, right? But everything up until medical school was hyper competitive. Then you went to medical school. Finally, you're at the top, and it's pass fail. So grades don't even matter. Took the wind right out of my freaking sails. Pass fail. Yeah, yeah. Everything's pass fail. When I was in medical school, it was yeah. There was no uh, uh, ranking. I got to give the valedictory address, address just because I had the best material. So the idea is that all doctors come out the same. Yeah, we're all doctors. There's and, no difference. Well, and now they're just making us all you know cookie cutters. So you know it's going to be even worse. They're even taking away our personalities. And what what were you born with or what skill did you develop that made you thrive in medical school? What is the one thing that you were either born with or developed that made it easy for you to survive medical school? Well, the ironic part is I have a great memory and I take a great I can retain a lot of information. And uh, uh, now as I'm getting older, uh, I'm forgetting things and that information is disappearing sometimes. And uh, that's the the weird part of getting old is that you know you kind of peak and then things start to get harder to retrieve. But um, but no, I think just in my case, I was able to retain information and, and burp it back up to whatever professor or, or, or class uh, I needed to. to spew is it, it a back. photographic memory? I wouldn't say photographic, and it's certainly I can't remember. You know, my, my, the freaking vast number of medications I'm on that I have to go over every time I go to the doctor. So, you know, it's, uh, 
Yeah, it comes. It yeah. When I was younger, man, it was like like I remembered everything. But it gets harder as you get older, I guess. And, and the uh, secret to a good memory is that having a a big hard drive or caring. Because I sometimes think memory, like I, I notice, I remember the things I care about. Well, I don't know about your hard drive, but uh, mine's still working pretty well. So it's about your hard drive. It's not about caring. No, every you know, most most of life that's meaningful is about caring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Those are the those are the the best moments of our lives. Are those uh, moments where uh, things connect at some kind of a level with somebody? It's uh, it's amazing, and those are the things you look forward to uh, because they're so rare when it happens. Right, right. The coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. Are you for it or against it? Uh, with a line, maybe I'd, I'd do it, but uh, for the most part, <laughs> no. Uh, no, it is. It's just it's it's crazy because I gotta I gotta admit to you, I'm in I'm still in the midst of this epidemic flu shit that's going on. That's actual reality where kids are getting sick, parents are getting sick. We got flu A and flu B, and everybody's worrying about coronavirus, which really. You know, listen, if it's going to take us all, it's going to take us all. There's nothing you can do about it. But, you know, the, the, we got other shit, to, uh, other things to, to take care of. We got another two and a half months or two and a half weeks of the, the, the freaking flu, and people are forgetting about that while we're worrying about coronavirus. How bad a flu season has it been? It's been one of the worst ones I've been part of. I've written for a whole lot of Tamiflu this uh this winter and uh and appropriately so i mean i don't give it to everybody but i certainly give it when it's an appropriate thing to prescribe and i found myself in that position more times this year uh than in previous years so um it's uh and, and you know when stuff's viral even if you start them on tamiflu they're still shedding the virus it doesn't kill the virus like an antibiotic does so they're going to be they're, you start them on tamiflu they're going to be feverish for another three days and maybe not the five days you normally would get with the flu, but it's going to be, you know, four or five days, and they're still shedding the virus during that four to five days, and they still feel like shit. So it's uh, it's not like an antibiotic that, you know, kills the flu. You still feel lousy for a couple of days, whether you get the Tamiflu or not. And the vaccine, did it work the, this year? Uh, no, it doesn't look like... Uh, like it was uh, as successful as they had hoped from uh, early information that I've I've read. So you um, could have gotten the vaccine and still gotten the flu. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, on the, at the be on the in the best years, maybe you get twenty five percent protection. Last year, we got less than thirty percent protection from the flu vaccine the strains that we immunized everyone's uh, against. And boy, that is really uh, uh, dejecting when you spend the months of. Uh, December through the next uh, uh, March, uh, given flu vaccines, you know. Before you go, how's Rodney? Rodney is awesome. He is uh, uh, the greatest dog ever. He's uh, going to love the springtime. Once he can get uh, get outside and play with, in the pool and stuff, he's going to be great. He's starting to chub up a little, so he's got to get a little exercise in there. So is his dad. Yeah. You're getting a chubby. I'm, I got a chubby chubby before when we were talking about the coronavirus okay <laughs> dr jay sute is the hardest working 
pediatrician and comedy. And may I say, I have been enjoying the podcast immensely. Lots of uh, different uh, topics and very interesting people that you're bringing into uh, my world, which is uh, which is great. And I want to thank you for that. Well, we, we it's been a while since we had you on. You had a very powerful appearance the last time. Oh, yeah, the last time. They, well, I could have been powerful today, too, but I don't want to be too redundant. I want to mix it up a little bit. Okay. We'll have you back real soon. Dr. J. Sute, follow him on Twitter. Dr. J. Sute is his handle. Are you performing anywhere? I got a couple of uh, fundraiser things coming up. And uh, as I mentioned, I've been having a little trouble with the memories, memory, which uh, uh, my neurologist is working up. And I have kind of slowed down a little with the comedy because I find myself sometimes midway uh, 10 minutes, 20 minutes into a set and I forget what the hell I'm doing and where I am no. and what I've told already. Honest to freaking God. And it's, uh, it's a little, little frightening when someone's had this, this brain that's worked beautifully for his entire life. Now it's, you know, kind of misfiring a little bit. So that's, uh, that's what I'll do. But I, you know, I still have shows uh, coming up the next couple months, but I'm, I'm just not, uh, uh, I got to make sure that I, I, I don't want to be stressed by doing stand up comedy. I've been right. stressed in my life. So if I'm going to go up and worry that I can't do 30 minutes without having to, you know, stop and say, oh, geez, I forgot everything. Again. Why don't you just bring notes up? Uh, well, I could do that. I've seen that done at your shows. I uh, Yeah, I bring notes up. The problem is I can't remember where I put them. That's right. And and mine, too, is I just, you know, once I get started and I don't want to break stride. And, I know. You know. You know how it is. And I, I just know. I want to do it well. And and the fact that now they're making my appointments only ten minutes instead of twenty minutes, so I got to do the same amount of work in half the time. Uh, I got to be on my toes. I, I've been hitting bed around seven thirty, eight o'clock every night, uh, just so I can get up in the morning and do it all over again. So, but I got a few days off. My birthday is on Monday, uh, so I am uh, taking the weekend off and a couple of days next week to re uh, reaccumulate my body. Fantastic. Stand line for one second, Dr. Jay Sute. You got it. Nice to talk to you, David. Thank you, buddy. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. I'm knocking as well. I'm Come like, on. yes. Lane Hewitt joins us from CM England. He is our London correspondent in CM England. He covers London for us in CM yeah. England, which is about, what, 100 miles away from London? <laughs> it's nowhere London. We're like, it's the whole, like, Britain is London and uh, France is Paris. Yes. You Americans, damn it. Yes. Uh, I've not been to London for about 10 years. That's good enough for, for the David yeah. Feldman show to earn the yeah. title London Correspondent. I'll tell you what, though. I used to go often. I used to work for a train company. Yeah. And we had free tickets to go up and down the country, where, whither and thither, whenever we wanted. Mm. And I once got drunk with Peter O'Toole. You're the only person... In the world, who can claim that he got drunk with Peter O'Toole? Yeah, I said with. I was already drunk. Mm. 
I just got, I just got more drunk. <laughs> and this was because, on the train? Uh, yeah. Well, no, this is when we got there. There's a game that's you, you play when you're young and you just, you've started drinking. Yeah. Called the Circle Line game. The Circle Line is on the underground and it obviously encircles London. And what you do, you get on at one stop, get off at the next, have a pint, get back on the underground, Get off for the next stop, find a pub, have a pint. Get back on the end. Of, you, you try and go around every single stop mm-hmm. on the circle line, and we got about two thirds of the way around. <laughs> and my friend who lived in London, she was where the, her flat was where we were sleeping, basically. Right. Um, they were wasted. I was wasted. Right. But they were all for going back and going to the flat because we were going to go to nightclub in that night. Peter O'Toole. Thought, no, 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 no. Not yet. I'm not there yet. Oh, okay. Uh, we got drunk, as I say, and they went back to get ready, and I went to walk it off. I thought I'm not get. I can't get back on, on the underground. I'll probably be sick with the motion. I was that drunk, and I wandered into this little pub called the Coaching Horses, and uh, there was a little man there. Just one little man and a barman who had the same accent as me. It's very rare to go down to London and listen to a Geordie speak. So he clocked my voice when I went, can I have a pint of Stella, please? And we got talking about the North, da, 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 and I just heard a man go, young man! <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? Is he shouting to me? He went, oh, God, I, I, I went, oh, right. I went, do I recognize him? And the barman was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows Peter. I was like, Peter? Peter? Then I went, shit, I bet it's Peter or two. Wow. And I was like, whoa. I was obviously thinking, you know, play it cool. Don't mention the films because he's probably heard it a million times before. Right. Um, and all that stuff. And he went, another fucking Geordie, are we? And I went, uh, yes. Because obviously the barman was a Geordie. And he was, uh. What is a Geordie? It's someone from the northeast of England. Ah, okay. With my strange accent that people probably aren't getting in America. <laughs> like, is he Irish? Anyway, um. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, is he Irish, Glaswegian, or whatever? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, he beckoned me over, and I went and sat with Peter O'Toole, and I was like, this is just so surreal. He was talking about his bad back. And he was very drunk. Really? And Oh, yes. Hmm. And I was getting more drunk. And about an hour in, an hour and a half in, he went, Right, I'm off to work. And I was like, is he, is he going to work? Is he acting drunk? The barman, he went, hi. Because he was playing a guy called Jeffrey Bernard. There's a player called Jeffrey Bernard as unwell. Hmm. Who was a dr- I later found out was a drunk, obviously, and drank in that very pub we were in at the Coaching Horses. And the play was set in that pub, but like obviously on a stage. But anyway, as he was leaving, he said, um, Are you hungry? And I went, Yes. He went, Go to Soho, go to Sam's, and say, Peter sent you. And I was like, This is so surreal. Yes, I'll do that, whatever. 
got on the got on the taxi. Went to said, "Please take me to Sam's." Went all right, cool. Got there. And I went in, and the, obviously with with my accent again, I was going Peter Centers, and I called Peter Centers. I was going Peter Centers. And she Peter Centers. I was like. Peter Centers. <laughs> Peter Centers? That's going on. Christ. Like, Peter, send to me. Mm-hmm. Peter, send me. And they went, Peter, when Peter O'Toole went, oh, Miss O'Toole, Miss O'Toole, excellent, excellent. I was like, this isn't racist, this, this voice, is it? Anyway. Uh, and I thought I was going to get a free meal, and I didn't. The sat us down, and they brought this big, but white, sort of ceramic bottle. I didn't know what it was at first. And I thought it was a condiment. It was a big, posh place. And I was like, hopefully I'm getting a free meal out of this. And I mentioned to Peter O'Toole, they've given, they've given us a nice table and a lovely chair. And I started looking at this bottle. And I was thinking, I'll wait, I'll see, let's see what somebody else does with their bottle before I know what to do with this. I thought it might have been a condiment or something like that. But no, it was sake. Saw people drinking it. So I lift the top off and it stank. Not a fan of sake. And I woke up uh, two hours later on a carousel in Leicester Square. Hmm. <laughs> so that's my last sort of memory of London, really. Yeah. So it's ten years ago, that many, many moons. Many moons. Brexit. Yes. Brexit. Yes. Brexit. Is it different well, now, now that you've Brexited? I hate to say this because I was an ardent Remainer. Yeah. I'm sort of relieved that, like, this is a decision. And it sounds sort of like, you know, um, what's the word? Like a capitulation, but it's not. Um, it's just, it's just, but weirdly, the, the, the people who won, you'll find this with the Trump lot as well, because they've won. They're still very angry. They're still angry. Yes. And it's like, you've won. You keep rubbing it in our faces that you've won, but they're still like, they're like rage merchants. They're obsessed with rage. And, because um, they're still who they are. They wake up every morning and feel lousy, and nothing has changed for them. No. And they want everybody else to feel lousy. That's why they invented Brexit, so everybody could feel the way they do. They were hoodwinked, much the same as I think you're finding now with the, the Dems. A lot of, uh, well, how have things changed since Brexit began? And how long does it take for the, for Brexit to be over, to be out? This is the weird thing. All, all, all that's happened now, as of last Friday, is they are no longer responsible for us. So it means when it comes to lawmaking and stuff, which we could veto anyway. It was always a veto, so... This whole myth about uh, the EU decided our laws mm-hmm. was a myth. We could always veto it. There was always so. What's the, the biggest? Myth. What's the biggest change that you can expect? Um, is it possible? Is it possible that look? We hate Farage. We hate Boris Johnson. We hate the Tories. We're pro labor. But is it conceivable that maybe? Brexit won't be as much of an apocalypse as the technocrats from Cambridge have warned? No. And the reason I say that is, if you go back to the original EU referendum, 
Jeremy Corbyn, who was the Labour leader, still is just, um, he was criticised because for years he's been, been a socialist. They were very opposed to certain aspects of the EU. And that was, that was the sovereignty stuff and the, the fact that people are still poor and then the neoliberalism side of it. But the EU, what it did very, very well was protect rights and introduce rights that we didn't have previously. Workers' rights, um, benefits, everything. These were the rights that Thatcher was taking away. Yes. In the 80s. And the, the, the EU protected them. And mm-hmm. some of the ones we benefit from now, they even instigated. So not, not even protected, they came up with it. But Corbyn was criticised during the EU referendum for having his own... not being part of the official um, Remain campaign, basically. And that's he's, he was perfectly right to do that because the official Remain campaign, as well as the official Leave campaign, was totally dominated by the Tories. And the Tories' agenda is to sell off everything, destroy human rights... They, they say, oh, we're, we're going to control our own rights and have our own laws. What that means is the EU can't step in and go, you can't do that, you people. Because that's what they've done for like 40 years. So Corbyn, like, had to go for Remain because of his, basically his major support with young kids who were all ideal, idealistic. And like me, all I've ever known has been a member of the EU. Mm-hmm. We've never not been members of the EU. I haven't, and I'm 40-odd-year-old. Um, so he had to capitulate his sort of, like, socialist opposition to EU and stick with his new support, like like, like um, Bernie's support. A lot of them are very right, So young. the socialists had their own beef with the EU. Yes. And what is the socialist argument for Brexit? It's still the same thing because it's this. It's a. It's a, They see as us being a part of them and giving them money hasn't stopped people from being very poor. I see. Which is right. Like on a fundamental basis, we still have massive poverty in Britain, even though we're part of the EU, mm-hmm. which is meant to protect rights. But and is that because of uh, immigrants? What's causing? I mean, why why do you tack that onto the EU? The right. Say it's immigrants. That's the problem. They, as ever, they, the right use immigrants as a tool. Right, but why does the left? Why would the left be pro Brexit? Why do you? Why do you attribute? If you're a leftist, why do you attribute poverty to the EU? If you're a leftist, I don't. And I am a leftist. This is the thing. Um. It's hard to describe. The old leftists, like, like Corbyn and the uh, Tony Benn, they, they had legitimate concerns which were basically based around um, workers. Well, see, it's hard to describe because... It's, well, it's kind of it's like the left and the right in America both hate NAFTA. Yeah, and TTIP and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I see. see, what happened at the end of... I see about 2014, just after the, um, the Occupy movement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. TTIP was pushed all over, and it was the British government who was sort of heading it in, on behalf of America, in the EU. We were there, 
we were their voice box, basically. Right. right. And just as it, as the referendum was going on, there was a chance for all of the political leaders in our country to go and see a redacted version of TTIP because we aren't allowed to see the proper full whack. We got a redacted ver- uh, they got a redacted look and only had about half an hour each to have a look at it. And as a result, you're talking about the Trans Pacific Partnership, the Transatlantic, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. So that, that that was like that was the the Atlantic version of the Pacific one, if you know what I mean. Right, Same that thing, was, really. For you, for that was EU. that was what Obama wanted us to get into, but America didn't join it, right? Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's still there. It's, the EU still try to push it, right. but it's got massive popular opposition, and that's the that's the key. Because mm-hmm. Corbyn was like, "Well, TTIP's on its way out anyway, so if I, if I jump onto that," and and so you're saying Corbyn was against it? Yes, right. Because uh, within TTIP, there is the possibility of privatizing the NHS. So privatizing the NHS, privatizing yes. your house. Yeah, and TTIP was going to allow that, and we wanted to stop it. Yes, of course. Of course. Um. Well, it's you know what we have to wrap it up. This is great. We're going to continue this. Lane Hewitt comes to us today from Seam, England, where he is our London correspondent for the David Feldman Show. You're going to get press credentials like David Bacon and start making people's lives miserable. Uh, not if I'm half asleep like I am now. Okay, stay on the line. <laughs> How do people follow you on Twitter, Lane? I am on Lane Thomas. Hewitt, as Thomas without the S. Okay. We're going to have to get your anyway. press credentials. All right. Hang on for one second. Lane no Hewitt. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. Let us now go to Los Angeles, California, where Liam McEnany is standing by. He is the host of Tell Your Friends, the world's greatest podcast. His comedy album is Working Class Fancy, and you can catch him at Vitello's in Los Angeles, February 25th. He'll be headlining along with Chris Titus, Jimmy Pardo, and Wendy Liebman, well, or I think Chris Titus is... What? Technically, Titus is headlining, but I'm the real draw. I oh, think that we course. can all agree on that. Yeah. Vitellos, make sure to bring your wife and a gun. <laughs> a wife, a gun, and a really good friend who's willing to hang out in the parking lot for a couple hours. <laughs> There's a two-shot minimum. <laughs> As memory... Uh, Serves, this is where the great Robert Blake won an argument with his wife. Very few men actually win arguments with their wives. But I think this is where he walked away victorious. As I recall. He he had history's greatest divorce lawyer that night. Yes. Colt 45? (laughs) Colt 40 Feinberg. Colt 40 Feinberg, Yes. It was actually the name of a comedian from the 90s in New York City who uh, who would go on stage in an Afro wig and blackface. Really? And do a Chris Rock voice. And uh, and Howard, he, he was on Howard Stern a lot. And then he had Howard had him and Chris Rock on the same episode. 
And did Chris appreciate his his work? I'd say Chris was very polite, mm-hmm. like more polite than maybe Howard was hoping for. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, now he's a tennis instructor. Okay. Well, it's the end of the week, and that can only mean one thing, Liam McEnany. My and- psychiatrist has to re-up my meds? No. It's oh. listener questions. And we take viewer voicemail. Call us at 202-670-2752. 202-670-2752 is the number. And if you leave a relatively innocuous voicemail, we'll play it. I went through I, them. I, I found just, some. I just want to say thank you to uh, the listeners who've been leading, leaving feedback on iTunes. We've been getting some good reviews on iTunes lately. Don't. Uh, please, don't do that don't do what i'm just thanking these people for their nice i mean they're leaving nice reviews david i need you people know? that's how you listeners need don't do that don't do what they that I'm, I'm only talking about the good one i'm not ta- well i mean you know i could talk about the one stars but the, look you less there's some good five star reviews here dave listen to this need legal advice david uh uh, While well, reading aloud some of these very smart, very good reviews, blah, 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 blah. My dog Jameson took offense at your listener's tendency to liken the show's ambiance to fecal matter of the canine variety. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, here's the relevant part. Anyway, comma, there's definitely something wrong with Liam in quotation marks, but I mean that in a good way, unless he's a toxic Bernie bro in disguise. Mm. Um, I don't know if he thinks that I'm doing a character. <laughs> Like my name is, or maybe my name isn't really Liam. Right. These are these are comments on iTunes. These are comments on iTunes. Five this is star Bernie Ho baby cat territory. You're stepping. She updates no, her comments once a day. You know. No, no. Here's one from Clyde Ed. Okay, hang on for one second. How many stars did they give me? Uh, they, well, it seems like they gave me five stars. All right. As long as they're giving me five stars, I don't care what they. Right in the comment section. As long as, go ahead. Five hours of this podcast twice a week is not enough. Great guests, mostly very smart. Parentheses, especially Liam, hmm. and very very funny. Uh, and then I think they misspelled my name, especially Joe Devito and Aaron Berg. I don't get <laughs> uh, the discussions David has with Alan Grayson are high. I don't know who that is. Uh, hmm. Note: David is absolutely right about the Irish. <laughs> what did I say about the Irish? Uh, oh, don't you remember? That's second. from your. Uh, that's from. Uh, that's from Emilio's uh, greatest hits montage. Oh, I have that. I can't find the first thing he sent us. <laughs> but uh, here, let me play this from Emilio. I have never told you you're stupid. I have some guests on this show who are comedians, and you know. Some comedian, Ian Mac, uh, Ian, Liam McEnany, very funny guy. But when we start talking about the public option, he thinks he's being reasonable. Because I love Liam. He's regular on the show, and I say this with all the love that I feel in my heart for him. He's an effing idiot. Get the fuck out of my party. Uh, I think the correct answer is you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you should not only not be allowed to vote, they should take the vote away from you. You, you should not be allowed to vote, they should remove your 
Twitter, so you can't do sign language. Only the pure and only talk at your ass. That's your your butt flaps. Well, you're not smart enough, Liam. <laughs> okay, you're an idiot. You should listen to people who know more than you. Condescending. That's a pretty fancy word for a moron like you. Irish people are bigoted and prejudiced. Every single Irish person you'll ever meet is intolerant and prejudiced and makes up their minds about certain ethnicities before they even met before they even met the person. An Irish person will just dismiss them because all Irish people are racist. Can can I say something? I've known you a long time, right? But and don't, and don't take this the wrong way. And, and, yeah, you're an ignorant fucking asshole. <laughs> well, I just think and I just feel and I just—you're a <laughs> fucking asshole. <laughs> this person's a fucking Republican. You're a fucking Republican, but it doesn't match your drapes. Being a Republican, so you call yourself a Democrat. You're a fucking Republican, you fat fuck. <laughs> yeah, but that was directed at somebody else, not you. Who's that directed at? I don't know, but it, uh, it was not you. I know. <laughs> I love that. Because I, I have it in my mind that I'm a very gentle host. And that, uh, I, that uh, I never lose my cool. <laughs> and apparently I'm not. Thank you, Emilio. Emilio, that's that is the gift that keeps giving. Yes, yes. All right. So anyway, nobody gave us a bad review. Uh, not since July. Okay. What what do the what do the reviews say? What did Bernie Ho Baby Cat write? Uh, imagine the nauseating feeling that overcomes you when you're realizing you just stepped on a fresh pile of dog crap. Dot dot dot. And that feeling lasts anywhere from four and a half to occasionally six hours. <laughs> She's describing the show. Yeah. All right. Any other comments? She's over written iTunes? Uh, Trim down the episodes, big homie. It's intimidating to start. I'll try, though. Okay. Uh, the funniest, most informative podcast available. Susan Collins, every show, please. Ah, that's nice. Uh, stepped into a pile of dogs, sit at a wedding, and thought, at least I'm not listening to David Feldman. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, this cough won't go away. Uh, I just got back from Wuhan. Wuhan. Sounds like Al Pacino named a city. What should we call this town? Wuhan. He's uh, got a big ass. How many, how many points did they give us on iTunes when they insulted us? Uh, they all give you five stars. Okay. All right. 202-670-2752 is the number. Dial it, leave a message. And if it's somewhat cogent and clean, we will play it. Do you want to listen to some some voicemails? Hell yeah. By the way, I got my global I applied for my global entry program today. Oh, that's good. Like I have a feeling it's not too long before California gets it taken away too. Yeah, what is the global entry? Because I, I thought global entry was for undocumented workers. No, it's it's just if you're if you go and visit another country, yeah, and you have the global entry uh, thing on your ticket, you can just skip the uh, the line at at uh, uh, what do you call it customs. 
So it's just basically like a pain in the ass kind of thing. Doesn't your mother have uh, global entry? Everything with them is whores. <laughs> no, no, she has what's Sentry. It's just entry from Mexico. I see. I see. Your mother told me she had global entry. That's what she told me when she was Multiple working. It's not global entry. I'm sorry, what? Multiple inputs is not global entry. All right. We're having fun. We, we are. Have, we have fun here at the David Feldman Show. We always do. This is my favorite segment. I always look forward to this. This is what this show would be if I didn't have a conscience. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is basically how I how I really think. The rest is pretense. Okay, How's voice your girlfriend, by the way. I'm sorry, what? How's your girlfriend, by the way? How are you guys doing? Uh, you tell me. Last time she lived in Jersey City, I believe she was a <laughs> leggy brunette. Was is that the scenario you painted? Now you've known her a long time, right? Go on. Isn't she the woman you lost your virginity to? Didn't am I getting that right? You're thinking of my uncle Arnie. <laughs> No, but seriously, you guys dated in high school, right? Do you? Uh, yes, sure. Okay. Yes. And what happened? Uh, <laughs> I, just, I'll go along with you on this, but do you really think I lost my virginity in high school? Uh, well, okay. You guys met in graduate school, right? Postgrad? I thought you were going to say kindergarten. <laughs> you were teaching her, right? Yes. No, uh, no, no, but she was like your first girlfriend. No, the joke is I lost my virginity to her in high school. Uh, I was uh, 40. She was a high school. No, no. Was, uh, what, what, what is the scenario you're painting now? So I, no, no, no. You lost your virginity. I like high school. I know you lost your virginity in that prison GED program, <laughs> but I meant your straight virginity. Yes. Go ahead. I lost my virginity to her in high school. I like that. How'd that work? Remind me. <laughs> I don't know. It was over so quick. But no, I, I want to hear who I was in high school. Well, you were. You know what? You know exactly. You know what? I do know exactly who you were in high school. You were the kid who was nerdy and didn't have a lot of friends. But then you convinced yourself that it was your decision because you were so much smarter than everyone else you went to school with. And so, like, even though you only had two friends, you were like, we're this the guy who's secretly this, cool. This is correct. Yeah. That I I thought I was cool in high school, right? <laughs> you were like the nerd who thought he was too good for for the like popular culture. I'm not sharing this penis with anybody. They don't deserve it. <laughs> I'm just gonna stay home and study for my SATs and practice the piano and go to Hebrew school and do whatever my mother says because my penis could wait. Until it's old enough to be enjoyed by a woman worthy of it. <laughs> right? Correct. Yes. But you didn't start dating in high school until you were 30. Come on. Paint the picture. What happened in 35. high school? Come on. I, I want, I, make me happy. Describe what I was like in high school. You probably played sports. I played freshman basketball. You probably just weren't very good at it. The coach loved me. All right, I blew yeah. up. <laughs> it was a Joe Paterno situation, I guess. Yeah, Papa. 
Papa. Papa. Papa Joe. Papa Joe. Don't burn the roof of my mouth, Papa Joe. Look the other way, Papa Joe. So I, I lost my virginity in high school. Describe what happened for me, please. You de- you describe it. Make you know. I like your description. I told you this in confidence. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Describe Wait, it. I just, I just drooled coffee. <laughs> describe describe what it was like <laughs> who is the girl you tell me this in confidence i told it to you in confidence but go ahead <laughs> describe it to the listeners you did tell me like a month ago although you didn't ask me not to repeat it on the air to be fair okay go ahead i lost my virginity to this woman in high school uh-huh how did it go because uh- i told you how it went tell the listeners uh well you know it was uh it was after a party uh-huh. uh and there how was, old like, was a, I how old was I you were seventeen yeah there was the party was breaking up because yeah. it was seven thirty p.m. that's the kind of parties you went to <laughs> um and you like you guys had played seven minutes in heaven except the girl that that uh that the bottle landed on for you. Started crying in the closet because she was worried she wasn't going to get the deposit back on the bottle. <laughs> was that spin the bottle? They called it seven minutes in heaven. Well, seven minutes in heaven is when you spin the bottle and then you disappear in the closet with someone for seven minutes. And whatever happens, happens. But you only have seven minutes. You only have seven minutes. So that was enough time for you to lose your virginity three and a half times, but it didn't happen that way. Or to see where her parents bought their clothing. Check right. the labels. Check the labels. You you went through all the pants pockets to see if there was any change. <laughs> okay. This is this is true. So we did seven minutes in heaven together. And uh and did I did I satisfy her in seven minutes? Oh no, you guys didn't make out. She started crying. Yeah. Oh, uh, I forgot. You know, she she kind of just like I call that were... getting wet. You <laughs> call it crying. <laughs> and you decided to try to comfort her, and that just freaked her out more. Right. Uh. So you so you both made a promise to say that you'd made out. Right. But then she was le- she left the closet and she was crying and hysterically and uh, it was just pretty clear that nothing happened. So then, uh, the end of the night, this woman. Uh, I won't. Well, she was a girl then. I won't use her name, but uh, but she, uh, you know, she she felt sorry for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she offered you a ride home. Right. And, you know, one thing led to another. You guys started kissing in the in the front seat of her car. Right. Because you had a car in the Upper West Side somehow. Yes. I was living in the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the time. Yes. Right. I don't know where you were living, but you were in the car. You're making out. Right. Uh, and what and did she look like? What did she look like? Yeah. What did she look like? So the woman you're dating now. She was skinny and Jewish. Uh, she had brown hair back then. Uh-huh. Her teeth were a little fucked up. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Why were they fucked up? Uh, I think her parents just didn't, I don't know. I don't know her, what her parents did with her dentist, but they just a little, not too fucked up, but like a little snaggle tooth, you know? 
Yeah. It's cute. Yeah. It wasn't bad. It was cute. Uh-huh. Uh, and then... Was she tall? She, yeah, she's about five foot nine. Uh-huh. And was she a virgin? Uh, I don't. I could not say that. And what, I don't was, she, was she younger or older than I? She's your age. I don't want to disrespect your woman. She's your age. So she would be about 72 now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we did it in her car. No, no, no. You, uh, you started you started to kiss and then you came immediately. Yeah. Uh, but she convinced you that that was sex. Uh-huh. Because you were kind of dumb back then. And did I pay you the full price? <laughs> no, your album Left Without Paying. That's what it's titled after. That's right. I do have a comedy album called Left oh. Without Paying. <laughs> All right. Let's do listener calls. 202-670-2752. Things, things are going good with you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where does she live again? Uh, my guess is Jersey City. What do you mean, you guess? You 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 know it's Jersey City. No, but seriously, you guys doing good? You guys, uh, what you got? What was the last date you guys went on? Uh, we uh, we went. We walked around Jersey City last night. Oh come on! What do you, seriously? What do you what do you do on a date, David Feldman? I'm I'm dying to know. <sighs> what do I do on a date? Do you think it would be fun to go out with me? Uh, I you think, think it would be fun. I think for three months it would be great. And then what happens? Oh, then you start to be yourself. And who am I? You're a you're a cranky old lefty Jew. Right. You, I'm guessing you walk around your apartment muttering to yourself for a good part of the morning. You think it would be nice to wake up with me in bed with you? No, but seriously, what do you do on a date? Like, where did, what was the last date you took her on? The movies? We went to the talk. We, we saw a talkie, yes. <laughs> talkie? Which one? The jazz singer. <laughs> no, no, seriously. God, you're so weird. Do you go on a, when you go, so you go to movie, do you go to dinner first? I, I would prefer dinner before a movie. I don't why understand I, why people go out to dinner and then try to have sex that can't be good for the sheets i think it's good to digest your food i think you should go to dinner after you've had sex don't you well i mean i guess it sounds like you sounds like you do anal first date jesus why do you need to be cleaned out before sex i I need to be completely empty because you never know what hole is going to be in play at what what time. I want. I don't want my stomach <laughs> gurgling. <laughs> I, I want. I want to be lean and mean. Might go mouth. Might go ears. You can't ever tell. Have to be clean. I only want <laughs> one type of fluid. Coming out of me. Tears? Yes. Uh, I'm going on a date tomorrow night. I'm sorry? I'm going on a date tomorrow night with a lady I met on an app. It's a first date. And what was the app? Bumble. 
Bumble, so they pick, right? Yeah, they have to talk to you first. Does she know who you are? Um, I know. Well, she knows I'm a comedian, but that's pretty much as far as it goes. And she's seen a picture. She's seen multiple pictures. And is Bernie Ho Baby Cat going to be okay with this? <laughs> that's that's got to be up to Bernie Ho Baby Cat. What's happening with you two? I'm going back to Vegas this month, so uh, maybe she'll nut up and and have the courage to meet with me. Bernie Ho Baby Cat. Say some shit face to face. I will pay for the visit to Planned Parenthood afterwards. <laughs> that's an all expense visit to Planned Parenthood if you go out with Liam McEnany. You'd have to cross three state lines because I'm sure they closed the last one in Nevada. No, I bet they have a Planned Parenthood. And Why don't you meet at the Mustang Ranch or whatever they call it? Where does your mother work in Vegas? What's, what's it now? The, the Chicken Ranch? The Chicken Ranch. What, can your mother just get a room for you? I like how you had to pretend you didn't know what the name of that place was. I've never... As if you haven't had to explain a credit card charge to your wife in your life. I've never been to the Chicken Ranch. Oh, the Bunny Ranch. I'm or sorry. the Bunny Ranch. That'd be funny uh, if... I mean, could you bring a date to the Bunny Ranch? Uh, probably. I mean, they probably have had couples come before. That's more of a third date, though. Okay. Now, have you had contact with Bernie O? No. Didn't you have some kind of correspondence with her when you were in Vegas last time? No, she she avoided me. She she didn't respond to me till after I left town. But you know each other's emails. Yes. Okay. We do have each other's email addresses. Okay. Bernie Ho, Liam will be in Vegas when? I'm still figuring that out. I'm going to go do a low-stakes poker tournament with some friends. But I don't know when yet. Okay. What would be more enjoyable than competing in a low-stakes poker tournament than finding the love of your life? Who is <laughs> Bernie Ho? She's funny. She is funny. She is funny. 202-670-2752. Bernie Ho, I'll tell you what. If you and Liam... Make out. If you can show proof that you made out with Liam, I will treat both of you to industrial strength Lavores. <laughs> Here we go. First first call. This is voicemail uh, 19. Not bad. Voicemail 19. Hi, David, and probably Liam. Uh, hello. I've got a question for you uh, to sort of divert from all the political craziness. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on universal suffrage. And by that, I mean uh, completely eliminating the voting age. <clears throat> I mean, like, uh, as soon as they can get in the booth, they can vote. And my challenge to you is, if you have an argument against this, um, I want you to make sure it's not one that either was or could be applied to uh, the fight for the suffrage uh, of women. So, love the show, and you guys are both assholes, and um, yeah. 
So uh, mm-hmm. I hope I get to hear this on the air. Uh, I'm 34, so I'm probably your youngest listener. So if you do that for me, uh, you'll have me for life. So uh, have a great day, and uh, I will hear you next episode. Bye. Voicemail 19 wants to know if we should grant everybody the vote. Sounds like we got a writing assignment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like we're in a we're in forensics team. Yeah. Forensic club. Well, what do you think? Universal suffrage. You know what? I think um so he's basically saying like if you can reach the lever you could you you should be allowed to pull it kind of deal. Yeah. Kind of like Disneyland. Uh, I would say right now American politics couldn't be more of a mess. You know, sure. like, uh, you might as well, you know, why not? Why yeah. not give everybody the vote? I mean, most Americans don't use it anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll just have a bunch of apathetic six-year-olds who decide right. to stay home and drink juice rather right. than wait in line two minutes to vote. What would happen if we took the vote away from men? And I'm being serious. Would this country be better if men could not vote? Well, considering the high number of women that voted for Donald Trump, I'm not sure that the, that would make this country better. What if men couldn't run for office either? What if men... So you're saying, what if we just uh, eliminate half the population and keep men as breeding slaves? Well, yeah. I'd be into that. Yeah. What if only, like, like 16-year-olds could vote? Like, you're 16, there's one window of opportunity to decide on the future of the country, and that's it. So you get, like, a year boning up. Boning. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Would the presidential election still be every four years? Uh, Sure. So then basically, once every four years, people who randomly happen to be born at the right year 16 years previously could be allowed to choose the president but nobody else right right well this sounds like a the plot of a groovy late 60s uh comedy okay starring shelly winters starring shelly winters and uh three future cast members of laverne and shirley yes voicemail 32 by the way, just wanna just wanna commend David. Uh, come on, man. Hang on for one second. Yes. I just wanted to commend number nineteen on starting us off with the worst voicemail of the show. Okay. <laughs> Hang on. Oh, we have more. Okay, yeah, we have more. Thirty-two. This is Joe Biden, alias Tom in Portland, Oregon. But I'm going to be Joe Biden right now, and I can't tell if that's <laughs> Tom. Doing an imitation of Joe Biden or Joe Biden doing an imitation of Tom? I mean, it's, it's what I can tell you is uh, I already owe number nineteen an apology. Okay, <laughs> okay. You know, I I rode the train every day. I commuted from Delaware, Wilmington, from Wilmington, Delaware to Washington D.C. <clears throat> every day on that train, I served my time, and I deserve to be president. You know who else is from Wilmington? Is uh, well, Valerie Bertinelli. Remember Valerie Bertinelli? Yes, she gave her husband. Uh, I won't do that. I'm not going to do that. 
Yeah, yeah. Can I just say? Yeah. I already. How? Yeah. Do all, do all your listeners loot up before they <laughs> before they call you? It sounds like an audition for soft rocket DJ work. <laughs> hey, David, this is <sighs> Coming in at you hot. Ooh, I've been riding that train from Delaware every day. And speaking of trains, here's Midnight Train to Georgia with Gladys Knight and the Pips. I, I don't know. That's a pretty good Joe Biden impersonation. And by that, I mean this guy's a loser. <laughs> now, let's be nice to the listeners. Let's Let's continue, Liam. Be nice. Okay. Imagine, uh, imagine Joe Biden here as, uh, as, uh, the super on one day at a time being inappropriate with the, uh, three females Schneider. in the apartment Schneider, yeah. there. You know, Valerie Bertinelli and, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Mama's and the Papa's daughter. Um, Mackenzie Phillips. Who slash girlfriend. <laughs> what? Daughter slash girlfriend. Yes, she she had an affair with her father. You know, it's a bad what? sign when you're making love and your partner says, who's your daddy? And you say, <laughs> you are, as a matter of fact. She had she had a relationship with Papa John Phillips. That, <laughs> yeah. Relationship is a very kind way of putting it. Well, it it, it was from the 60s. Right. So at that time... <laughs> An argument could be made. I don't know. I, I read her book. I couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, I could barely stop jerking off. Yeah. All right. Be nice. <laughs> All right. We got to get through this voicemail. It's terrible. Okay. Does and, it end? Uh, Bonnie Franklin. I remember that name. But anyway, that's uh, just Biden is Biden is pretty much. Well, this uh, is some hard hitting political satire. Will you let this man work? Does this guy write for for the Capitol steps? Come on. He's doing Joe Biden as, was it Pat Harrington? Pat Harrington. <laughs> Snyder, right? Yeah. One day at a time. He sounds like neither man. Huh? He sounds like neither of them. This is Joe Biden playing Snyder in One Day at a Time. And, <laughs> and this is obviously a young person. Right. Because hasn't One Day at a Time come back? It's a big hit. A slightly different cast change. No, this is one of my younger listeners. <laughs> you, you, by which you mean he's in his 50s? He can remember one day at a time. All right. <laughs> Don't talk over his performance. Show him respect. Yeah. Sorry, he's still listing the cast members, so I thought it was okay. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. As Snyder in one day at a time, I think Schneider. would go something like this. Right. Uh the guy with the bad mustache, and the bad mannerisms. Yeah. And uh, you get but he's commuted to D.C. for like 45 years. Round trip every day. Dude. Do we really need to hold primaries? I mean, who? what other American has a commitment to commute every single day? I grew up in D.C. I live in Portland, Oregon now, but... Uh, is this I've taken the train before. Liam, the man is working. And you're interrupting him. Jeez. 
can't you wait another 45 minutes until he's done? <laughs> You're right. The best impressions have 20 minutes setups. I apologize. Please. All right. Let's uh, let's show the man some respect. He is a listener. You know, it's it's even I've never was I was never so well read as when I did take the train to work every day, commuting to D.C., 45 mm -hmm. minutes, both ways. It's fantastic. But Joe has like an hour and a half, and he's dumb as a brick. Yeah. yeah. You know, he hasn't, he's not reading. Mm -hmm. He's not smart like this doing? guy. This is, you know what this is? This is me at every wedding and bar mitzvah I'm forced to go to. <laughs> right? Yeah. When I'm, mm -hmm. I'm I'm seated there, the band stops playing. I could I can finally have a conversation, and I get cornered. And after I'm done, after the guy sitting next to me finishes about a three hour inquisition about who I write for, right? He starts talking to me, you know, trying to you know being funny with me like this, right? And and because uh, he's a great idea for a show, yeah. And, and I'm still place he works, right? And, you know, and I walk out of the wedding or the bar mitzvah demanding that I get paid, that somebody <laughs> give me a check. I deserve a gift for showing up. That doesn't go over well at weddings and bar mitzvahs when you say to the groom of the bar mitzvah boy, you know, I get paid to show up at these things and entertain. Right. I shouldn't be giving you a gift. You should be handing me a check. All right, let's continue. You still there, Liam? Still listening. Can, can I hit the play button without you stepping on this man's work? Uh, yes, I need a nap, so it's perfect. Right. Be nice. You know, that entire time, all the way back and forth, he deserves the presidency. Yes. You know, uh -huh. I, he's put in the time. He's put in the miles. <laughs> what is this democracy thing? I mean, I know. is it? You know, is it about how many... I'm telling you, this is my life. This is my <laughs> life. This is why is this... I, I don't, I don't want to meet your family. I don't want to go to parties with you. I don't want to meet your mother or your father, your uncle. I, I'm not interested. Because this, this is what I end up having to just sit and listen to. Is is this the impression of Schneider? I can't tell. No, this is he has devolved into an impersonation of me at every party that I'm forced to go to. I don't want to meet anybody. Here we go. Votes you got, electoral college, or mm -hmm. is it really just about commuting uh -huh. and just being there? It's every funny. day uh -huh. and getting along with the opposition. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <clears throat> well, anyway. Um, yeah. Gosh, I hate Biden. Yeah. And I love you, David. I, and keep up the good work. Thank good night. You. Thank you. Listen, I, I have to be up early tomorrow, but it was nice meeting you, Paul. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to talk to your, your lovely wife over there. But uh, sure, just, you know, send... Uh, Send the script to me, and I'll I'll take a look at it. And it was really, it was a great wedding. It really yeah. was.
Listen, I have to go to the bathroom. I'd love to continue this chat. I have to go to the bathroom. Don't be weirded out when I walk three feet away and talk to a friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's why people dance at weddings and bar mitzvahs. (laughs) So you don't get stuck being cornered. I think you're right. What do you do when you're... Actually, this is a very sweet guy from... Very sweet. Thank no, you for that. Walk it back now, David. No, it was a sweet. Was it was so sweet. Funny. It was sweet. In his head, he had you know. In this head, he had this whole thing, this whole point to make. And he's like, "Ah, oh, I'm really gonna fucking nail Biden today." What's that noise in the background? That is a truck going down Hollywood Boulevard. Wait a second. Nobody's. None of my listeners have offered you a place to stay. You know what? They don't offer me enough money. What are you charging now f- for a room? One guy offered to let me live in his place uh, for 1200 a month. And I said I couldn't take less than 1700 Folks, Leah McEnany needs, to, needs a place to live, a quiet place to live. If you live in the Los Angeles area... $1,700 a month is all he's charging. He'll move right in. He'll need his own bedroom, his own bath. Also, you can't be there. And you can't be there. I have to live alone. Live with one of the stars of the David Feldman show. <laughs> and maybe sure. he'll have sex with Bernie Ho Baby Cat <laughs> in your home. All right. This is voicemail 38. 38. We got a couple here. 202-670-2752 is the number. David, uh, this is Tom Buck. I've called you before. I apologize. Again? I was a little bit drunk last time I called. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> stop, stop, stop. What? Did he just say he was drunk for that last call? I, I don't know. It's not for me I to say. I fucking called it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Tom, there is help. Can, I don't can, know anyone in the Delaware area that can get you to an AA meeting, but just Google it online. He lives in Portland now. Portland? Yes. Tom, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And drunk dialing the David Feldman show is a problem. Drunk dialing the David Feldman show. Oh, that's a funny idea. <laughs> 202-670-2752. Play that, play that Pat Harrington voicemail again. I, he, let, let's finish his... He's got a message, okay? He's, he's apologizing. Apparently, he had been drinking when he <laughs> left the other message. So What? Yeah. Really? He said he was drunk. Let's, let, Liam, let's let, let's let the man speak. Oh, today's segment with David Bacon, that hour-long segment, was... Absolutely astonishing and fantastic. Thank you. And uncomfortable and weird and deeply disturbing. Thank you. And the most fantastic hour of podcasting I've ever heard. Wow. Thank you. I hope David Bacon is okay. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. Uh, I'm laughing my head off. I don't know if you can tell that. Be well. Bye. I love this guy. I love this guy. What a nice guy. 
That was sweet. I apologized to David Bacon. I, I crossed the line with him. What did you do? I, 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 I Republican fuck. Huh? You said he was a fat Republican fuck? No, I just teased him a little too much. He's not a comedian. He's just a good human being. He's just a listener. Right. Interviews politicians. And I, for some reason, decided it would be funny to, I don't know. Okay. This will you be. You and your girlfriend are going to break up in three months. I'm sorry? You and your girlfriend are going to break up in three months. Over what? What's going to happen? I don't know, man. I just got a feeling. I don't have a good feeling about this one. Is she going to see somebody else? Am I going to meet somebody else? What, what's going to happen? Oh, I just... Uh, Am I going to meet just, another woman I lost my virginity to? She's going to meet someone else, and his name is the real David Feldman. Oh, the real David Feldman. What is that now? What is <laughs> the that same sound? guy who had to apologize to David Bacon. No, no. What was that noise in the background? That was a plane, I think. Weren't you going to move in with, like, a very successful sitcom creator? Well, he moved uh, He he moved elsewhere. It's a long story. I'll tell you off mic. Well, I would assume there's still a room for you. I don't want to put anyone else's business on the streets, but right. it's, all, it's all good. I'll all tell right. you after the mic's turn off. After, after the, we record, I'll tell you all about it. Okay. This is... Uh, it's very nice, actually. Very sweet. Let's play voicemail 42. This would be 42. 202-670-2752. If you can't remember the number, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the Ask Me Anything menu button, and the number will be there as well. Hello? Hello? What happened? What happened? Well, I put you on mute so I could cough. Oh, uh, I, I'd rather have the cough. Put the mute on when you have. Well, I'm playing this. Nothing's coming through. So. Well, that's not me. Oh, hang on. No. Okay. I thought we had a call there. I apologize. Hang well, on. judging by the last few calls, it's probably no loss. Okay, and this is the last call. <laughs> Listening to Liam, I was struck how often low information voters don't know they are low information voters. I think it's time for a more appropriate term for these people. How about fucking idiots? Also, on an earlier episode, Liam expressed well, concern nice. that he had fat guy voice. I think he should be more concerned with fat guy fat. Well, that's nice. No, wait, 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 wait. I didn't hear what he said. <laughs> that's Stephen said- Hawking's calling. Right? Stephen Hawking calling from hell. Oh, is that where he ended up? He was saying, well, that's where well, let me play Stephen again. Atheists go. Okay, let, let, me, let me play him again. Hello, David. This is AI. After listening to Liam, I was struck how often low-information voters don't know they are low-information voters. I think it's time for a more appropriate term for these people. How about fucking idiots? Also, on an earlier episode, Liam expressed concerns that he had fat guy voice. I think he should be more concerned with fat guy fat. Well, that's not nice. Don't insult Liam. Well, it's always nice to hear from uh, your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You hit the cough button, but we recorded it. Okay. 
That's you thinking you can't hear you coughing. <laughs> why, why are you making thumping sounds? I'm, uh, you know what? I was checking the, uh, the Iowa caucus results. And Bernie lost big, right? Bernie uh, is behind by 0.1%. He can't win. You're right. That's I didn't say dream. that. No, you're absolutely right. He can't win. I didn't say that. No, I said he's behind by 0.1%. In the popular vote? How did he do in the popular vote? I'm sure he did very poorly in the popular <laughs> vote because he, you know, he's a divisive figure. Nobody wants him. It's Iowa. <laughs> so I'm sure he, he lost the popular vote. He's probably just manipulating the delegate count, right? How did he do in the popular vote? You know, his big problem in Iowa... Tell me how he this. did on the popular vote, Liam. He got 6,000 more votes. But listen, his big then problem... Then whom? Then Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, but Pete really won, right? I would say they're tied. Why oh, can't yeah, I, I would say they're tied, because if you got well. 6,000 more votes than Pete Buttigieg... Why can't you be happy with the fact that they're pretty much just... Uh, he's either in first or second place, and he, he did better than expected. Because everybody he, gets a trophy. That's divisive to want a winner in Iowa. You're right. But the Bernie bros, they, they, they're, you, you can't talk to them. You can't deal with a Bernie bro. They want to claim... They want, only want one president. They're greedy. You know, here's his problem in Iowa, and this is actually serious, is his numbers with over 45s and over 65s are not great. As evidenced by the, the vote count. By evidence, as evidenced by the turnout. He did really well with people who were born between 91 and 95, and not so well uh, with people older in, in decreasing numbers. And he had less uh, support among over 65s than he did four years ago. He cannot win. Because, I'm not saying you can't win. He I'm can't just win. Saying, look at look at how Biden I'm did. Saying his his candidacy, his candidate, uh, fucking, they should his team should look at those numbers and figure out how to do outreach. Yeah, yeah. but it's but it's good. He doesn't do transactional politics, so that'll really help him getting the over sixty fives on his side. Right, and the fact that Biden got zero delegates and he's an old white man is proof. That, who said old white man? That, that an old white man can't win. I, who said old white man? Bernie's an old white man. And if Biden got zero delegates, that's proof that an old white man can't do well in Iowa. I think an old man shouldn't be president, period. Exactly. I think so. It should be Mayor Pete. Should not be elected. I'm sorry? I think someone who's 74 and had a heart attack on the trail... Right. Shouldn't be campaigning. Exactly. I think so. He's unelectable. I didn't say he's unelectable. I, I said it's not my preference. Exactly. 202-670-2752 is the number. Leave a voicemail. Let us now go to listener questions because you can also ask us questions. I'm going to try to get to all of them. But I'm as you know, John last Delaney, week. Last fellow week Irishman. I'm sorry? John Delaney, fellow Irishman. That's who I'm giving the official David Feldman show support to. Okay. <clears throat> As you know, last week I was in Washington, D.C. with Triumph, the insult comic dog. So, oh, are you doing a podcast out there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let us 
We've got a lot What's of questions. Of... What's the name of the podcast you and Brian recorded? Uh, it's called... Uh... Okay. There are a lot of... I can't get to all these. Okay. Let's do it. Have... I'm sorry. I'll stop busting your chops. Yeah. we're gonna. What we're going to have to do... I think you're going to have to come back Monday and finish okay. these. Can you? Yeah, we can figure something out for. for well, let Monday. me read uh, some of these because there's so many. I think you're going to have to do two weeks. Two. Oh. We have to make up for this. That's okay. It's my punishment. Yeah, hang on. All right, hang on. Sorry. Bernie Ho, baby cat. Bernie Ho, baby cat writes. What do you call five Nazis in rural Alabama using the bathroom? What? The outhouse fumph. I don't get that. Funf? I don't know. It's probably some obscure World War II thing that nobody but her gets. Yeah. Boy, I can't. Well, here's another one from Bernie Ho Baby Cat. Were you located my safe house's safe room? She's a Sagittarius. That's good. The following is a compilation of my previous iTunes reviews. <laughs> These are her iTunes reviews. Better Than Sex with David Feldman. <laughs> her next review was, A man so insufferable, even his hair blugs rejected him. Well, that sounds hurtful. Yeah. David Feldman sits alone in the dark listening to audio of the Apollo 13 mission with a bottle of lotion and a box of Kleenex. Well, that just sounds really hurtful. It does. True. Then she says, I also tried to promote your listener phone number a couple of times by incorporating it into the reviews. I want you to marry Bernie Ho. Why don't you marry Bernie Hill? These are some of her reviews where she tries to incorporate the phone number. Botched hair plugs? If you are a victim of hair flub for Feldman, please call 202-670-2752 immediately. The hair flub for Feldman, as opposed to the hair club. Paralegals are waiting to take your information. Join the class action Hair suit today. The other one urged New York City divorce attorneys to call the phone number. I'm telling you, you and Bernie, oh baby cat. She's funny. Dude, you really have a dent on the side of your head. What are you talking about? I'm looking at your uh, your Facebook pictures. I was just waiting for that to be over. Uh, when you said this needs a two, this segment needs a two part. You meant that email. Yeah, this one comes to us from... Usually when I want to hear something that goes that long without a laugh, I turn on the David Feldman show. That's not nice. Be nice. Come on. I turn on your half-hour special. I had a good half-hour special. Granted, it was 90 minutes, but there was a good half-hour in it. <laughs> what we, The thumping sounds, Liam. I'm sorry, I was, I was looking up... Uh... I'm looking at this picture of you and Joe Lewis, and you've definitely got a dent on the side of your head. Me and Joe Lewis? Isn't that who it is? 
What are you talking about? On Facebook from 2017. John Lewis. John Lewis. Sorry, Joe Lewis is the boxer. You're right. Yeah. And I have a dent on the side of my head. You do. It's on the right side of your head. Have you ever studied phrenology? Uh, Skull shapes? Yeah, no, but I can hum it. I can hum the tune. I can see. If you were a phrenologist, you know that dent in the head suggests that I'm very good at math, (laughs) or very bad at paying a gambling debt. (laughs) (laughs) Do I really have a dent in my head? It looks like it. That was caller twelve from two weeks ago, right? (laughs) Was. Yeah. I can't stop seeing it now. I never, nobody has ever said to me that I have a dent in my head. Is it really a dent? Yeah, it looks like it. Don't I have like a protuberance, like a, a forward, like a, 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 a forward thrusting brow? <laughs> Isn't that what it is? I don't, th- I don't see it as a dent. <laughs> and you do have a severe overbite. No, I don't. No, you don't have you don't have Neanderthal Ridge, but you do have a dent on the side of your head. And it's okay. On both sides or just one side? Just on the right side. Look at the left side. Do you see a Hold on. I have to go back to it now. I'm telling you, you look at your your cover photo on Facebook. It says Medicare for all. Yeah. You have like a moon shaped dent right by your hairline. I don't want to look at it. Come on. Now, now you're going to make me self-conscious. Because I already I'm kind of ashamed of my penis. It's like it's it's nice. And then at the tip, there's like this mushroom-like growth. <laughs> with a hole at the tippy top. I feel like a freak. You, on your head, you've got a vertical smile. I have a vertical smile? Yeah. All right. I don't I no I, nobody until I started doing this show, I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that I was a freak of nature. It's all I can see now. All right, now I now I have to stare at the mirror uh-huh. and, and try to convince myself that that I'm presentable to the world. Which I think Brett Bear from Fox News does every morning. Ever see Brett, Brett Bear? No, I don't watch Fox News. I get the feeling Brett Bear just walks around the house all day asking his wife and kids, am I ugly or handsome? Brett Bear, B-E-H-R? B-A-E-R or something. He's the anchor man. He kind of looks like Fred Flintstone. Bear, okay. That's a Jewish name. Oh, my God. Right? That that guy looks like the third man in on a fraternity day rape. (laughs) Oh, come on now. He does. Jesus. I'm not saying he did that. Legally, I have to explain. I don't think he's ever done that, but that's the look he has. Yeah. All right. Brett Bear. That guy looks like he said, no, officer, the girls were here of their own volition. Could you handle being on television every day? Hell yeah. Really? But- and, and And having your mug on the on the TV every day? I look good, though. Yeah, but I mean, if you were like Brett Bear, where you can't figure out if you're a freak, just... 
Would you be happy seeing your face on a bus billboard? You know, he definitely looks like the his first day in freshman math in college. He actively scanned the room for an Asian student to cheat off of. <laughs> Jesus, that's what he looks like. I'm not oh, saying it's stop right. it. I'm not saying the stereotypes are right. I'm saying that's what he looks like. All right. Liam McEnany, you're going to have to come back Monday. We've got so many questions. Okay. Did we ever hear from Renee in the trailer with the cats? I don't know. There's so many questions. Dying to know. She probably, you're dying to know. She's dying from toxoplasmosis. (laughs) (laughs) And a bunch of other illnesses you get from having sewage running under your house. Well, yeah. Liam McEnany is the host of Tell Your Friends, the world's greatest podcast. His uh-huh. comedy album is Working Class Fancy. You can see him February 25th at Vitello's in Los Angeles. Wendy Liebman will be there. Jimmy Pardo and Chris Titus. And your Twitter handle is Hey, It's Liam. And my, uh, my Instagram handle is Radio Liam. Radio so if you Liam. want to look at me. I'm Radio Liam on Instagram. Have you heard from uh, Alex Brazil yet? No, I think I have to reach out to him. I haven't. Uh, I just haven't had the time, to be honest with you. Remember when he needed us? No. Remember? He needed you. No. Me? Nobody needs me. I need you. Nobody so gets the me. F off my show. <laughs> Liam, thank you. Stand on the line for one second, buddy. Yeah, of course. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. <laughs>